It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. My name is David Feldman, and welcome to the mop-up for, what is it, July 1st? 2021 and it's just really nice and balmy here in new york city it's a, a cool 4,000 degrees my name is david feldman breaking news this just in after nearly four decades donald rumsfeld and saddam hussein will meet once again in hell it, it's so hot in New York City, I think Rumsfeld died just to go to hell and, and cool off. Well, as I said, welcome to the mop up for July 1st, 2021. <laughs> welcome to the mop up. We're coming to you live from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where it's 4,000 degrees. And believe it or not, it's cloudy outside. I'm, I'm David Feldman, bringing you first world problems on a third world income. On today's show, if all goes well, and it usually doesn't, Professor Ben Burgess and Pete Dominic remember Donald Rumsfeld, who, as I said, uh, passed away this week. Donald Rumsfeld, the youngest and oldest person ever to be defense secretary, went into the great known unknown at the age of 88. Rest in war, Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld served valiantly. He served courageously. He served our nation's military industrial complex 
brilliantly twice, first under the Ford administration, then under George W. Bush, where he blundered his way into Baghdad, killing at the very least 400 to 700,000 Iraqis. Rumsfeld first served as Defense Secretary in the Ford administration, where he became best friends with Dick Cheney, who, when elected vice president, pushed for Rumsfeld to become Defense Secretary yet again. And then after 9-11, the buildings had barely come down, and already Rumsfeld was saying, let's blame 9-11, let's blame Iraq for 9-11 immediately. After 9-11, the day of September 11th, Rumsfeld pushed for an invasion of Iraq. To refresh your memory, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11, zero, zip, nada. He immediately walked up to CIA Director George Tenet and said, find anything you got that links these attacks to Iraq. Just find anything. I don't know if you remember uh, uh, a guy named Clark. He was a chief counterterrorism advisor on the National Security Council. He served under Clinton and then under President George W. Bush. He was a holdover from the, the Clinton administration. And when Rumsfeld took over the Defense Department, Richard Clark, I believe his first name was Richard Clark, he said to Rumsfeld, trust me on this, your biggest concern is Osama bin Laden. And of course, Rumsfeld ignored Richard Clark. And uh, Clark wrote a book about this. And in his book, he wrote that on 9-11, in the very first emergency meeting on the day of these attacks, Rumfeld, Rumsfeld said in the Situation Room, why shouldn't we go into Iraq? not just al-Qaeda, let's go get Iraq. And Clark wrote that Rumsfeld kept saying, we need to, it's not funny, I'm sorry. We need to bomb Iraq, we need to bomb Iraq. And Richard Clark said, no, Iraq had nothing to do with this. Al-Qaeda is in Afghanistan and parts of Pakistan. Leave Iraq out of this. And Rumsfeld on 9-11 said to Richard Clark, but, I know that, but I know that Iraq had nothing to do with this, but there aren't any good targets in Afghanistan, quote, and there are plenty of good targets in Iraq, Donald Rumsfeld. Before and during the Iraq war, Donald Rumsfeld claimed that Iraq had active weapons of mass destruction. He insisted in the lead up to the war in Iraq and to the illegal invasion of Iraq that Iraq had WMDs. He gave a famous press conference in, in February 12th, on February 12th, 2002, about a month before the invasion. And he said, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. On March 30th, 2003, when the war was just getting going, Donald Rumsfeld went on ABC's This Week, and he said to George Stephanopoulos, we know where the weapons of mass destruction are. And then he got specific. He said they are in Tikrit, 
and Baghdad, east of Chakrit, west of Baghdad, and uh, they never found weapons of mass destruction. He led us into a war that cost trillions of dollars, thousands of American lives, maybe a million lives in Iraq when you add up the, the health consequences of the invasion, of the water being turned off, the electricity being turned off. Lancet says it could be as close to a million Iraqis died from the invasion, not to mention two, three million Iraqis who lost their homes, who became refugees because of this Donald Rumsfeld, who, by the way, would robo-sign his condolence letters to the parents and the wives and the husbands of the soldiers who died in Afghanistan. He didn't even have the decency. He signed about a thousand condolence letters using a machine instead of this, a pen. He ignored all the warnings in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq. He ignored, as I said earlier, Richard Clark's warning that his biggest problem would be Osama bin Laden. Instead, Rumsfeld, as defense secretary, doing this for a second time, was going to bring in his expertise and streamline and privatize our military. That was his goal. He wasn't interested in defending us. He was the Secretary of Defense, and he did not defend us on 9-11. He was trying to streamline the Pentagon and make it lean and mean. Not lean and mean when it comes to the military-industrial complex, just lean and mean in terms of the soldiers. And he guaranteed the idiot George W. Bush that we can go in to Iraq and fight this war on the cheap. He said, we don't need as many troops to go into to Baghdad the way your father did in 1991. We can do this smart. We can do this smart. That's what Rumsfeld told the moron President George W. Bush. And after the invasion, it soon became evident that Donald Rumsfeld, who served twice as defense secretary, never came up with an exit strategy. He never had a plan for what happens after Saddam Hussein disappears. He, he had no plan on how to occupy Iraq so it wouldn't descend into a civil war. He had no plan. He actually thought that once we went in there, the Iraqi people would just rise up and a democracy would flourish without the assistance of the United States. That democracy is just a part of nature and it would just rise because people would be so happy to get rid of Saddam Hussein. And so he had no plan. He figured we'd go in there, topple Saddam Hussein and leave and there'd be freedom in Iraq. And our soldiers had to stay totally unprepared, totally unprepared to deal with improvised explosive devices, which would blow up their tanks, our tanks, our American soldiers' tanks. They had Humvees that were blowing up. The, the uh, 
the insurgents would plant these IEDs on the road. Our Humvees would ride over them and there wasn't enough undergirding to protect our soldiers because Donald Rumsfeld never thought of improvised uh, improvised explosive devices. So our soldiers were getting killed, coming home, missing limbs. It took years, years for our soldiers in Iraq to get Humvees that could protect them from IEDs. Uh, he was asked about this. I'll play this if I can. I, I'm going to try to play clips today as I learn uh, I don't know if I can do this, but this was this should be remembered in 2004. I think this was around Christmas. I don't know if I'm going to be able to play it. But in 2004, Donald Rumsfeld visited Kuwait, where our soldiers were stationed. That was where they stayed before they went north into Iraq. And he had a town hall with our soldiers. And it had become apparent by 2004, we went into Iraq in 2003. They had prepared for this war since 2001. And our soldiers three years in still didn't have body armor. They didn't have, it was incredible what they were lacking. This is a town hall meeting that the defense secretary had with soldiers who were about to go back into Iraq. They had some time off and they were now going back in. Listen to the reaction from the soldiers after this National Guardsman from Tennessee asks Donald Rumsfeld this question. Well, we've had troops in Iraq for coming up on three years and we've always stayed here out of Kuwait. Now, why do we soldiers have to dig through local landfills for pieces of scrap metal and compromised ballistic glass to up-armor our vehicles? And why don't we have those resources readily available to us? I missed the first part of your question. And, and could, you, could you repeat it for me? Yes, Mr. Secretary. Our soldiers have been fighting in Iraq for coming up on three years. A lot of us are getting ready to move north relatively soon. Our vehicles are not armored. We're digging pieces of rusted scrap metal and compromised ballistic glass that's already been shot up, dropped, busted, picking the best out of this scrap to put onto our vehicles to take into combat. We do not have proper armament vehicles to carry with us north. I talked, I talked to the general coming out here about the pace at which the vehicles are being armored. They have been brought from all over the world, wherever they're not needed, to a place here where they are needed. I'm told that they're being, um, the army is, is, I think it's something like 400 a month are being done. And it's, it's essentially a matter of physics. It isn't a matter of money. It isn't a matter on the part of the army of desire. It's, it's a matter of production and, and capability of doing it. As you know, uh, you go to war with the army you have, uh, not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. Uh, since the Iraq conflict began, 
the Army uh, has been pressing ahead to produce the armor necessary at a rate that they believe, it's a greatly expanded rate from what existed previously, but a rate that they believe is, is the rate that is uh, all that can be accomplished at this moment. Uh, I can I can assure you go to the go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had. Army to me means soldiers, not weapons. He conflated he conflated machines and weapons with the soldiers who died because he went to war without a plan. Uh, our soldiers, like I said, our American soldiers didn't have bulletproof vests. And they were literally writing home to their friends and loved ones to uh, send them bulletproof vests. Trillions of dollars spent on that war. It was it was a boondoggle and it was a just money from heaven for Halliburton. But somehow they they just couldn't supply our soldiers with bulletproof vests. It's incredible. Well, it's all about personal responsibility. That's what the Republicans will say. And apparently there's some a-holes in British Columbia as well. The heat dome over British Columbia has killed nearly 500 people in the past week. I love this. During a press conference earlier this week, British Columbia Premier John Horgan said that the the fatalities from the heat dome are a part of life. This is uh, this is amazing. Well, again, I'll, I'll await the uh, coroner's uh, determination. Uh, as Dr. Henry said, uh, fatalities are part of life, uh, and uh, the consequences or the, uh, the causes of those fatalities are examined by officials that uh, we put in place as a society uh, to make sure we're getting the best information possible so that we can put in place programs and policies to protect people going forward. And uh, again, this was uh, an unprecedented heat wave, uh, records uh, broken day after day. Uh, the public was acutely aware that we had a heat problem uh, and we were doing our best to break through all of the other noise to encourage people to take steps to protect themselves. Uh, but it was uh, apparent to anyone who walked outdoors that we were in an unprecedented heat wave. And again, there's a, a level of personal responsibility. I'm not ducking the issue. Yeah, you are ducking the issue because it's not personal responsibility. It's climate change, climate change, climate change. It's the tar sands in Canada. It's the XL pipeline. It's ExxonMobil. It's not personal responsibility unless you're Warren Buffett and you're personally responsible for owning 5% of Chevron. But of course, the people in charge will say it's it's the fault of the people, the 600 people who died in British Columbia, even though half of British Columbia has air conditioning. Half the population of British Columbia has air conditioning because up until this year, you didn't need air conditioning in British Columbia. I think they're getting up to like, what, 114 degrees up there. This is. This is man-made climate change. This has to be the wake-up call. But of course, the media refuses to conflate 
climate change with the heat. Very rarely, Media Matters, we'll talk about this later on in the show, Media Matters did a study of how many times the major networks conflated climate change with the over 100 degree heat that much of uh, the Northern Hemisphere is experiencing and the summer is just beginning. Felicia Rashad, who played Claire Huxtable, has come under fire from students and graduates of Howard University, where Rashad is a dean and she teaches there. You all know that Bill Cosby was released from prison yesterday and Felicia Rashad immediately tweeted, quote, finally, a terrible wrong is being righted. A miscarriage of justice is corrected, unquote. She not only tweeted that, she shared that on her Instagram page and survivors of sexual assault who attend or attended Howard, Howard University are now demanding that she step down as the Dean of Fine Arts at Howard University. 60 women have come forward saying they were raped by Bill Cosby, who announced today he is planning a comeback. Congressman James Clyburn, he is number three in the House Democratic leadership. There's Pelosi, there's Steny Hoyer, and James Clyburn. They're all in their 80s. Uh, he's trying to block Nina Turner from getting the Democratic nomination for the Cleveland-based congressional seat that is up uh, because uh, they need a special election to replace former Congressman Marsha Fudge, who was appointed by Joe Biden to head housing, urban and development. Nina Turner is supported by Blue America. She's supported by Howie Klein. But Congressman James Clyburn is trying to block Nina Turner. This week he endorsed Chantel Brown because Nina Turner is an outspoken supporter of Bernie Sanders, whose presidential campaign Congressman James Clyburn derailed last year before the South Carolina primary. If you remember, Joe Biden had not won any states. He was going into South Carolina. It was make or break. And it looked like Bernie was going to win and the Democratic leadership panicked. Hillary, Bill, Obama, Obama and Clyburn panicked and they talked Pete Buttigieg, who was in second place. They talked Pete Buttigieg into dropping out and endorsing Joe Biden. And uh, so once again, James Clyburn is uh, ruining the Democratic Party. Some good news. The Paris based Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development announced a a, a plan to develop a blueprint that would guarantee multinational corporations would have to pay their fair share of taxes wherever they operate. This is actually good. The, this was introduced by Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen, and she wants corporations to pay their fair share of taxes. They want to establish a 15 percent minimum corporate tax rate so that wherever these corporations move to, at the very least, they will have to pay 
a 15% corporate tax rate. President Biden said today, quote, today marks an important step in moving the global economy forward to be more equitable for workers and middle-class families in the United States and around the world with a global minimum tax in place multinational corporations, he said, will no longer be able to pit countries against one another in a bid to push tax rates down and protect their profits at the expense of public revenue. That's a good thing. Uh, 130 countries have signed on to this. It's just a blueprint. We're not there yet. But the, the American government, which is should be home to all these multinational corporations. They move because they don't want to pay taxes. If America gets behind this, the rest of the world will. Donald Trump's chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, he's 73, was paraded into a courtroom handcuffed after he was indicted because of tax fraud. A, A grand jury said that he didn't pay taxes on a company car, an apartment. And this is an ongoing investigation that's been going on for about five years. It's been conducted by Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance, who is working with the state of New York. Alan Weisselberg, Trump's CFO, he appeared in court. The grand jury charged him with conspiracy, grand larceny and fraud. There are 15 charges against him so far that add up to about $1.76 million in tax fraud. It's not a lot of money, but it might be enough. You know, he didn't pay about close to $2 million in taxes he owes the government. But, you know, you go after the low hanging fruit to uh, get Trump. Weisselberg was uh, paying for his grandchildren's private schools, like $50,000 a year. He gave his son an apartment and a car, and none of this was reported. And lawyers for Weisselberg claim he is merely the low-hanging fruit that Cyrus Vance and Letitia James, she's the attorney general of the state of New York, they're trying to get Weisselberg to flip and testify against Donald Trump. Donald Trump's idiot son, Eric, when told of the indictment, said, this is what they have? This is all they have? Uh, I think they have more. You should keep your mouth shut, Eric. They might actually tell you, Eric, what they have with a knock on the door and a subpoena. Eric Trump said prosecutors should be forced to focus on violent crime in New York, not pursuing his father. But uh, Weisselberg is reportedly like family to Donald Trump, which means he's going to flip. So far, Donald Trump has not been personally charged, but the Manhattan DA and the state of New York is expected to announce further indictments throughout the summer. Donald Trump called the district attorney's indictment, quote, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. 
According to Michael C. Bender's new book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, the inside story of how Trump lost. This is a new book that uh, I'm going to read over the weekend because it's salacious. Uh, according to Michael Bender's book, Kimberly Gallfire, or I don't know, how do you pronounce Kimberly Gargile Gilfoyle? Kimberly Gilfoyle. She's Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend. She used to be married to Gavin Newsom, the uh, outgoing governor, hopefully, of California. He's being recalled. Uh, Kimberly Gargoyle, either married or dated Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor of California. Now she's with Don Jr. According to uh, Michael Bender's new book, Kimberly told GOP donors that her boyfriend, Don Jr., demands that she wear a cheerleading outfit and call him a naughty boy. Uh, that's not to have sex. That's just so it can promote a bowel movement. That's the only way Don Jr. can take a dump is if Kimberly is wearing a cheerleading. And apparently he likes to be put in a cage and let out. Kimberly, the... Uh, girlfriend of Don Jr., fiance probably. According to The New Yorker, Fox News fired Kimberly Gargoyle after they were forced to settle a $4 million lawsuit filed by Kimberly's female assistant who accused Kimberly of exposing herself and forcing her assistant to look at nude photos of men. The uh, assistant in the lawsuit claimed Kimberly frequently exhibited degrading and abusive behavior. Odd. That I can't imagine that. One point, Kimberly allegedly offered to buy her assistant silence when she realized she could get fired for all this. You know, she Kimberly is an attorney. And she suddenly realized, hey, I can get fired for this. So she uh, offered to bribe her assistant, which is also against the law. You would think you would know that if you're a lawyer. Well, remember back in January when Joe Biden warned that he will fire anybody who works at the White House on the spot if he hears that they bully or disrespect others. Do you remember that? He said this is no place for bullying. The White House, you will respect everybody at the White House or I will fire you on the spot. Well, despite Joe Biden's threat to fire anyone treating colleagues poorly, Politico reported this week that Vice President's, the Vice President's office, Vice President Harris's office, is a viper's nest of abusive behavior. Staffers claim to be treated like, quote unquote, shit by the vice president's chief of staff, Tina Flournoy, who has created what they call a, quote unquote, blame culture. Politico spoke with several employees of our vice president who describe constant tension and a toxicity in the office that flows directly from Vice President Harris and her chief of staff, Tina Flournoy. Ideas, Politico says, are reportedly ignored or listened to and then harshly denigrated. 
One source told Politico, people are thrown under the bus by the very top. Kamala and Tina have short fuses and are abusive. Harris's, Vice President Harris's chief spokesperson, Simone Sanders, said Politico's new reporting is false. She says it's not abusive here at the vice president's office and went on to call the people who work for the vice president and made those accusations. She called them cowards. But we're not abusive here at the vice president's office. Meanwhile, Business Insider interviewed seven former staffers for Senator Kristen Sinema. She's the Democrat from Arizona who is against the filibuster, against getting rid of the filibuster. Um, anyway, these seven people who used to work for her complained that working for her was a nightmare, it's demoralizing, and that they were unable to pay their bills. Huh. Seven former staffers said working for Kristen Cinema was demoralizing, toxic, and that working there, they were un unable to pay their bills. Welcome to life. Uh, they complained that they were constantly criticized by senior aides and they charged that Senator Cinema is lazy. Oh, poor babies. Yeah. Megan McCain, the idiot daughter of Senator John McCain. We're going to talk about what she's married to, the fascist that she's married to later on the, on the show. Megan McCain, the idiot daughter of Senator John McCain, has officially quit The View. She'd been on the show for four years, had another two years on her contract. McCain will be finishing up on the show at the end of July. On Wednesday, the state of Texas executed an inmate who was convicted of killing his wife 12 years ago, John Hummel, 45, before receiving a lethal injection, prayed to God and said he truly regrets killing my family. 27 states in America still have the death penalty. So far this year, five inmates in America have been executed all by lethal injections. Two of the five took place in Texas. The other three were in Missouri, Virginia, and Maryland. Three out of the five inmates executed were African-Americans. Three out of the five inmates ex executed were African-American. One of them was a woman. The House today voted to establish a Capitol riot select committee to look into what caused the insurrection on January 6. GOP House Leader Kevin McCarthy reportedly has threatened to strip committee assignments of any Republicans who serve on this committee. McCarthy denies that he has made this threat. Liz Cheney, who used to be part of the Republican leadership, uh, she's a Republican, uh, she announced that she will sit on this committee. Upon hearing news that Liz Cheney, a Republican, would be sitting on this Capitol riot select committee, Kevin McCarthy, the GOP leader, began to mock Congresswoman Liz Cheney and asked if she's thinking of converting, of becoming a Democrat, all because 
She wants to sit on the Capitol Riot Select Committee. He said, I was shocked that she would accept something from Speaker Pelosi. This is, you know, when it's only just the party, when all you do is stand for the party, that is fascism. That is what the Nazis, when you just worship the party for the sake of worshiping the party, it's, this is a very dangerous Republican Party. McCarthy, he's the House GOP leader, had a press conference on Thursday. He complained about Liz Cheney switching sides, all because she wanted to sit on this committee. He said, quote, it would seem to me, uh, since I didn't hear from her, maybe she's uh, closer to Nancy Pelosi than to me. Pelosi says she's honored and proud that, that Cheney will be joining the committee. Cheney said in a statement, I am honored to have been named to serve. And uh, if you remember, Cheney voted to impeach Trump at his second trial when he was accused of promoting the insurrection. And then because she voted to impeach Trump, she was voted out as a GOP conference chair and replaced by Elise Stefanik, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who it turns out is not as conservative as Liz Cheney, but she's a loyalist. So it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're loyal to the party. And of course, Donald Trump, this is this is not a crack up. This is like a solidification of the Republican Party. They, they, they are dangerous. They are dangerous. The House on Thursday passed their own $715 billion infrastructure package. The money would go for roads and bridges. This while senators in the White House are still negotiating President Biden's multi-trillion dollar infrastructure plan. This new House bill, which would of course have to go to the Senate and then be signed by Biden. This House bill contains money for roads, bridges, highway safety, electric vehicle charging stations, rail transit, drinking and wastewater infrastructure. The Supreme Court today upheld Arizona's new voting rules, new voting, new voter oppression rules is what they should be called. President Biden called today's ruling deeply disappointing. Biden accused the conservative bench of undermining voting rights, the voting rights, he says, that took years of struggle to secure. Conservatives are in the majority on our Supreme Court, and they ruled that Arizona's new voting restrictions do not violate voting rights. These restrictions will prevent anyone other than family members or caregivers from delivering completed early ballots. And it would also not allow ballots cast in the wrong precinct. Opponents of this voting suppression bill say these laws disproportionately affect black, Hispanic and Native American voters. The GOP called this decision a resounding victory for voter integrity. Well, that is what I consider to be some of the news. Coming up, we will talk with Pete Dominic, the host of Stand Up 
with Pete Dominic. But first, let's hear some music from Professor Mike Steinel. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Rolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bello novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket in case I get a chill I'm traveling light got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender a 50 tequila in case I go on a bender my attorney's number in case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light And my expensive wrinkle cream My Emmy statue For my self-esteem I'm traveling light I got my podcast 
podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies I think Bashir Assad's not long for this world either. Looks to me like he's uh, he's on his way out because of the unrest that's been occasioned by his own people inside Syria. He's one of the least popular leaders in that part of the world. It's it's the Middle East, and stuff happens in the Middle East. You know it. You've covered it for years. But you cannot, uh, I don't think you can make a case that the world would be better off today if Saddam Hussein were still in power. So no regrets about Iraq. I think we made exactly the right decisions. That is former Vice President Dick Cheney 10 years ago talking to Wolf Blitzer about two things. Bashir Assad, the current leader of Syria, the civil war had just broken out in Syria 10 years ago. And Dick Cheney was telling Wolf Blitzer and the American people with absolute moral and intellectual certitude that Assad did not have long for this world. He was assuring Wolf Blitzer and CNN that Assad is gone from Syria. Ten years later, he's still there. Wolf Blitzer asks him any regrets about invading Iraq. No regrets whatsoever. I wish I had that kind of moral and intellectual certitude that a man like Dick Cheney possesses. Here's somebody with intellectual and moral certitude, a, a true alpha male. Please welcome my friend, Pete Dominic. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here, David Bell. Thanks for having me. So as you know, we're mourning the, the, the death of Donald Rumsfeld because it didn't happen soon enough. Yeah. Bad guy, Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, terrible guy. One of the architects of the Iraq war. And when you think about, you know, certain people, people are complicated, right? You could, you could say, well, he was a great family man. He was great with his community. And you can point to all the good things a person did. But you measure a person by their entire life, who they helped, you know, what good things they did. And what bad things and what bad things they were responsible for. And, and the architects of the Iraq war and, and Rumsfeld, of course, would have to be one of the top two, three uh, are, are the worst Americans to have ever lived. And it's kind of easy to forget. And a lot of people probably never even knew. So Donald Rumsfeld, uh, you know, destroyed American veterans families and destroyed an entire country with the war in Iraq, which he was fully for. He was a secretary of defense, of course. And, Day after day, he came out and gave press conferences and, and, and lied and obfuscated and, and, and made predictions and promises that never came true. And so did Dick Cheney. The better clip of Cheney to find and play David Feldman is one from 1994. So that was after well, he was secretary of defense during Bush HW. And so it was after the, the Gulf War and before 9-11. And when he was on C-SPAN, he was asked about why they didn't go all the way in the Gulf War and and kill Baghdad. He was asked by David Brinkley, why didn't we go to Baghdad and clean up 
while we were there. And you know what he said, Feldman? He said the exact right thing and the truth. This is what Cheney said. He said, well, this is important, I think, for a president to know when to commit U.S. forces to combat. It's also important to know when not to commit U.S. forces to combat. I think uh, for the, us to get the American military personnel involved in a civil war inside Iraq would literally be a quagmire. Let me go on. This is what he said. This is what Cheney said. Once we got to Baghdad, what would we do? Who would we put in power? What kind of government would we have? Would it be Sunni, Shia, a Kurdish government? Would it be secular along the lines of the Ba'ath Party? Would it be fundamentalistic Islamic? I don't think the United States wants to have U.S. military forces accept casualties and accept the responsibility of trying to govern Iraq. I think that makes no sense at all. Dick Cheney said that in 1994. And then he, of course, became the vice president, and he uh, was the main reason why we went in and invaded Iraq, even though he knew what would happen. It's exactly what he predicted. He and his best friend, Donald Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, the minute the, the, the World Trade Center came down, he was asking George Tenet to find evidence that Saddam Hussein was behind. He said, we, we can't invade Afghanistan. I don't care that Al-Qaeda is in Afghanistan. There are no, it's not target rich. This is what we, we got to go into Baghdad. There are weapons of mass destruction. I, I just know my question to you, this has been relitigated over and over and over again. My question to you is, you point out that Dick Cheney knew not to invade Iraq. He knew that the Sunnis hated the Shiites and that without Saddam Hussein, that thing was just going to blow up not into true. secular warfare. He knew that. Right. But he went in there anyway. Why? Why? I have a strong suspicion that, that, that Dick Cheney is actually human. I, I, a lot of people don't believe that he's human. I believe he is human. And because he's a human, 9-11 shocked him to his absolute core. It was, it was always like silly to me that people thought that the Bush administration, you know, the conspiracy theories around 9-11. No, Dick Cheney was shocked at 9-11 and that it happened on his watch. And then he went and did many interviews and Ron Suskind talked, wrote a whole book called The 1% Doctrine where Cheney mm -hmm. basically said if there's a 1% chance that anybody could ever do something like that again, we would have to stop them, which is a stupid idea. I mean, and it's no foreign policy expert would ever think, no, this is a horrible idea. Uh, and he implemented it anyway, because I think he was so shocked by 9-11 and he was so influenced by the project for the new American century, the neoconservative kind of group that always wanted to invade Iraq, obviously for its oil. And he really thought he maybe things changed. Maybe he thought, you know, didn't no longer believe what he did in 1994. Otherwise, why do it? It was a horrible failure for the Bush administration. And it's the reason why Barack Obama beat John McCain. Yeah, Suskind's book, The One Percent Solution, is amazing. And it's also an indictment of Donald Rumsfeld. It talks about General Shinseki and the Treasury Secretary who warned Rumsfeld, you're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah, that's right. And even if you did have the 300,000 troops that Shinseki suggested, I mean, during that time, during Afghanistan, I, I interviewed so many experts on this, Feldman, so many journalists, so many foreign policy experts, and actual military operators. There's a guy named David Kilcullen, who's an expert on fighting insurgencies, and he's written a lot about it. The U.S. military hired him to advise them. Petraeus brought him in. And the bottom line is nobody ever beats an insurgency. Almost never in the history 
of the world, including in our country. We were the insurgents against the British. The Iraqs were the insurgents against us as they were in Afghanistan, as were the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong. And we lost all of those battles, as would, frankly, any foreign country that came in and tried to occupy America. We have more guns than we do people. Our insurgency would would I mean, there would be no way another foreign country could occupy America. Well, they weren't planning to fight an insurgency. They had no exit strategy. They didn't know what happened after Saddam Hussein fell. They just knew that we were going to get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. They they just figured that the people of Iraq would rise up and install a new leader. It's the the heart. One of the reasons why people turn to conspiracies. One of the reasons why people don't trust certain folks in government is because they can't imagine just how stupid they are. Yes. And there's a lot, there was a lot of really stupid people in the Bush administration that had no business in their jobs. You know, Michael Brown at FEMA, uh, what's his name? Who led the, the Iraqi, uh, uh, Paul Bremer is who I'm thinking of. Um, these people didn't have any business leading, you know, it got worse obviously with, with Trump when he had, you know, Jared Kushner in, in charge of shit, wearing a flak jacket over a suit and tie. I mean, it, it, they're, they had less experience. So they were just that stupid. They really just thought somehow, Let's go back to two things. One, Michael Brown, heck of a job, Brownie, was the scapegoat. There is videotape of his warning President Bush and the head of Homeland Security. This is a Category 5 hurricane, all hands on deck. But because he was feeble-minded, wasn't a player, they, they made it his fault, the Bush administration. But he warned he was the head of FEMA. He warned Bush and uh, oh, anybody could have warned anybody. That's not that's warning. Somebody is great, but actually being able to carry out the job uh, is, is something different. And this guy's right. job before he was the head of the federal emergency management agency. I think he did something with Arabian horses. I mean, he had no So many people had no business being in government and they were given these jobs for as favors, nepotism, whatever. And they made horrible, horrible decisions. And the American people, not, you know, the American public, but the, the veterans families, which is less than 1% of Americans, we, we moved right on. But the people of Iraq have never moved on. And that's why at the end, Bush had a shoe thrown at him. <laughs> right. He went to Iraq to, you know, basically announce the end of the war and, and, and hand over the power. And journalists threw shit at him. They hated him. And us as a result. Okay, conspiracy theories. There are two two explanations for Iraq, which is the worst foreign policy blunder in American history. The worst. It it left at least two million, three million Iraqis dispossessed. About a million Iraqis. Lancet says about a million Iraqis dead from this. This is what Rumsfeld has to live with. This was his idea. He wanted this war and he was absolutely certain that he had the expertise because he had been defense secretary before. He knew how to run the military, lean and mean, and how to go in there and topple Saddam Hussein. The whole Bush administration, they knew how to do it. It was murderer's row. They didn't think about what would happen afterwards. It never occurred to them that there would be an insurgency. And of course, Bremer dismissed uh, 
He sent Saddam Hussein's, he fired Saddam Hussein's elite Republican guard. So they kept their guns and then started killing our soldiers. Nobody anticipated that. Nobody thought about the day after Hussein falls. How can you be that stupid? It does lend itself to conspiracy theories. No, they, I disagree. There's a lot of people told them exactly what would happen. And as I quoted Cheney, he knew what would happen. So you're, you're letting them off the hook by saying no one told them. Lots and lots of military experts. You mentioned Shinseki. The leaders in the military said this is a bad idea. Colin Powell told them this is a bad idea until they twisted his arm and convinced him that there were some kind of weapons. So and why, isn't it, why don't you have a conspiracy theory? Why weren't they serving a larger paymaster if they knew that there was going to be, be an insurgency? Who would that pay? Because there are some things that are true in terms of a lot of people made millions, if not billions right. of dollars. I mean, the no bid contracts that Dick Cheney's friends got, the, the mercenaries, Eric Prince made millions and millions of dollars because, because David, people make huge money off of war. Americans back home selling shitty Humvees that didn't protect the military to everything else. That's why, because they made money off of it for one and, and, and two, because they were arrogant and ignorant. A lot of people I think in the military, military leaders are, we're the, we're the, we're the strongest military in the world. Uh, how are you measuring strength? We get our asses kicked everywhere we go. We should, we're, we're fighting in wars. We have no business fighting. We sent these guys in with, with Humvees that got blown to pieces. We never were able to adapt to insurgency strategies. And here's the most important statistic. This is a recent statistic. That is, is really, if you only care about American lives, I think that's ridiculous. But if you only do care about American lives on military lives, then this statistic should really, really shock you. Last week, and these are hard things to measure, but last week, American veteran deaths from suicide of this generation of, of military members, veterans, exceeded combat deaths. More veterans have taken their own lives than died in war. So it's always been my focus to, to, to focus on military families to try to convince those who are these kind of jingoistic patriotic supporters of the veterans, you know, no matter what, that if you care about them, then you should realize that Don Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, George Bush, and all of the rest destroyed these families, literally destroyed them. They, they have taken their lives and now more people have taken their lives than actually lost in war. And all of them, should burn in hell for that if there were such a thing. This is this is Donald Rumsfeld, 2004 in Kuwait during a town hall. The planning into the war took three years. Well, they had plans drawn up. I'm sorry. They had plans, hypothetical plans drawn up to invade Iraq. They do every other country, but yeah. So he he's doing a town hall in Kuwait with soldiers who are about to go north. Into, you know, by the way, do you know who books that? Just asking. <laughs> They're about to go back into Iraq. The insurgency has started. The improvised explosive devices are killing our soldiers. There's a civil war. And this is that famous town hall in Kuwait where a, a gentleman, I believe he served in the Tennessee National Guard, asked Rumsfeld a question. This is a famous clip. So we've had troops in Iraq for coming on three years. And we've always stayed here out of Kuwait. Now, why do we soldiers have to dig through local landfills for pieces of scrap metal and compromised ballistic glass to up-armor our vehicles? And why don't we have those resources readily available to us? 
Those are some pissed off soldiers in Kuwait about to go into war, cheering a, a soldier standing up to our defense secretary. They were not happy. But, right? Let, let's continue. Me. Yeah, I mean, um, I missed the first part of your question. And, and could you could you repeat it for me? Can you repeat it so I can come up with an answer? Give me some time to think of it. And then I didn't think anybody's going to stand up to me like that. And by the way, you're fired. <laughs> that was awesome. That was, yeah, I remember that. Our soldiers have been fighting in Iraq for coming up on three years. A lot of us are getting ready to move north relatively soon. Our vehicles are not armored. We're digging pieces of rusted scrap metal and compromised ballistic glass that's already been shot up, dropped, busted, picking the best out of this scrap to put onto our vehicles to take into combat. We do not have proper armament vehicles to carry with us north. I talked, I talked to the general coming out here about the pace at which the vehicles are being armored. They have been brought from all over the world, wherever they're not needed, to a place here where they are needed. I'm told that they're being, um, the army is, is, I think it's something like 400 a month are being done. And it, it's, it's essentially a matter of physics. It isn't a matter of money. It isn't a matter on the part of the army of desire. It's, it's a matter of production and, and capability of doing it. As you know, uh, you go to war with the army you have, and not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. Uh, since the Iraq conflict began, the army uh, has been pressing ahead to produce the armor necessary at a rate that they believe, it, it's a greatly expanded rate from what existed previously, but a rate that they believe is, is the rate that is uh, all that can be accomplished at this moment. Uh, I can, I can Amazing. Yeah, that's why, you know, his death is not something that we should mourn. I mean, this is a terrible guy who went to war with a country that had no reason to be at war with. He invaded that country and he sent American men and women to fight unprepared, uh, untrained and unequipped to fight a, a battle they could never have won. And we got romped. And these veterans' families have been destroyed. And because medical, uh, because medical technology has gotten so much better since the Vietnam era, a lot of guys survived injuries that they would have died from, which is great. But that means we have to fund their health care for the rest of their lives. So if they lost their legs in Iraq at age 20, well, we have to take care of them the rest of their life. And they don't even want to do that, Republicans and the people like Rumsfeld. And that's why all of them really are, you know, the worst of the worst Americans, period. The worst of the worst. We have to wrap it up. At least they get some of them get their portrait painted by, by George. George yeah, that's right. I think that's a great consolation prize. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At, at least that uh, we have to wrap it up. I know you have to go, but this is a lesson in not trusting experts. Rumsfeld, Cheney. Well, these are experts and these are the same people who say to innocent people like you and me, hey, you want to save for your kids college? Let me let me show you how to save for your. I would say I, I wouldn't I wouldn't give them the credibility of being experts. You know, foreign policy is not necessarily a science. And, and I think there are a lot. There were a lot of foreign policy experts that were right. 
and 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 thought that war was insane. Let's start with the weapons inspectors. And the problem is that we give we we allow people who are always wrong about foreign policy to continue to have credibility. We invite them on shows. Just you know, even you know, MSNBC. Andrew Mitchell had John Bolton on. That guy should never be invited near a camera or a microphone. But more importantly, I, I feel the problem is. As we look at Donald Rumsfeld dying today at age 88, the, the issue is not about, to me, trusting experts. The issue is it continues to be in America that we don't hold powerful people accountable when they when they destroy our livelihoods and our lives. That's what we need to do. We need to hold people accountable. Obama didn't hold the, hold the torturers accountable or anybody in the, the architects of the war. We're not holding the Trumpies accountable. And that's, you know, more, more than anything else. I think that's our problem, America. We don't hold powerful people accountable and we should. Amen to that. Pete Dominic is the host of stand up with Pete Dominic. Subscribe to it right now. You're the best. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'll talk to you next week. I hope. I hope so. Great job, man. Yeah. I, I, uh, I actually have passion and knowledge on that conflict. I interviewed many people, read many books, got inside a lot of rooms. And so I went to, I went to met I, a, a conservative Republican Congressman named Walter B. Jones who passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, he was the most conservative, one of the most conservative in, in Congress, but he regretted his vote. He uh, was representative of Camp Lejeune. So many of his guys died, Marines. He regretted his vote, thought that Cheney was a war criminal. He brought me to Walter Reed shortly uh, during the war. And I met a whole bunch of guys. Um, I met five, we went to five rooms and none of them had legs. None of them. One of them had one leg. So I had, I had a lot of, I hold a lot of uh, emotion there and, and uh, feelings. So yeah, I'm glad we talked about it. I'm happy to. Thank you. Buck down room. So bye-bye. Thank you.
Constantly announcing his presence. I mean, we kind of know who Donald Rumsfeld is. Did he have to hire these women to <laughs> remind? That was back in 2009. We all knew who Donald Rumsfeld was. We didn't. He didn't need to hire these women to constantly remind us that he was who he was. What is it about celebrity that people? I guess he had 2009. He had no longer been in the public eye since 2004. Five years, and he was afraid everybody had forgotten him. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was even, he was even more insecure than that because it was 2006 when he um, he lost his job as uh, Secretary of Defense after the uh, after the midterm elections. The midterm elections, right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I I actually do think uh, this is the uh, last line of the obituary of Rumsfeld that I just wrote for Jacobin. I do actually think that there, there is a sense in which he, uh, he died too soon, uh, which is, uh, which is this, that, um, even though in 2006, right after, uh, he, uh, uh he lost his job as secretary of defense, uh, there was a, a German, uh, lawyer, uh, named, uh, Wolfgang, uh, Karnick, who, uh, filed a formal criminal complaint against Rumsfeld and several other people, uh, for involvement in torture, you know, torturing criminals. Uh, but of course, uh, the, you know, the world order being the way that it is, uh, Rumsfeld never had to face a day in a courtroom in Germany or anywhere else over those charges. So in that sense, I think he died, he died too soon, you know, that he was never, uh, held legally accountable in, in any way for, uh, the, his, his career of, uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity. Well, it wouldn't be good for the country. Uh, yes, I think it'd be very good for the country. No, it wouldn't be. That's what they tell us. It's not good for the country. It's okay to have thousands of soldiers killed and wounded, and we lose trillions of dollars. But to put these criminals on trial for lying to us about weapons of mass destruction, lying us into the the biggest foreign blunder that this country has ever had it would be bad for the country to make rumsfeld cheney and bush actually pay a price for doing that 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, criminals generally think it would be bad for everybody else uh, if uh, if they had to uh, to pay uh, some sort of price. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Derek Chauvin thought that it would be bad for uh, for policing uh, if uh, if he had to spend any time in prison. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, that if, if we, uh, you know, did a sit down with some mafia don who's just arrested in New Jersey, uh, he would have an elaborate explanation of how bad it was for, you know, for his family family from the larger community uh if uh if you spent time in prison but on the other hand if we want these crimes to be less likely to be repeated in the future uh i would think that having people actually have to suffer some sort of consequence uh would be enormously helpful the argument that trump's lawyer is giving against indicting him is it would be bad for the Trump organization. It would be bad for the business. It's bad for business. Do you really want to hurt? And people could end up losing jobs. We don't want that. So how bad was Rumsfeld? Uh, he was pretty bad. And I think that in order to to make that case, we should actually start um, much earlier than the kind of the, the crimes that those women in the clip uh, were talking about. Uh, and Code Pink, by the way, Medea Benjamin and her army, great, great people, by the way, seriously. Yep. Agreed. Uh, yeah. So I think that, um, you know, so we have to go back to the first time that Donald Rumsfeld was in the White House, which was in the Nixon administration. Uh, he he was originally uh, the Nixon's uh, head of the office. Uh, for uh, for economic uh, opportunity in, in which he he helped to shut it down, you know, to uh, to slash uh, programs that actually did a lot to help uh, poor people. But then he was a general counselor to uh, to the president, uh, which you know, sort of vague but cabinet level uh, position that let him interact with various people in the White House hierarchy regularly. Uh, then he uh, he left in uh, 1973. Uh, he left the White House to be the U.S. ambassador to. Um, uh, to NATO, uh, and uh, and then he uh, he came back in 1974 to head up uh, Gerald Ford's uh, transition team, and then he was Ford's White House chief of staff. So in all these rules that I just I just rattled off uh, for most of the Nixon administration, and then into the Ford administration, he held high level positions within uh, the uh, the White House and NATO uh, throughout uh, the uh, the time that the shooting, dismembering, and literally setting on fire vast numbers of peasants in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Uh, and, and so, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a footnote to Rumsfeld's history. But, I mean, this is already, uh, I think if we applied the same standards uh, that, uh, that we, you know, that we applied at Nuremberg and Kyoto and to, uh, and to various Serbian officials, uh, you know, after, uh, after the conflict in the 1990s, I mean, that alone uh, you know, might, uh, you know, might see him, uh, might have seen him behind bars. But of course, his his greatest personal involvement uh, in crimes against humanity uh, happened after 9-11, you know, when he was, uh, he was once again, Secretary of Defense, the meaningless, stupid little factoid that all of the obituaries in places like CNN and the New York Times include is, oh, he was, didn't you know, he was the youngest person ever to be Secretary of Defense under Gerald Ford, and then he was the oldest person ever become Secretary of Defense under George W. Bush, which, you know, did you know he did so many, you know, he wrote so many memos that they, uh, that they said they were like snowflakes, uh, all of which is the approximate equivalent 
of writing an obituary of um, of Slobodan Milosevic that really gets into like uh, the irrelevant details of his office management style or one of Saddam Hussein that really gets, do you know Saddam Hussein was only 42 years old when he officially became president of Iraq in 1979? Uh, but like, and that in his second run as Secretary of Defense in the 2000s, he had, uh, that was, those were the years that uh, the United States invaded Afghanistan, which became the longest war in American history, is still going on right now. Uh, there was a you know wedding party uh, that was bombed in Afghanistan literally at the end of May uh, that I, I found when I was, I was researching uh, the, uh, the Jacobin piece. Uh, he, uh, he was Secretary of Defense when the United States invaded Iraq. Uh, based, as you said, on lies, but also oh, he was Secretary of Defense when we had the worst attack on U.S. soil in American history, 9-11. Yeah, so, so I mean, if he didn't defend us. Yeah, if you take seriously the idea that job has something to do with defense, then he certainly doesn't have been very good at it. Um, but uh, but yes, uh, and, and the response to, uh, to 9-11 uh, was to first uh, in, invade uh, Afghanistan uh, on the uh, on the grounds uh, that uh, they they weren't uh, they weren't willing to hand over uh, Osama bin Laden, who just to review for you know anybody who's listening to this, you know who who might be you know this is like a decade ago at this point, so this kind of ancient history, but. Osama bin Laden ended up uh, being apprehended in Pakistan, a, a, a U.S. ally, uh, where, you know, without any sort of invasion of the country uh, being necessary. Uh, but that was the original justification. And by the way, if everybody got to play by those rules, that if uh, if a country has harbored terrorists uh, who've uh, who kill people in your country, you know, then you can cluster bomb, invade, and occupy them. Then certainly the Cubans would get to bomb Miami, and uh, and if you look at conflict zones around the world, you know, India, Pakistan, places like that. I mean, there'll be all kinds of wars breaking out all the time. Never mind Iraq, where, as you say, the whole thing was based on lies about weapons of mass destruction. That's extremely well established at this point, but also that even if Saddam Hussein had had weapons of mass destruction, the the legal pretext was, hey, for all we know, he might at some point in the future decide to use these weapons or, you know, share them with Al-Qaeda. Uh, so we have to cluster bomb, invade, and occupy an entire country full of people just in case that ever happens. I mean, really imagine, take a beat and imagine a world where every country got to play by those rules that if somebody else might attack them someday in the future, you can attack them now, you know, just in case, just to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, Rumsfeld uh, was also secretary of defense when the United States started openly uh, using torture uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, and in, uh, in Guantanamo Bay, in black sites in Eastern Europe. Uh, granted, some of that was under the purview of the CIA, not not the uh, Defense Department, but quite a bit of it uh, was under purview of the Defense Department. He's on record about this. There's this. There are there's documentation about. I mean, both his public support for what was called enhanced interrogation technique, or what anybody with a shred of conscience would just call torture. Uh, there there are memos, you know, that that, that he wrote, you know, about uh, about torturing uh, prisoners. This is also, I mean, just to really put this in perspective. Uh, the Lancet, which is a prestigious medical journal that did a peer-reviewed study, uh, showed 
that just in the years between the invasion in 2003 and Rumsfeld's, you know, the year that Rumsfeld uh, left office in 2006, uh, there were uh, 650,000 and change uh, excess deaths uh, in Iraq. You know, in other words, people who would not have died if not for the invasion, whether it was directly from violence or, you know, because of the, you know, of the effect on Iraq's infrastructure of, uh, of, of that happening. Um, that's 2.5% of the people in the, in the entire country. I mean, that's, that's the, the refugees. Yeah. Never mind the millions of people who were displaced and became refugees. Uh, never mind all of the people who, you know, went through the heartbreak of having somebody they know died, who had, uh, who, uh, who had limbs blown off, you know, by bombs, who had to care for people who had limbs blown off by bombs, who they don't get portraits drawn of them by the president. George W. Bush doesn't do portraits of Iraqis who were injured, right? No, no, he, he certainly uh, he certainly does not. Um, and and of course, I mean, this this is I've got to say, by the way, like uh, one of the things that I've, I've found the most revolting about the last uh, four years or so, because uh, the you know, the effects of of uh, of Donald Trump on American uh, partisan realignment has been that anybody from the Bush administration who who decided to, to say a bad word uh, about Donald Trump uh, immediately, you know, became a, uh, a resistance hero and was and was completely rehabilitated and forgiven for for right. everything. I mean, all of my liberal friends were sharing on social media articles by David Frum, who literally wrote the axis of evil speech. Uh, that you know that that justified uh, the um, you know the war in Iraq and the uh, saber rattling about you know about Iran and uh, and and North Korea uh, and you know there are you know Bush- Jill Crystal who has a home now on MSNBC he wrote the invasion he Pinak he wrote the blueprint for the invasion yeah, the project project for a new American century uh that uh you know was was the neoconservative uh initiative to uh to advocate uh for the exact policies uh that his his co-thinker rumsfeld his co-thinker dick cheney very you know i don't know that bush had thoughts uh so you know that i I think you know applying thinker there might be might be wrong but you know that the uh, but he was certainly willing to listen to all of these guys uh, and after 9/11 that's that's what he did. I mean that was that was the response. I think that I think that Cheney uh, was the one who had uh, there's the the note uh, from his uh, one of the immediate administration conclaves right after 9/11 that uh, Bob Woodward uh, reports in one of his books uh, where he wrote in the margin, you know, his notes for the meeting, uh, go massive, sweep up everything related or not, uh, which is, of course, what all of these these ghouls did. I mean, none of those people in Iraq uh, had anything to do with 9-11. Uh, even Saddam Hussein, as bad as he was, had nothing to do with 9-11, had nothing to do with al-Qaeda. I mean, al-Qaeda hated uh, secular dictators like him. Uh, they and and certainly you know uh, the the Taliban um, you know was uh, sheltering Al Qaeda although they were they did make offers to possibly turn over Bin Laden to a third party or you know well, really- as I remember reading our military uh, uh, I think the CIA had Osama bin Laden in the crosshairs immediately after 9 eleven. 
Yeah. And Rumsfeld said, no, we get the kill. He wanted the, the Defense Department to capture Osama bin Laden. And they called off the CIA, which within like a month of 9-11 knew exactly where Osama bin oh, Laden. And, and, I mean, and I think that there might be, you know, I mean, given the circumstances under which bin Laden was killed, uh, that he that, you know, he wasn't where. We had been told that he likely was for all the years before that, that he was off in a, uh, uh, he was off in like a, a remote cave somewhere, you know, where he, I guess that had an electrical outlet for his dialysis machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, that, you know, that instead he, uh, he was, he was in a, a comfortable apartment, uh, you know, very close to the Pakistani equivalent to, uh, uh, to, to West point. So, I mean, it, it does, um, it does kind of beggar belief that at the very least the Pakistani security forces didn't know he was there. I mean, bluntly, it, it you know, superficially rest than, yeah. uh, than anything else. And if the, uh, if the United States didn't know he was there, that was, you know, criminally incompetent. Um, but um, regardless of what, of what might or might not be true about that, what we know for sure is that, uh, that the, minimum of several hundred thousand human beings who, who died, uh, uh, in, uh, you know, in Iraq and, you know, and, and then also you add on the smaller numbers from Afghanistan, the millions of people who lost their homes, you know, that, um, hardly any of them. I mean, there's, you know, it's a, a, a vanishingly tiny percentage of any of them had anything to do with, uh, with international terrorism or, or anything that had been done in New York or Washington, DC, uh, or, uh, or Pennsylvania. I mean, they were, they were going about their lives and, uh, and, and even the, uh, you know, even the with the ones in Afga- Afga- Afghanistan, I'm pretty sure that like, uh, like goat herds in, uh, in rural Afghanistan weren't being consulted uh, by the uh, by the Taliban about their foreign policy or extradition you know practices uh, any more than you know you or I are, are consulted by the State Department about whether to um, you know extradite you know people who commit bombings and assassinations in Cuba or elsewhere. So he not only sold the war in Iraq, he wanted to invade Iraq immediately after 9-11, like the the tower was coming down and he was saying to the CIA and his own intelligence agency, find out whatever you have that links Saddam Hussein to this, even if it's thin, just I want it all. And Tenet, the the head of the CIA, said to him, Al-Qaeda is in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Donald Rumsfeld on 9-11 said, I know that, but it's not target rich. Iraq is target rich. Find proof that Saddam Hussein was behind this. Yeah. The war, that's just, that's criminal in every. No, it, it, it absolutely, it absolutely is. Uh, and, and I think that like the real justification for, um, you know, for these, these wars, uh, since which, you know, manifestly did nothing to, um, again, it's less safe, made us less safe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, there's no, every single time that somebody is arrested, uh, for, you know, that, that there's, there's some, um, there's, there's, there's some like, 
lonely, mentally ill Muslim person who's arrested for a bombing plot uh, and they actually get their day in court, uh, you know, that they were going to set off a bomb in Times Square. They were going to do this or that every single time. Uh, if you actually look at the transcripts, you know, when they get their day in court, they always say that the reason that they did it was to avenge the deaths of people who were killed in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere. You know, that's what they always say. Now, maybe they're all lying, although I would think that the whole point of terrorism is to publicize your goals. And it'd be a very strange right. thing to do to lie about your motivations. Uh, but I think the real you know, motivation uh, for, for these wars is very well expressed um, by uh, by by two people, if I can just read these these, these quotes I was looking at from uh, 2002. Uh, so uh, Jonah Goldberg at the uh, at the National Review, who quoted his friend, the neoconservative Michael Ledeen, uh, who uh, uh, who who said this. Um, he said it in the 90s, but Goldberg was quoting it in 2002 to justify invading Iraq um, in the National Review. Here's what he says. Every 10 years or so, the United States needs to pick up some small, crappy little country and throw it against the wall just to show the world uh, that we mean business. Uh, and that's um, very similar to what Thomas Friedman wrote in, uh, in the New York Times, uh, uh, you know, the same, uh, you know, the same year. Uh, he, um, he said uh, that he liked it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that was the, that was to Charlie Rose, but yeah, the same sentiment in his New York Times column. Uh, the Charlie Rose thing was uh, was was suck on this, right? You know uh, that, uh, and and he said in the New York Times uh, that the um, he liked the fact that the Bush administration's warmongering was so unpredictable uh, because this sent a really useful message to what uh, Friedman referred to as these countries and their terrorist pals. And this is the message. These are Friedman's words. Uh, Friedman says the message is, we know what you're cooking in your bathtubs. We don't know exactly what we're going to do about it. But if you think we're just going to sit back and uh, take another dose from you, you're wrong. Meet Don Rumsfeld. He's even crazier than you are. So wow. that's the message. And what the craziness got us is uh, craziness is millions of people uh, killed, injured, or displaced. Uh, we, uh, we got, uh, you know, 20 years, uh, you know, especially the 18 since the invasion of Iraq of regional instability that led to things like the rise of ISIS uh, and, and is, is still, I mean, that, that, that bloody hole that, uh, that, the, uh, that Bush and Rumsfeld uh, punched uh, you know, in the Middle East in 2003 is is still giving rise to all sorts of indirect effects, spiraling chaos. Um, and uh, and and absolutely. I mean, if, if anybody ever does, you know, like I don't think I remember there's a lot of fear mongering about this at the time. I think that the uh, technical experts tell us that you can't actually um you know, that like a suitcase nuke doesn't make sense. You can't actually like, you know, transport nuclear material that could actually like result in a mushroom cloud and something that small. But man, if anybody ever does figure out how to build a suitcase nuke and, uh, and, and put, you know, explodes in Times Square, there is like a 100% chance that it's going to be somebody who was like driven to that kind of bloodthirsty anger, you know, by all of the people that Bush and Rumsfeld and all these ghouls uh, you know, murdered and maimed and displaced, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Before you go, we're talking with Professor Ben Burgess. He's the author of Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. And he's a columnist for Jacobin. He teaches at 
perimeter college and hosts give them an argument. It's an honor to have this man on the show. I'm always amazed at these people like Dick Cheney. This is 10 years ago. They asked Wolf Blitzer 10 years ago as Dick Cheney about Syria. And this yeah. is what Dick Cheney said 10 years ago. Well, I, you know, I think Bashir Assad's not long for this world either. It looks to me like he's uh, he's on his way out because of the unrest that's been occasioned by his own people inside Syria. He's one of the least popular leaders in that part of the world. It's it's the Middle East, and stuff happens in the Middle East. You know it. You've covered it for years, but you cannot. So stuff happens in the Middle East. There you go. Ten years ago, he told us that Bashar Assad would be gone because of the civil war. Yeah started 10 years ago and he says it with such conviction i heard i will wait is bashar assad he must be gone dick cheney said he isn't gonna last where is bashar assad these days it's still president of syria oh really which um, right about anything i don't know uh um yeah I mean, he, he certainly uh, he certainly doesn't have a good uh, a good track record. I mean, his predictions about what would follow the invasion of Iraq uh, were not very good. Uh, you know, his his uh, you know his beliefs about uh, what was going to happen in the civil war in Syria, you know, certainly uh, certainly didn't pan out. But what really hits me about that clip uh, is that the guy who did more than anything. Uh, to uh, to engineer uh, these these bloody wars that have caused so much you know chaos and instability uh, in the Middle East. Uh, just the flippancy of that. You know, stuff happens in the Middle East. You know, that's that's that's, that's like I mean that's that's great. when Dick Cheney's vice president. Yes, a lot Donald more Rumsfeld stuff happens with Dick Cheney, with Dick Cheney in office. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Ben Burgess is. A brilliant man. Uh, he teaches philosophy at Perimeter College, columnist for Jacobin. He has a great podcast that you can listen to or watch on YouTube, give them an argument. And his latest book is Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. Thank you, Professor. All right. Thank you, David. You didn't do it right. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> Thank you, comedian. <laughs> It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. To tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Thank you.
There we go. Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Mm. And you're making the mistake of your life by listening to David Feldman Show. Dot com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. This Friday night at 8 p.m., office hours and hours, 24 hours of office hours. You know it's the beginning of a new month when office hours goes 24 hours. We start at 8 p.m. Eastern on Friday night, and we go till 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m., Eastern on Saturday night. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com right now. Hit office hours and it'll send you a link and you're in and you'll get to meet some really interesting people. A lot of teachers, musicians, comedians and activists stop by and we have lectures planned and all that kind of stuff. So please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and uh, hit the the office hours button and let's talk let's meet and while you're over there please sign up for my my newsletter which we send out sporadically this is just coming in from the washington post billionaires race space virgin galactics richard branson now set to beat blue origins bezos into space with all that's going on in the world, right? They're uh, competing to see who can who can get into space first. Uh, the billionaire space race. This is from Christian Davenport in the Washington Post. The billionaire space race is heating up. Richard Branson is set to get his long-awaited trip to space as early as July 11th, flying on a suborbital mission that will allow him to beat Blue Origins' Jeff Bezos, who is scheduled to fly on his company's spacecraft nine days later. I don't know if you saw this, but Bezos will be flying with, uh, I think she's an 80-year-old woman who was part of the Mercury space program in the early 60s. They weren't allowing women to fly, though, and Jeff Bezos is giving her a chance to uh, go into outer space that's the good news. The bad news is she has to sit next to Jeff Bezos and his flatulent brother. I don't know if it's worth it. When we come back, I hope we'll be back. We will talk to Dan Frankenberger and find out what's going on with our community. Welcome back to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Say it like it is. That was a shit show. Thank you. That's Dana Bash reviewing my show. Say it like it is. That was a shit show. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Are you there, sir? Yes, I am. Hello, David. 
Let's go to the newsroom where Dan Frankenberger is standing by. I believe the David Feldman show is your beat. Is that correct? That is the truth. You scour the nation looking for people who are part of the David Feldman show community and you cover what they're doing. And there's been a lot of activity. Are you excited about uh, office hours and hours? I can't wait. It's going to be great. The The most recent news coming out of the, the Feldman universe is David destroys Ben Burgess again on, on uh, the first show of July. It, it's kind of uh, unfair to him that, that I do that. Uh, you know, his whole thing is arguing and I'm an amateur and yet I get into the arena with him and he can barely move afterwards. It's when there's strategies um, for titling YouTube videos in verses is a, is oh, a, really a top and um, destroys. Oh, so I OK. Say, I might just might suggest David Feldman versus Ben Burgess destroys Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> I, I like that. I like <laughs> that. <good. laughs> uh, well, when, once in a while, we have office hours and hours, right? 24 hours of office hours. Yeah, it's a long one. It's good. Yeah. It often goes that way anyhow. Whether or not <laughs> I wanted to. <laughs> uh, how are things in, uh, well, let's see, now you're wearing an interesting scarf. Uh, what, what is that? Did your wife buy that for you? Uh, my wife. My wife. And my... My wife, um, I've never said this publicly, but my, my son is trans. Great. And he's gay. So my wife, my trans son, and his gay boyfriend bought me a bunch of stuff for Father's Day. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. That's Great. I love the way you look. And uh, I asked for douchebag clothes. And they're like, here's a whole pile from. from <laughs> they said, open up your closet. And- <laughs> <laughs> That's all your douchebag. <laughs> How old is your How old is your son? Uh, Twenty. Twenty. That's fantastic. Yep. It's, it's a great time to be alive. As bad as things are, uh, we are. I'm so grateful that you and your son and your all of us live in in the 21st century. There are things that things are getting better in many ways. So uh, don't. Hundred years. Hundred years ago, it would have been a lot worse. Don't be disheartened. They want you to feel defeated and feel that nothing can be done. Things are getting better. Our, you know, we expect more, so things don't feel like they're you know, getting better, but they are getting better just in time for the global climate change apocalypse. <laughs> and so when we all burn to a crisp, we can say, hey, you know what, except for this, and we were this close to Medicare for all. Let's, uh, but you know, <laughs> let us now, if I can find it, we have a community billboard. We have some pictures. I believe that you want to show us if I can find them. And I also think we have some, uh, some work from the Invisible Ninja and we have work from the brilliant uh, Tom Weber. I hope he stops yep. by today. Okay, let us now go to Rochester. Oh, Rochester. Uh, uh, Well, hang on, we have to do your... Hang on, you're talking over your... uh, 
opening montage. This is Tom Weber. Oh, you can't hear me. Hang on. Oh, you, you didn't. You can't hear me. Uh, I can hear you now. Okay, hang on. Everything's a mess. Now you can hear me, right? Yes, I can. Can you hear the music? Yes. So everything's working. Everything's working. Okay. For those of you, anyway, let's move on. So, okay, I can't. <laughs> All right. Oh, what happened there? Whoa. This is a, a, a picture that Tom Weber painted, right? Let me see if I can guess who it is. Okay. Uh, we were just, did he write waiting for good? Is this Tom? Is this Beckett? It's, it's not anyone in particular. Oh. It's just a random, he just called it the profile of a man. He said this was initially done from a semi-blind contour line drawing. Then he added some shading with a pencil. And that's a reason why it looks very stylized. It's beautiful. So it's beautiful. He should be on the show today. I, you know, uh, I, get so I get so caught up with stuff that I, have, I forget what's going on. Like, I didn't even realize how many songs Professor Mike Steinell had written for yeah. for us it, it just six or seven months ago he was telling us it was like he was on number 17 so we gotta be at I know. 25 or 30. i know i know here's another is this another tom weber yep this looks is, like this a Cezanne. Uh, this looks like a Cezanne. from his website tomweberart.com where he's, he sells his artworks you can go check it out over there if you like it and uh, he says this is just a watercolor study of an apple well wow. that and it's gorgeous it is beautiful. And this looks like it's Glenn Caustic. Yep, I got one picture from uh, Glenn today in this past week on Facebook. Now, your, your connection is a little been off. posting um, these ground stopper bottles. Okay, your, your connection's bad today, Dan. Must be the heat. Dan? Oh, sh oh, shit. Yep. F. All right. Uh, oh, boy. That's all right. It's the heat. Yeah. And, we're, and we're together. That's all that matters. We're all together. You got 14 minutes to kill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so these, <laughs> these are... Glenn Caustic is brilliant. Look at that. Yeah, they're ground, ground stopper bottles, he calls them. He's got pictures of like 40 or 50 of them up there this week that, that wow. he and a family member made. It's like and he doesn't sell any of these. He, he sells some, but he just doesn't, he doesn't have an online presence. He's, Why don't we break into his home? Time. Do you know where he lives? Let's just, let's just start robbing people who come to uh, the Zoom room. Okay. You're, you're frozen. I am. Now, now you're okay. What is you're this? Frozen. You're okay. Uh, is this Stephen Miller, former advisor to Donald Trump? Who's this? <laughs> a couple hours ago, I went and lifted the hood of my lawnmower because bees build nests under there once in a while, and I have to yes. sweep them out. And this tree frog was sitting on top of the gas tank. The vocalists to Office Hours. He's, he's the lead vocalist on Office Hours. Is this the guy who sings? Yep. He looks friendly. That's he looks like he looks like a, he looks like a happy guy. Could you touch him? Could you pick him really up? Camouflage colors. That 
sometimes, yeah, I've picked a few up and <laughs> croak right in my hand. <laughs> Did you ever lick That's a toad? Good. No, I've not licked them. Uh, you know, you know what happens when you lick a toad. Yeah, I've, I've heard of it, but I don't remember. Why don't you tell me? You get a raging hard on. Whoa. And they say well, you can also get high, but that's not why. <laughs> but lick it. <laughs> that's why I storm in a lawnmower. So before I before I cut the grass, I can just lick them real quick. And, uh... <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, now, where is this from? That looks delicious. Is that the work of Sarah Bush? Sarah and Hannah. My a, daughter. A picture from over the weekend when they did shop camp. Right. Where uh, Sarah and Hannah and Andy and Dave all met up and uh, got some Feldoverse work done. So Hannah and Sarah were making a bunch of pies in the morning, and this this is one of them. They had a pie off. This was this was to me. You have a, a child. This was the culmination of office hours. The, the, because I always say it's not real until you make actual connections. We've been doing office hours for a little more than a year. And I've said to everybody on Friday night, this isn't real until you connect with other people. And people have gone out and connected. And my daughter discovered office hours, what, about three months ago. And she's like a kid in a candy store and she's meeting everybody. She went out to Dave and PA's farm in upstate Pennsylvania. Yeah, Millerton, I think it might have been. In Millerton. And Sarah Bush and Andy Brown drove out for Hammer and Sickle. They did a special production that they do on Discord and here uh, on the David Feldman show. Uh, what do we call it? The Office Hours something something. Yeah, I don't even know if we've really named it yet. That's, yeah. Has referred to as the Feldoverse. Anyway, they, uh, my daughter came back to New York. She said she, she milked a cow for the first time, and she played with a chicken, and she had sex with her brother. I didn't even know she had one. I guess that's what you do on a farm, right? It's just, hey. You have sex with your brother. I'm sorry. That's just, I panicked. You bite, I saw, out, of, you, you bite out a piece of straw and whatever happens. Uh -huh. happens. <laughs> uh, anyway, that is a beautiful, and what was in the pie? Um, inside that pie was blueberries with ground cherries. Now, my daughter makes an amazing vegan pie because she's a vegan, and you cannot tell it's vegan. What do we have here? What is this? This is a, a Bernie. This is a car with is that a lathe it's not a lathe it's from the same trip um part of the the shop talk part of that uh, weekend was dave and pa and andy uh, replacing the blades on a jointer wow so that's a, a woodworking tool where you, you pass the, the piece of wood over it and take some material off the face and uh yeah that's part of the gig and the show that they were doing is just showing us how to replace the blades and making sure it's lined up right and calibrating it. it was It's fantastic. <laughs> That's it's, Andy throwing it in his trunk to bring it home. It's, it's awesome. power. It, it really is power. The ability to, to fend for yourself, to make your own furniture, repair your own property, it's power. And the, the next level is repairing your own tools that do that. Now, awesome. why do I think I'm being mocked here? <laughs> You're not being mocked. This is, is from it? Joe in Norway. Prior to him riding his bike up to watch the huge bonfire, uh, earlier uh, from our perspective in the morning, 
he did a segment where he showed us the, a good way to chop up a melon. And he writes, I demonstrated how to properly carve up a freshly imported Mar-a-Lago cantaloupe. <laughs> oh, that's why it has a toupee. I and serve with lemon sumac and fresh mint, which the next yeah. picture is the result, the result of um, how he cut it up. Wow. And look at it, the mountains. Where is he in Norway? I'm not sure. That is, we, we should move to Norway. That sounds good. Glenn Costick has I was, I was here raised. watching him do this, and the, the technique he does is awesome. It works great for pineapples. You cut a little bit off the top and bottom so it's standing up, and then you do like a radius cut down the sides. Right. And then, and then you can work, work the fruit. Glass blower Glenn Costick raised his hand. Here's our plan, Dan. In August, we break into Glenn's house, steal all the glass, fence it, and then fly to Norway. Shit. You got it. I, do we have a, a cartoon from the Invisible Ninja? Yep, there it is. It's a little. Oh, here we go. Women want to be with me. Guys want to be like me, and women want to be with me. Life sucks, and there's nothing to be grateful for. Absolutely nothing. And they're gout. Yeah, I hate black people. And I'm not so keen on the Jews, women, the LGBTQ community, and the Hispanics. Oh, my God. Everything I hold dear. This is worse than the Holocaust. Now I have to invest an hour of my life on the phone. All right. Uh, let, me, let me explain something just so, because uh, most people are listening to this. That is a cartoon using real audio that the Invisible Ninja did, and it's fantastic. It, it's amazing. But it's a minute... <laughs> of sound with no visuals. So to my listeners, I apologize. We have to talk to the Invisible Ninja about how to make this uh, appealing to our listeners. It's visually stunning. It's it's, it's right. amazing. It's amazing. Well, we it's, have it's another reason to go sign up to go sign up for David's YouTube channel. So definitely go get that done. And Invisible Ninja, you can catch him on Twitter. And I think you can you can watch this. Uh, cartoon. Let's and play. Handle is at people's comic underscore. We have five minutes to kill. Is uh, Ian here? Ethan, are you here? Hello. Hello, David. We're going to play a little Hello, game. David. You ready to play our new game? I'm always ready to play a game. I okay. love games. I have a new game. How much are they worth? You ready to play this? this yes. Is, I've, I've, I've set this up just in case. <laughs> we have extra time. How much are they worth? You ready? You go first. Dan, unmute yourself. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld joins us. You can play this game, too. Let me get the sound effects here. Hang on. Can you can you hear that? Yes. OK, let's put fifty dollars in the kitty. And our first question is. Hang on. 
All right, here we go. How much are they worth? President Biden is worth. We'll give this to uh, Dan Frankenberger. How much is President Biden worth? Seven million dollars. Seven million dollars. Uh, Ethan Hershenfeld, higher or lower? Higher, for sure. Dr. Hershenfeld, higher or lower? I don't understand the question. Are you asking his net worth or if you sold him in the market, how much is he worth? <laughs> that is, oh man, I just got dizzy. Uh, how much is, how much, not in the market, but how much is, what is his net worth? Uh, so what did you say, Dan? I said seven million. You said seven one, million. Ethan Hershenfeld, you 1. said one point seven. You say one point seven million. Yeah. And uh, I say about twelve, twelve million. OK, the correct answer is. An estimated eight million dollars. Okay. The president of the United States is worth $8 million. And Dan, you said seven? That's correct. Ethan, you said higher. Yeah. So you get two cents. Next question. Well, we, so we're playing by prices, right? Rules? I, I don't know. I'm just trying to kill time before the Hershenfeld show up. Next oh. question. They're not coming tonight. They're not coming tonight? No, they're not. Oh, boy. All right. Okay. Oh, how much is Vice President Harris worth? Well, she's a lawyer, so she's got to be worth more. Well, we'll ask Dr. Hershenfeld. How much do you think Vice President Harris is worth? Eighteen million. Eighteen million dollars. Ethan, higher or lower? I'm going to say lower. Lower. And Dan Frankenberger, higher or lower than eighteen million dollars? Even lower than Ethan's lower. Okay. The correct answer is. $7 million. So, Dan, you get two cents, and Ethan, you get two cents. Here we go. We're learning a lot today. Next question. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, she used to head the Federal Reserve, and Attorney General Merrick Garland are both worth the same amount of money. Ethan Hershenfeld, how much uh, are Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, former head of the Federal Reserve, and Attorney General Merrick Garland worth? I'm going to say $2 million. $2 million. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom, higher or lower? Lower. You say lower than because they because they've dedicated their life to public service. I agree with you, Dr. Yeah. Philip Hershenfeld, the Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary Janet Yellen, and Attorney General Merrick Garland. Why is a purportedly socialist-leaning program spending so much time on people's net worth? Because I think we 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 need to be more forgiving of our leaders, especially our democratic leaders, and show that they are the salt of the earth, that they are people who relate to our needs. So that when we have a treasury secretary, she, I, I think, how much did you say she's worth, Ethan? 
Two, two million. Two million. I, I bet it's lower. She's a Democrat. Attorney General Merrick Garland, I bet he doesn't have a, a pot to piss in because he's a man of the people. Lower Actually, than two million? 12, 12 million each. You think they're both worth 12? But they'd be Republicans if they were yeah. worth 12 million. The correct answer is $20 million. They're each worth $20 million. Wow. They're each worth $20 million. Okay. Because they, they spend a few years at these law firms where when they become a partner, they just start raking in the dough. They have a few years of raking in millions a year, and then you make wow. a few investments, and uh, boom. So you said lower or higher? Dan. I said lower. I lost. I lost. You, and Dan, what did you say? I said lower. And Dr. Hershenfeld. Okay, next question. Who is the poorest member of the Biden cabinet? Bernie. <laughs> He's not on the cabinet, which is know. interesting. I say it's got to be Buttigieg just because he hasn't had enough years to accumulate a lot of wealth. You say Buttigieg. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Dan, who do you think is the poorest member? It's it's not good for the game, but I'm going to agree with Ethan. He's you think so it's Buttigieg? Yeah. And Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, who do you think is the poorest member? Barley Granger. <laughs> from from Strangers on a Train. Yes, the, the correct answer is Interior Secretary Deb Holland, who has no net worth. I mean, that is a Democrat, you know. Okay, next question. The average cabinet member in the Biden administration is worth how much? Dr. Hershenfeld, what would you think the average cabinet member of Joe Biden's cabinet is worth? million. 6.4325. Ethan, higher or lower? I'm going to say 4 million. So lower, 4 million. Ethan says lower at four. And Dan Frankenberger. I'm saying even lower than that. I was thinking like two and a quarter million. I would say very low. They're Democrats. They would be Republicans. If, if they were, they can't, the average net worth of Joe Biden's cabinet, he's middle-class Joe. He, middle-class Joe, that means you're in debt. Okay, the average net worth of Joe Biden's cabinet is $7 million. $7 million. Uh, and Dr. Hershenfeld did very well. You said six point four. Three, two million. You, you, that's pretty amazing. Taxes. You nailed it. You nailed it. That's unbelievable. Well, that's surprising. And the last question is Donald Trump's cabinet was worth when you add up his entire cabinet. If you add up their money, what, what do you think? Can I ask you a question I should I should know? How many members of the cabinet are there? Like 12? I don't I would say something like that. So so that, so we're saying the, the Biden cabinet is worth about, let's say, 80, 90 million. So we're going to have to say that the Trump cabinet had probably like 250 million. 
$250 million. You, you say- I'm going to change that. I'm going to say 500 million, half a billion. Half a billion dollars. Okay, Dr. Hershenfeld, what do you think Donald Trump's cabinet was well, worth? Since Donald Trump's cabinet, they're probably all lying about their net worth. I agree. But, but, but let's, let's say- Six hundred and sixty million dollars. Six hundred and sixty million dollars. Dan Frankenberger, what do you think Donald Trump's cabinet was worth? I really have no idea, but with all, all the news about him grabbing his uh, billionaire cronies, I'm going to say two billion. Two billion. The average, no, the total. I'm sorry. Total. The, the total of Donald Trump's cabinet, their net worth all added up is. billion dollars six billion dollars wow kind of interesting yeah, that's a hundred times a hundred times i believe if i'm doing the math right about a hundred times the the net worth of biden's cabinet so that's uh where the biden cabinet is poor comparatively you added up six billion dollars kind of uh dr philip hershenfeld is a freudian psychoanalyst his son, Ethan, has a special that you can now watch on YouTube. It is called Thug Thug Jew, and he is an amazing comedian, as well as a, an accomplished opera singer in a previous life. Yeah, in a previous life. Yeah, yeah. I, I was and, and, uh, and an actor tomorrow night. Don't miss. Don't miss the season finale of Emergency Call on ABC TV. You can hear me as caller. What time is that premiere? I think it's a nine o'clock. It's the finale. So uh, it's an ABC TV show. It's it's real. It's reality TV, but they have to get actors to redo some of the uh, some of the callers for legal reasons. So you can hear me calling in uh, in the in the midst of an emergency. <laughs> it was not it was not hard for me because I'm one of those people who frequently finds himself in the middle of emergencies. Right. Like uh, the dial is frequently turned up to 10 when I'm just going through my day. So uh, that are was you, an easy acting gig for me. Dr. Hershenfeld, are you are you going to watch? Um, I would like to watch. <laughs> <laughs> that was a no. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's um, talk. Let's talk about money for a second. We just did. Well, I want to ask you about uh, Freud and toilet Freud. training. The way you're toilet trained, does that inform your the way you view money he claims i would tell you that in our household all the professor anley wrote in the chat room only when it comes to pay toilets i was gonna say yeah we we had a in our family it was just a the saying was a penny a poop, a penny a poop. <laughs> Every poop, they would give you a penny. Uh, and so there was the association between uh, going to the bathroom and money was very strong in our family because it was, it was a strict ratio. And it was not it was not tied to the to the U.S. dollar. It was its own, it was its own currency. It, it, it was floated. You're saying it was float. They floated it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, in all seriousness, what I was I think I read this when I was very young, that if your parents shamed you, then you you're 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 
you <laughs> became cheap and you 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 were tight with a buck. And if your parents welcomed your first offering to the world, you became profligate. And what, what did Freud say, Dr. Hershenfeld? That, that's much too formulaic, so uh, that cannot be true. However, there is plenty of evidence that um, money and shit are <laughs> equivalent and stand for each other in the unconscious, in dreams, in the way people handle them. Uh, so, yes, there is something to that. There is a relationship between money and fundament. Yes, in, in the unconscious and, and in... Uh, slang and an everyday behavior and um, you know this this is not such a big stretch to get your mind around it is for me well look at you okay. <laughs> Ethan so people yes. would be ashamed of their money mm. but oh. they're also proud of their money they, they also say look at Look at how um, but no, is anybody proud of their fundament? You know, it's funny. I heard a, a comedy bit on Sirius yesterday. It was Patrice O'Neill doing a, uh, he was just talking to the audience at one point and he got someone in the audience to admit that they don't work at all. But then he said, so you're rich. And the person said, no, no, I'm comfortable. And he riffed on the idea that people are very ashamed of being rich. So there is that if someone is rich, they just do not say no one will will describe themselves as rich. So there is something to it. There is shame associated with money, although that might not be that Freudian notion of the connection to defecation. It could just simply be being afraid of getting robbed, <laughs> or being afraid of having your house you know, stormed or, or uh, uh, during the revolution being sent off to the reeducation camp. So. But yeah, there certainly is some shame around around the money thing. Um, I had a boss who was obsessed with money and he was flatulent and he liked and he liked us to have to put. And so is is that real? What is, business? What business? What, what sort of, <laughs> I'm curious. What, when you say boss, where were you working? I was working at a bean factory and uh, he was very, and he owned it and he was proud of he. I, I can remember. I always thought, but see, I didn't understand this. I always thought it was a power thing. Like he was challenging us to see what we'd be willing to put up with. But it's about, you're saying that it's, he's proud of his money. He, he, did, he had no shame about how wealthy he was and uh, had no shame about his uh, flatulence. Coincidence. But here's the thing, David. Um, your explanation may be the correct one, that it's about power. And that's why you can't just guess what these things mean. Right. It's all extremely individualistic. Right. Right. You know, what means that? No. Yeah. It could yeah, mean exactly. that. It, it could mean. Could so, mean. It yes. could mean. Right. I, I was talking to uh, someone I think just yesterday about the, you know, as a dog owner, we have three dogs. So we spend quite a bit of time picking up 
picking up poop. And someone said how different it is to pick up another dog's poop. That that's just not that that's not a <laughs> but, but I don't. It's disgusting. It's somebody I else's. I I don't agree. I mean, I've had a bag in my hand when someone else is shorthanded and whatever, and I'm walking dog. I'm happy to pick up. Poop is poop. The idea that you somehow have less less disgust with another dog owner's uh, with, with your own, and I, I find that ridiculous. But the one thing where I I will say it is it is noteworthy if you find the turd later enough. It, if it's lost its body heat, so a cold turd, that's a disturbing thing to pick up. So. I don't know why that is, but um, that was my nickname in the in the eighties at singles Cole bars. Colter, hey, the Colter arrived. All right, so is this innate? Again, we're we're not. I don't want to ask you to make sweeping generalizations. Is shame when it comes to going to the toilet? or masturbation, is that innate or is that cultural? Because when I was growing up, my father told me about the birds and the bees and told me that masturbation is necessary, that, that never be ashamed of masturbating, that it's healthy, it's good for you, just do it you know, privately, but never have any shame about masturbation and well, you were very fortunate to have an enlightened father and yet and yet i find it shameful of course so is it innate it must be it sh so for me it was i, I was and and so going to the bathroom we have doors we have doors but sometimes we don't have doors i went to a high school <laughs> where they didn't have doors. What, 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 what was going on there? What was that about? That's ridiculous. I, th I don't think they trusted us. I see. Yeah. And we were expected to go in flagrante. Huh. So it, it's, it's very old. It says in Genesis, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, that they recognized that they were naked and they were ashamed. So it's it's really old, and it's uh, it's a question whether this is cultural or innate, and probably a little both. My theory is because you look, there's certain people, Louis C.K. There's certain people who have no problem exposing themselves who are not ashamed, but he's got other problems. I would assume that the people who rise to the top do so either because they're violent or they work extra hard because they're not proud of their bodies. That they have to, they, they have, the only way they're gonna get somebody to wanna have sex with them because they have, they, 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 they have low, self-esteem when it comes to their bodies is I'm going to be powerful and they become powerful. And then because they determine what's acceptable, they indoctrinate everybody to be ashamed of their bodies. So nobody can see that the emperor has no penis. That's my theory. Does that make any sense? 
it's, it's very complicated. That, that shame, like, uh, shame for our bodies is dictated by little dictators. That's no, no. I feel like there's something there, and uh, like in certain cases, like Harvey Weinstein type. So, right. Hey, by the way, I just noticed where I'm standing today. There's a photo of me and you, and you uh, when I was a little baby on on your back at the Bronx Zoo. Can I show this to you? I remember that photo. David, is that a... Sure. This is, this is radio. It's weird. There are no child animals, though, right? Because <laughs> we're not allowed to show any children. There's a curious element wow. to this photo. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Look at the curious element to the photo there. There's a guy in the middle. This is in the Bronx Zoo in about 1968. There's... Or 69. That guy looks definitely like he's in the CIA. Look that's my body, that's my bodyguard. I'm not <laughs> anywhere without him. You Look at that guy. He definitely is a he's definitely uh -huh. CIA. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, there it is. I wanted to share that. It looks French. It looks like it could be, you know, the the Champs Elysees. He's got instead it's the Bronx Zoo. It's the farthest thing from the Champs Elysees <laughs> on planet Earth. But yeah, that's a fun photo. What you let's see. You were how old? I was one. I, well, I would have been, uh, it would have been, uh, it looks, yeah, I guess one. Yeah. And what do you think your father, as a psychiatrist, when he goes to the zoo, what do you think he's looked, what, what do you think he finds interesting? I'm, I'm serious. What, what, what would a psychiatrist, is your father, and there's a, we'll, we'll ask your father in a second for the correct answer. Is he watching people, watching the animals most of the time, or is he watching the animals? You know, honestly, I think he probably, and I'm guessing here, I think that he worked, he, he's a workaholic, he, to a degree, he comes from a workaholic background, and was working very hard at that age to get established. So I think he was probably just thinking like, whoo, I have the day off. This is what a relief. That's probably what was going on. But he's... But I, don't think of you, I don't think of you as someone who's like a philosopher of your profession, like you're walking around observing and trying to, you're probably just enjoying looking at the animals. Um, I like looking at animals. I've always liked looking at animals. And I think Freud said this, but somebody did. Why do little children lo like looking at animals? Because they're naked and they're exposing their body parts. <laughs> so it's a whole... What a perv. What a perv. How about just because they're cute? Um, however, however, it's also true that, like, when I go to a museum, I spend a lot of time looking at the other people who are looking at the paintings. I, I was at the Met the other day, and I, I took a bunch of uh, cell phone photos of all the people in masks looking at the photos. Because I think someday that will be interesting when everybody's no longer walking around with masks. And, and everybody sees what they want to see in a painting, unless they're told what's in the painting. That's also true. Yeah. So is there, is there a specific house in the zoo that you think your father would enjoy the most 
<laughs> First of all, let me say this again on the subject of zoos in the Bronx Zoo. I don't like zoos. I'm opposed to zoos. Zoos are cruel. They're outmoded and the animals should be in their natural habitats. Um, and it's, I, that's what I believe. And free happy. Hashtag free happy. That, right. that elephant is still there in the Bronx Zoo since probably since that photo was taken. That elephant happy female elephant been there for f five decades. So hashtag free happy. Um, but yeah, I remember the reptile house at the Bronx Zoo was pretty. I can remember that humid, that kind of it had a little bit of a fetid smell. And it was very exciting as a kid because it was very scary and dangerous because those crocodiles really looked like. Uh, yeah, they look they look just mean and dangerous. Now, what are your what are your plans for the holidays? What, July 4th, do you are you going to go into the country? What are you, what are you going to get we'll together? Swimming with the crocodiles. You're going to go swimming with them. The Bronx Zoo for the for the no. Um, I'm going to go back up to Massachusetts and uh, be reunited with the with the family, canine and human, and also check on my pot plants. Pot is now legal in Massachusetts, and a friend from L.A. supplied me with some seeds. So the plants apparently are doing quite well. So I'm going to it's legal to grow. I think six plants now in Massachusetts. So that's kind of a fun project. You grow, you grow pot, but you don't smoke it. I don't with any frequency, but I'm looking forward to trying this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And does that upset you to hear that, Dr. Hershenfeld? It upsets me to hear your son say that he's a drug addict. <laughs> not, I'm not going to David, what are you doing for the holiday? Uh, I'm ashamed to tell you. Okay, all right. I'll tell you. Hot though. dog eating contest? Huh? Hot dog eating contest? Oh, that's right. That, uh, that, that is amazing to watch, Coney Island. Uh, I'm going to probably stay in New York City and, uh, you know, clean up my computer and uh, maybe nice. visit my mother, maybe, and do some nice. reading. And do that. Where is she? Is she out there? In, she's in uh, Jersey. In yeah, she's in oh. Jersey. I'll, I'll go see the trees. N nothing uh, particularly exciting. Nothing sociable. Social. Everybody seems to be going places. And uh, I, I'm. Uh, in not. truth, no one's going anywhere. What is the truth? The truth is that people tell you things in the hopes that you will feel bad when you do. <laughs> so there isn't this great party out there that everybody's going to and I'm not invited? No. I used to get a lot of invitations. Now, nothing. I invited you to lunch the other day, and you, you, no, no, you, you said you wanted to buy me lunch, and I gave you my address. But what that means? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an expression. It's a, it's a, it's a way of saying. But anyway, we'll. I'll go out to lunch with you. Okay. Are you wearing? Are you wearing a mask? I'm starting to again, and here I'm going to get the. Uh, I'm going to get a. I have that Johnson and Johnson, but I'm going to get the uh, get a Pfizer poke as a booster. I'm going to do it because. This Delta variant, I've heard nothing very encouraging about um, the data with Johnson & Johnson. In fact, there's just a, a vacuum of data with how the Johnson & Johnson is dealing with that variant. So I've heard some people are actually doing this, some immunologists and 
others. Uh, so it's not recommended yet by the CDC or the WHO, but um, or by the MTA. I'm just naming. Uh, no, um, <laughs> the MTA. It's the Metropolitan <laughs> Transit Authority. We're no. WQXR. David. <laughs> about it. Oh, David, you'll be glad to know I did ask. I did a little more uh, social and psychological experimentation by asking some of my fellow citizens, as we discussed when I was getting on the plane to Atlanta a few weeks ago. Once again, I asked very nicely for some of my fellow citizens to put their masks on. And it went very well. It went very well because I asked very politely, except on one occasion, it didn't go that well. Someone got very upset that I asked them. But I still feel like on uh, 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 what's that expression? On on balance. On balance, it's good to ask. I'm not recommending anyone else do it because, you know, uh, you could get into trouble. But most people were like, oh, yeah, I, they, they don't even respond verbally. They just put it on. Now, Dr. Hershenfeld, my son oh. yeah, is uh, in Greece right now with his girlfriend. They're both in the musical Greece? They're in the, yes. They're, <laughs> they're. <laughs> They're Nikki. <laughs> they're they're Pinky Pinky Tuscadero. He he's uh wait, that was from Happy Days. I know, I, I got it confused. Do you know how Gary Marshall came up with the last name Tuscadero? Pinky Tuscadero? No. His car broke down in Tuscadero, California. And Gary oh, Marshall said this would make a great name for a character. Little piece. I just of, heard uh, Dick Van Dyke being interviewed, saying Gary Marshall was in the writers' room there for the Dick Van Dyke show. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So my son and his girlfriend and their friends are in Greece and Crete, and they're travel and they're sending me pictures, and sometimes they're wearing masks, and and sometimes they're not, and I want to kill them. Are they vaccinated? Yes. Okay, then you don't have to kill them. I think they're probably pretty safe. Probably. Okay. They don't kill them because then they won't be safe at all. <laughs> kill them. But they're having a good time, and that's Crete. It. Crete is the best. Anybody who hasn't been to Crete, go there. I've never been to Crete. Well, go there immediately. I hear it's mm. crazy there. I hear it. It's full of Cretans. Now, the fact that a, a psychiatrist would, is, is that where the word Cretan comes from? Probably. What, what is great about Crete? My, my son says it's amazing. It's beautiful. It truly is beautiful. The water is beautiful. The wine dark sea. The very lovely people. Uh, Mrs. Papadopoulou. She was really nice. She was you know, um, if you used Mrs. to... Mrs. Papadopoulou. Mrs. Papadopoulou, yes. If you used to be from, from Crete, you're an ex-Crete. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to be traveling overseas, Ethan? No, I'm done with that. I've had enough of it. It's, far, it's, far, it's full of foreigners. You go out there and it's... <laughs> I don't, you know, enough. we have enough foreigners here. I don't need to go out there to meet foreigners. And with their accents and their languages and their funny smells and foods, I'm not, I don't want it. And all their mamas like, hey, oh, whenever you go over there, the moms are, they're too much. 
So just I like good old U.S. of A. <laughs> U.S.A. U.S.A. <laughs> what about stand up? Are you going to be performing? You know, I had another gig the other day. Another I told you I had a synagogue, another, right. uh, synagogue gig. And it was uh, it was fun. So but no, I haven't gotten back into the flow with it yet. So but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be patient. I'm trying to be patient with myself. In terms of the stand up. I like that. Have you finished before you go? Have you finished the Philip Roth book, Dr. Hershenfeld? You know what I did? I started reading Remembrance of Things Past. Seven volumes. I think this is going to keep me busy till uh, the cows come home. So Philip Roth has been put to the side in favor of Proust. Are you reading back to it? Are you reading it in English or French? Greek. Ah, that's French to me. I uh, now Proust was Jewish, correct? Half, half, half Jewish. Jewish. Yeah. He actually he bit into arugula. And everything came <laughs> pouring. Uh, and what do you read? Why would you read a book? I mean, what that does is you're saying how many how many volumes of Remembrance of Things? Either six or seven volumes, each one about this thick. So you, you're essentially saying thousands of pages. You're saying to the rest of your books. Yeah. Fuck I, off. Yeah. I'm not, I'm done. I'm only, I'm, you're playing favorites for the next two years. Probably. I'm yes. only going to be spending time with Proust. Yeah. Unless I get bored with him at some point, that's possible. And I have not yet gotten to the longest sentence in all of literature. It, it apparently goes on for pages and pages. So um, once I get to that sentence, I'll have to reevaluate. He missed his period. That's, there you go. And Ethan, what do you, that was not, your oh, son could have nonsense. come up with something a lot better. Before we go, what, what, is, what are you reading? So I'm still reading that thing, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. That's that George right. Saunders book about Russian literature. But then I, I also started reading. So I read that book, Nickel Boys, by, uh, by Colson Whitehead. And now I'm going back and reading the one that he won a big prize for, uh, The Underground Railroad. Right. I read half of that. And okay. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's uh, uh, the middle. Yeah. And I couldn't follow it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't understand. Uh, the, I was going to say the middle passages, but that would probably be offensive. That's, that would have that was uh, yeah, that's not everything. By the way, in Crete, outside of Nosos, which is the labyrinth where the Minotaur was, um, it's an actual palace, very complicated. I met a crow, a Croatian. No, a crow, a bird, you know, a crow or a raven. Oh, a Serb. <laughs> that spoke Greek. <laughs> really? Oh, perfect Greek. Yes. Just, just so, I mean, this is to counter my son's argument about foreigners. I mean. You, you, you met a crow that speaks fluent. Crows are very smart. It's not like you were, you were tripping or something. 
All um, right. Thank well, you. Thank you. If you want to buy me lunch, that's a good idea. But it's my treat. In other words, you're buying me lunch it would be my idea of a treat. So it's my treat that you're buying. <laughs> Thank you. You bought me lunch the other day, and it was quite a treat. I will buy the three of us lunch. Well, let's do it. Okay, let's okay, do that, it. Um, that would be, yes. By the way, if anyone is interested in a... In paying for our lunch. <laughs> if anyone is interested in a $30 salad... A $30 Greek salad. I recommend Nectar Cafe on 82nd and Madison next to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. A $30 worth of lettuce. It's, it's, I, I recommend it. We, we, we should actually meet like at Trump Tower so we have something to talk about. Oh, like thank it. you. Okay. Thank you, Doc. Right, thank thanks. you so much for taking time. Hey, hey Professor. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank Hello, you. Bye. Thank you. When we come back, we will first, uh, Professor Harvey J.K. is here, and I think we have Alan Minsky. He showed up for this. I have some clips I want to show everybody. Ethan looked like a French sailor in that. I know. He looked, uh, let me just play a little of Professor Harvey J.K. because it's the only reason he shows up. Please, uh, uh, Alan it's Minsky. The reason I show up. Because <laughs> of the song. Let's just play a little. I song. A, a little of Professor Mike Steyer. I sing this around the house, and I do song parodies of it. Oh, yeah? Like, I, I know the lyrics inside and out, and I, I'll sing it, and I add lyrics to it. It, it. Listen to this. This is Professor Mike Steinel. Harvey J.K., he's got a lot to say. About Thomas Paine and FDR St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go Harvey J.K. is on the show today That is Professor Mike Steinow. We Did we lose Alan Minsky there? I hope not, but listen There he is he, he called me five minutes ago to remind me that, that uh, that we were going to be on right now. So, but David, I have, to, I have to tell the audience something. That I was expecting you to have me over last Thursday night. And, and, but, and I was getting messages, direct messages from the mice in your place saying, <laughs> oh, saying we're looking forward to your arrival. Maybe <laughs> you can organize us against Mo Evil. <laughs> <laughs> So here's the truth. I would I you you said, why don't I come over and sit and do the show with you all 40 hours, which would be heaven for me. Here's the problem. There uh, is a, a problem with mice and the smell is dissipating. But what happened is the exterminator came and put out this bait and they take the you see now my listeners get pissed off that I talk about this, but but uh, the ex okay I I was going to bring my rat friends, <laughs> <laughs> and what happens is the mice, and I am a vegan Buddhist and I but this is okay I checked. The mice eat the bait and then they go back to the nest and have, and they then they go Sex. to a farm. They go back and have sex. They go, go and it smells, 
And it, there was, like, I, I was telling a friend, like, what, I've been, like, really kind of feeling lousy. And my friend, my friend said, yeah, you've been living with mice for three weeks. And then they died in the walls. And, and I thought, you know, John Wayne Gacy, he put them in the walls. Well, that's the sick. That's yeah. sick. Not the backyard. He, he he put them in the walls. Anyway, let, let's let's talk. Here's what I would like to do, if you don't mind. Unless you have something. What's on your mind? Then I first, and then I. Yeah, okay, I, I don't want to dwell on it because I've talked about it enough. But I, I, um, I am. You know, you know the term ambivalent, right? Yes. Well, I'm not ambivalent. I'm actually schizophrenic. On, on, sorry, with all due respect to people who suffer schizophrenia, about the Biden administration. I, I'm the hopeful side. That well, the not hopeful side of me thinks that this is one more disaster in the making. The hopeful side of me actually says that everything he has actually said this past week, which some media folks called gaffes, was actually planted. It was all planned. That that in fact the squad will prevail on this one, Bernie and the squad will prevail. That they're revving up to do a major. I'd like to know what Alan thinks about this. I just have this feeling they're they're revving up to do a major. Ta- in tandem, the bipartisan plan, which is worthless, and the plan that he may well have first proposed of more than two trillion, not simply one. I could be wrong. It's just. I, Pelosi has been talking like she's a member of the squad on the question of uh, of the of the infrastructure. So I, I'm I actually am like torn. On the one hand, disaster. On the other hand, yes, at least in this instance, where we don't need to worry about the filibuster, they can actually make it happen. They will. And I and I don't even see Mansion or Cinema as the big question. To me, is it's the likes of somebody who I find an utterly embarrassing figure, Chris Coons. From Delaware, yeah. Alan, what do you think? Well, I think I think yeah, I think you're right about the effort to organize. And yes, obviously, right off the bat, when the bipartisan plan was announced, Pelosi sounded quite progressive, talking about building up the other half of it up to four trillion. I think she said right off the bat, and that sounds about as good as you know, you're going to hear. Well, he from actually her. Manchin himself said he was willing to go to four trillion originally. But the the thing I think is very real about all this is it's going to have a lot of twists and turns. We've never seen this kind of process proceed with the, you know, the one or two bullets in the chamber for reconciliation. Um, You know, the the American Families Plan may blend with the budget at the end of the year in some ways. There's all sorts of other uh, bills that run parallel to this and how it's all going to play out. The sad thing for those of us who are involved in this kind of lobbying is you have to keep your eye on the ball wherever it is, even as it shifts. Yeah, for the lobbying. So, so yeah. So yes. all I can say is that that's what's been on my mind over and over, replay and replay and replay. Let me show you a clip. Speaking of lobbying, that Channel Four News in the United Kingdom produced. They did an investigation into Exxon Mobil's lobbying efforts they did like a hidden camera they pretended they were did you see the story no i didn't oh it's great channel 4 news in great britain did an undercover report 
they found a, a lobbyist f for ExxonMobil who was they pretended they were, wanted to hire this guy. And yeah. he came clean and told them all about the senators who are on the, the payroll for ExxonMobil. You cannot discuss the infrastructure bill without talking about the senators like Joe Manchin, who take uh, ungodly sums of money from ExxonMobil and they try to disentangle from the infrastructure bill anything that addresses climate change. Fascinating. So uh, according I, to this I, report, ExxonMobil lobbyists, they, they love the idea of bridges. They love the idea of roads, spend oh, billions yeah, sure. on roads and bridges, but nothing that addresses climate change while the world is burning. Yeah. Let me play you this clip from Channel 4, and everybody should watch this. You can see this on, uh, I don't know how you could see it. I guess you could see it on YouTube. Well, if it's just dynamic, and I'll take dead aim at the cap and trade bill. Joe Manchin, I talk to his office every week. Um, he is the kingmaker, uh, and he's not shy about sort of taking his claim early yeah. and completely changing the debate. Legal declarations show that Senator Manchin has received tens of thousands of dollars from ExxonMobil and its trade associations. Keith McCoy names 10 other senators as crucial to ExxonMobil. Senators Mark Kelly, Chris Coons, Shelley Moore Capito, Kirsten Sinema, John Tester, Maggie Hassan, John Barrasso, Steve Daines, John Cornyn, and Marco Rubio. All bar Kelly and Hassan have taken money from Exxon totaling $117,000. We gave all these senators a chance to respond. None did so. That is- It's cool as I just mentioned him. Yes. How do you like that? Yeah. So we don't really see that on American television because ExxonMobil advertises on American television. But that kind of spells out Alan Minsky. Doesn't that kind of explain why the infrastructure bill will be pared down and not be part of some Green New Deal? Um, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's I mean, it, you know, it's tricky. It's a matter of where you play your cards, where you put your pressure, because if it's going to be a Democrat only only bill. Right. Then the squad, as it were, can block the passage of it through the House. Right. But so can the fossil fuel um, lobbied Democrats, um, of whom there are probably more than there are with the squad in the House, not just in the Senate. There are about seven to eight senators who are completely in their pockets. So it's, it's how you play things. You know, what might be the best outcome in terms of the infrastructure package is just ending fossil fuel subsidies, because maybe it'll be difficult for anything truly positive to go forward. Some positive stuff can go forward, but, um, you know, to get full funding against the fossil fuel industry it might just be easier to block stuff. So we'll see how that goes. Professor Harvey J.K., you are one of the world's leading experts on Marxist historians from Great Britain. You in a, in a previous life before you became an expert on democracy studies. <laughs> no, actually, they're intimately connected. Just yes, so you know. you've yes. taught. And one of the things you've taught me is that democracy Anyway, socialism is about democracy. Yes. 
And God bless and thank you for that, because it anyway. Uh, I lost my train. I was so I was so grateful for you that I, I forgot. Uh, oh, Exxon Mobil. You, yeah. you cannot take on climate change the same way you can't have Medicare for all unless you say we're putting Humana out of business. You, you cannot address climate change without saying ExxonMobil has to go out of business. Otherwise, we're, we're all going to die. You know, when I was a junior in high school, which would have been 1960, I don't know, 65, 66, 66. Yeah, 66. I had a chemistry teacher uh, who, Miss Bayer was her name. She later was married. And I'll never forget, she made, all of a sudden in class one day, she said, you know, if we could sell pieces of the sun, we could, if we could sell pieces of the sun, we could literally move beyond oil. That's how she put it. Meaning that if Exxon, the likes of Exxon, well, ones on Exxon and Mobil and Chevron and all these companies, if they could just, if they could make money off of solar energy, you know, by leasing parts of the sun to these companies, then they'd move beyond. And this is what, this is 1966 when she said that. And what are we now, 55 years later? And what is the temperature, this heat dome, where, what is it, 115 in British Columbia? 600 yeah. people died? Unprecedented. Unprecedented. I mean, it's happening. So there are either two responses. One is, it's over. The planet's over. Well, why, do you, why is it that... Um, the guy, you know, what was his name from, you know, Virgin, whatever records and all those other corporations. What's his name? Uh, Richard Branson. Yeah. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Right. Billionaires. Why are they so keen to go into space? <laughs> they know something. Right? The rest I'm, of us. Seriously speaking. Wh why? My wife just said because they've done everything else. No, it's because they know they are truly going to separate themselves from the rest of humanity if they have to. Right. Right. You know, this kind of fatalism doesn't help. It doesn't help. Alan Minsky, you are executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. We had Dr. Harriet Fraud on talking about capitalism and, and guardrails of, you know, believing that Elizabeth Warren and, uh, you know, pass, passing bills that can tame capitalism and Joe from Norway kept saying, you cannot tame capitalism. You cannot tame it. And I, you know, I'm a boomer and I like to believe, you know, FDR tamed capitalism. But when you look at the conversation we're having now about ExxonMobil and climate change and the incrementalism, you know, the, 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 the climate is not changing incrementally, but we're trying to address it incrementally this isn't this an example of how you cannot tame capitalism well it's 
very sad what's happening with um I, I, harvey has written some great pieces and had some great media appearances critiquing the Biden administration. And of course, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very much involved in trying to push elements of these big packages through standalone bills through Congress, building alliances, you know, citizen lobbying, right? That's one of the things PDA does, but very involved. It's a very hectic process right now. And the thing I think that's maybe a little bit different between how I've responded to the Biden administration, partly it's because I'm engaged with it, but my expectations were always, I was happy that we even got the stuff we got out of him on so many fronts. I mean, my expectations were pretty low. And I think you see the consolidation of the establishment of the Democratic Party taking place in a number of ways around the country. We're seeing a big intervention against Nina Turner right now in the Ohio 11th race. Now, as for the bigger question, I will just say, remind everybody that Clyburn has stepped in to beat, doesn't want Nina Turner to be the, the Congresswoman from this. Cleveland's congressional yeah. district. Yeah, and I was on a call yesterday with her, um, uh, with uh, Norman Solomon, you know, uh, Ben Cohn, Jerry, whatever Jerry's name is from Ben and Jerry, uh, these, you know, Jewish guys from Vermont who run an ice cream company. And of course, the accusations that are being leveled against her is that she's anti Semitic and, um, and the really execrable um, organization DMFI is dropping a million dollars against her, just like they tried to drop it against Engel. Uh, to sit to, to support angle trying to save angle from the challenge from bowman and you know nina's I, I know nina turner you know all of that's a bunch of crap she's just a fantastic person but she's also somebody who does not pull her punches in her critique in fact she echoes harvey jk in saying what's happening with something like the biden administration she's fearless but as for the question about socialism capitalism the in the climate emergency i think the problem is you know you know how can we address socialism we have none of the structures in place to combat uh, private ownership uh in this society and the public i mean you look at something as this sort of banal example from history but you look like the french revolution and you know they start out they're just against the king and then they go through these waves of radical more radical variations until it gets really out of control then there's a reaction against it but we have to exhaust the possibilities within our current system because we know that through regulation, it just absolutely just invert what the right wing has done in this country politically and have the left do it. In other words, get control of the political mechanism within our system to change the way the market operates. It's what FDR did in the 30s. It's what the right wing reaction has done in this country since the 1970s. And so we have an opportunity to see what we can get out of that kind of um, regulated and, and positively reformed capitalism and I think once we achieve those things, then maybe we'll have the space in our lives to address going towards socialism, which I think would be. Ellen, who's her? Who's Nina's opponent? Chantel Brown. She's uh, she was the chair of the um, Democratic Party of Cuyahoga County, and uh, you know she has been endorsed by Marsha Fudge. Um, oh, Marsha Fudge endorsed her. Yeah, Marsha so. Fudge is now head of HUD. She used to have that seat. Right. And um, a pro and Medicare for all person. Uh, she might have signed on to that, but she's not really a she, she kind of fudges really on it. Is Chantel African-American or white? Yes. Yes. And I think I think the thing that I thought was most conspicuous about her is when she originally announced her campaign on her website, which was pretty flashy. There was not a single policy position outlined, but there was a picture of her with Kamala Harris, a picture of her with Barack Obama, a picture of her with Joe Biden. So that's how she's running for uh, office against uh, she's, she's black. 
Okay. Because I was going to say, if she's white, then that would just prove that Clyburn is colorblind. What? What? Very important race is coming up soon. The, the why wouldn't you is. vote if you live in Cleveland? Why would you vote for anybody other than Nina Turner? What? What? What does uh, Sean? What is her name? Sean? Chantel Brown. Chantel. What does she have to offer you? The whole question of the critique of um, the appeal of the post Barack Obama Democratic Party to the people who make up the Democratic voting base. It's a long subject. You know. What are the. I've been saying on this show, by the way, the Sunrise Movement had a big protest, a sit-in outside the White House on Monday or Tuesday. Who showed up for that? Which congressman showed up for it? AOC showed up for it, a few other members of the squad. Did, did Biden, did the vice president, did anybody go out and talk to the Sunrise Movement? I know that they were calling for an expanded version of the uh, CCC in the um, in the um, infrastructure package. Um, good luck with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a good demonstration. Yeah. You also there was a demonstration outside of Schumer's apartment in Park Slope by Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Did you see that, David? Uh, no. Oh, I'll send you some pictures. My daughter caught some pictures of it. Tell your daughter I voted for Lindsay uh, Boylan. Lindsay Boylan for Manhattan Bureau President. Borough President. Yeah, right. Uh, and she didn't like me, by the way. We had a bad, uh, but you know, I, I went in and I thought, uh, I don't have to, you know, she was, she, she, was anyway she didn't like me we had a, a bad experience on this show but i thought she would make a great manhattan borough president she stood up to andrew cuomo she didn't win though yeah right uh, unfortunately yeah uh, i want to when are we going to know the results of those elections are they going to have to do a re, rerun the election in the mayor's race it looks like adams and garcia are neck and neck and they're they're not able to count the votes properly. I don't think New York City's election bureau was equipped to change the way we vote. I think they they should have they they're not equipped to do this. I wanted to show Professor K uh, a couple of clips, but we're we're almost out of time. Ben Burgess told oh, I thought me we were going to do some Fox clips. You had some Yeah, Fox I, clips, you know I <clears throat> I'm learning how to show clips on the show. And Professor Burgess told me I should be watching Fox. And I and I go, eh. And I don't watch it. But then I started watching it to find clips, and I couldn't believe what I saw. Yeah. And, I, and I know... I was watching it in the 90s. I, could, I, I ran out of patience. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm new to Fox News. And, and I apologize to my listeners because I find it so toxic. What I find equally toxic is that nobody stops and starts on Fox News and challenges any of these statements. So let me just show you. Uh, I know this is tired for most people who 
who are progressive. They, they already know that Fox News is bogus, but I haven't watched it in years. And I never realized how dangerous it is because it's very subtle and not so subtle at the same time. Let me show you this guy. Well, let me just tell you that if you want to stay up late, I'll come back and watch your Fox News clips. I, I actually can. I have no time limit tonight. OK, let me play you one clip and then come back. Let me just show you. Uh, let's see. All right. Let me let me do one that that I found. I, 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 that'll be you guys. I'll be I'll be. This is I found this. On beauty sleep. OK, this is Jesse Waters. You're two hours behind. What are you talking about? This is Jesse Waters. <laughs> and he makes a statement about the Democratic Party and what they want when it comes to immigration. And it goes unchallenged, and then it gets parroted by the effing morons who we know, who, who say Don't these- Don't give us the punchline, let's see. Okay, this is what, let me see if this plays. I hope it does. Uh, we do have a crisis at the southern border. It's a, it's a raging tire fire, and it's not gonna get any better as long as President Biden keeps doing what he's been doing. Well, I think it's even more sadistic and political than you even described. I believe they are breaking the border on purpose because that is what they want. They want the open border. They want to turn Texas blue. They want to overwhelm the system in order to achieve more political power. But I think you touched on a really important point. Okay. Sorry, I had this feeling when he said you touched on a really important point. He was accusing the guy of touching his, you know what? Right, well, that's the difference. That's the, John Kennedy, who was president. This is the Republican John Kennedy. He wouldn't, this guy. So Jesse Waters says that, and I know my listeners know this already, but I can't believe that somebody can get away with making that statement that, a, that there's a crisis at the border. There is no crisis at the border. The only crisis is we need to let those people in because nobody is picking our fruits and vegetables. We need more people coming into this country. We have a shortage of immigrants in America. But the idea that he can get away with saying that the Democratic Party wants people from Central America to flood the border so that they will then turn Texas blue. And nobody says- Did anybody tell them that there you have to wait to apply for citizenship and then you have to take a test? <laughs> Explain no, to I, me why that is fallacious. It's, it's just, it is outrageous, okay? First of all, to presume they're sitting around calculating that these these refugees are somehow on the verge of getting the right to vote in Texas. I mean, it's just bizarre. Okay. Um, noted, what do they call it? A tire fire? Is that what he said? He said tire fire. Tire fire. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's uh, sickening. And look, if you if one steps back and one considers all of the variables being pursued, all of the things that are being pursued by the Republican. Or I don't even have to say conservative Republicans anymore. Just say Republican Party, i.e., you know, the neo-fascists these days. Then one can readily see the degree to which they are driven by race, but even more importantly, the way in which they are wielding race and ethnicity and and human suffering to divide Americans 
themselves, ourselves. That, that's the horror of this. Their attitude about refugees and immigrants is predictable. It's the way they wield it. And by the way, you know, there's a good argument that we could, I, I don't usually buy into the, the media explanation of what's happened, but Rupert Murdoch's responsibility for the devastation of American public life, he really ought to be subject to, what do they used to call those things? The, uh, the those, you know, in like in South Africa, they had the, what, the memory, the, the remember, you know, they, what they reconciliation. Reconciliation. Yeah, I mean, he ought to be subject to just that, if not a serious trial for his corruption of American public life. And he's not an American. They, he became an American they citizen. Us, you know, it's also corrupt our own immigration rules where they can throw citizenship to people who have a certain amount of money. It's just what we've done to this country over the last 20, 30 and 40 years is... You know what? We come back later. I I am working on playing clips because uh-huh. and I keep thinking and I contacted you because I know that you're like me, that you've given up on Fox. You, like, it's sickening. You know what they're yeah, up to. I, I, I couldn't do it any longer. I did it for years because somebody had to do it. So I've do I've isolated these now. clips and they are shocking and Ben Burgess says, you ignore this stuff at your own peril. Yes. And by the way, and then I got to the point where I couldn't bear to watch MSNBC. OK, which is non-union, so, we've learned. I've been asking for years, what's the story with Rachel Maddow? And why don't we see credits at the end of Rachel Maddow? Is there a union? And we've learned, I think, two weeks ago that the people who write okay. for Rachel Maddow and Larry O'Donnell, that uh, they're trying to form a union now. Unconscionable yeah. that MSNBC yeah. has been non-union and Ed Schultz, who passed away, fought the union. Yeah, that, look, Ed Schultz was basically, well, he was driven out there, you know, driven out of MSNBC. Um, he, went, he, went to Wisconsin, he went to Wisconsin and thought maybe that the Democratic president should too. Yeah, right. He can't. He was one of the people were occupying the Capitol. Right. Right. That's right. You bet. And you don't see John Nichols on MSNBC any longer, do you? You don't see anybody on MSNBC who says put Humana out of business, put Exxon Mobil out of business. No. Um, Let let me say this before I go, because I I sort of agree with Harvey. I can't watch MSNBC. Sometimes I feel like I have to just because I have to process what these talking points are from whatever that political configuration is. I find Fox News to be utterly hilarious on the, on the level of just gallows humor to the max. I mean, this is like, you know, uh, the death drive, you know, times Thanatos times whatever. Thanatos. Doom, yeah. Where you were know, you time, when time where were you when Dr. Hershenfeld was here? We have to wrap it up. Do, this is great. Up, but, yeah. David, David, is somebody is somebody able to text me or email me to tell me what time you want me to come, come back? Uh, in about uh, come back. We're going to talk to you'll love this story, Professor Harvey J.K. It's appalling. We uh, we have a podcaster who is uh, covering Andrew Brown Jr., who was shot 
we'll, we'll talk about it later. Let me come back late, I, late. I'm talking late to do these clips. I, I can't get into things I don't know. About. Come back. I, come back around. Come back in two hours. Two hours. That's early for me. That's yeah. fine. I thought maybe you needed me later. OK, great. Thank you. Thank Alan you Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Thank you. And Professor Harvey. And hello, G- Barry. Hello there. <laughs> the Reverend Barry. Dub- we got to play Professor Harvey J.K. for a little. Here we go. See you in a couple hours. Harvey J.K. He's got a lot to say. About Thomas Paine and FDR. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey JK is on the show today. Let's go to Washington, D.C., or maybe Massachusetts. I don't know. Are you in Washington, D.C.? Massachusetts. Again with the grandkids. Again. You know, I got to spend the 4th of July with them so I can teach them what real patriotism is about, Ah. which is not about, you know, something up here. And I'm sure this is true everywhere. There are these American flags with blue stripes in them. So they're blue, white and black, which I think if they had passed some of those constitutional amendments of prohibiting the desecration of the American flag, that would be desecration of an American flag. Yeah. Yeah. I, By the way, they desecrate the flag every time it waves in front of a McDonald's because they never put it. You're supposed to take it down every yes. night and fold it properly. You just exactly. can't. I, I cannot tell you the number of times <laughs> I've driven by a Burger King and a McDonald's in, in, a, in the snow and the rain and the American flag is being des- desecrated. But they think, you know, but the American people don't know how to treat the American flag or the people who fight for it. No, they don't. Let me play you a clip. Sure. And then we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Sure. I I wanted your reaction to some of this stuff. I found some some people uh, for this segment because I'm learning how to play clips. Yeah. Uh, How about this guy? God's about to bring the whole house down, ladies and gentlemen. These bunch of sex trafficking mongrels are about to be exposed. These bunch of pedophiles in Hollywood are going to be exposed for who they are. I don't care what you think about fraudulent Sleepy Joe. He's a sex trafficking, demon-possessed mongrel. He's of the left. He ain't no better than the Pope and Oprah Winfrey and Tom Hanks and the rest of that wicked crowd. God is going to bring the whole house down. I said he's going to bring the whole house down. He's going to burn the whole thing to the ground. He's going to expose all these bunch of pedophiles. I'm telling you, he's going to expose Kamala Harris for the Jezebel demon that she is. Okay. So that is Pastor Greg Locke, who recently divorced his wife of 21 years and married her best friend. I'm for the First Amendment. Yep. Is that against the law, what he said? No, it's not. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Johnson Amendment? No, it's, it's legal for a pastor to to talk that way 
Absolutely. To politicize his sermons that way. Oh, yeah, because he didn't say specifically, don't vote for Kamala Harris and don't vote for Joe Biden and don't vote for Oprah Winfrey or Tom Hanks in the unlikely event either one of them runs for the president. You have to be very specific about it. You can criticize, you can say people are demon-possessed. I mean, we used to report all kinds of things. Barack Obama never cared about the Johnson Amendment. Trump obviously wanted to repeal it. And Biden shows no interest in taking it seriously either. And remember, as we said the very first time, I think I was on this show, uh, it's only about endorsing candidates. You can talk about the Biden policy at the border. You can talk about Kamala Harris's life. You can mention people's names, but you just can't say, don't vote for this person. Okay, we're talking with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, who besides being an attorney and a member of the Supreme Court bar, he ran for nearly 25 years, uh, Americans United for separation for church and state. And he is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. What is the Johnson Amendment? That's a provision of the tax code that says that any nonprofit, religious or secular, cannot endorse or oppose a candidate for any public office. That's all it says. So when the NRA, through a 501c4, I think, gives money to a super PAC that endorses Trump, that's not a violation of the Johnson Amendment? No, because C4s, which I think shouldn't exist any more than I think PACs should exist, C4s are supposed to communicate primarily with their own members, and they have much greater flexibility on endorsing candidates, either directly or through giving money to PACs. I mean, we should have one kind of nonprofit, and that nonprofit should be devoted entirely to education and advocacy for ideas. And then if you want to endorse candidates, you should go to their candidate committee and support that. But this idea there, I even got a call the other day from a some anti-breast cancer charity. And by the time the woman got through the first two minutes and she said, now we're a 527 organization. So I said, so you don't want to cure cancer. You just want to elect people, give them money in the hopes that they'll do something about cancer. I said, you are yourself a cancer Great. in body politics. Great. These things, they were all designed by progressive groups to try to make things better, to make the whole electoral system fairer. But in fact, they've corrupted it dramatically. C4s. 527s, and of course, political action committees. It's people just figuring out ways to cash in on what we care about and mislead us. I want to talk about Weisselberg and all those, but let me just show you one more clip. Sure. I think you know who this guy is. I think you do. You know about critical race theory, right? Yes. And this seems to be the talking point. You know, the the new thing is that 
they're teaching critical race theory at West Point and in our colleges and white people are being made to feel guilty over something. Uh, I guess it was called slavery. And yeah. uh, we, we, we shouldn't be feeling guilty about that. And instead of addressing climate change or income inequality, the Republican talking point is hammer critical race theory. They do march in goose step, the Republicans, don't they? They all yes. get on board. This is Pat Robertson. What is it that the people of color have been oppressed by the white people and the white people begin to be racist by the time they're uh, two or three months old? And they, therefore, the people of color have to rise up and overtake their oppressors and then having gotten the whip handle if i can use that term then to instruct their white neighbors how to behave now that's critical race theory and it sets people against one group against another it is totally divisive and as has been said, this is the way the communists take over. They try to destroy the children. It is a monstrous evil. And you hear it, it sounds like, oh, critical race theory, that's okay. No, it's not. It doesn't want to have your children in the third grade indoctrinated into a hate group so that he'll wind up hating people or hating himself. And so the, the white people are supposed to feel guilty and they're supposed to have white guilt and the people of color are supposed to cleanse them of that guilt by taking over. It is a monstrous evil. I isolated the words. Sure. I, I would play it again because it it is saying black he's saying that critical race theory means that black people get the whip handle and the only way to assuage white guilt is by allowing black people to take over and idiots hear this and they think black people are going to get the whip handle and they're and this country is going to be run by black people because of critical race theory that's that is what he is saying yep well i don't i don't think he knows very much about critical race theory or american history and if he does he um he's forgotten it he is he's so he's such a crazy character I mean, in every way, it, Ray, he used to invite Charlton Heston to his big uh, annual meetings in Washington, political meetings. And I remember once Heston was there talking about how we needed to bring back the uh, something like a phrase like the glorious days of the white people, something like as wow. bad as that. And no, he doesn't criticize it. Robertson never criticizes anything with the exception of he has been known to criticize what are called new earth creationists, people who believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old. And in one incredible evening, 
there was a debate between Bill Nye, the science guy, and this crazy guy, Ken Ham, who's responsible for the Creation Museum and the Creation Water Park down in Kentucky. And the debate goes on. Ken Ham is a young earth creationist. And Robertson the next day on his show, because he was still on the show every day, he said, you know, what Ken Ham says makes Christians look ridiculous. Of course, this earth is more than 6,000 years old. So every- Pat Robertson is more than 6,000 years old. He is. In fact, he- I only heard Pat Robertson give one address ever where I thought that's almost a Christian thing to do. He was talking about poverty in the Philippines. Kids, as you know, and other people knew before this, um, they live in garbage dumps in Manila. And he, you would almost, if you didn't know anything about him, you would say, what, what an amazingly accurate and sensitive comment about poverty outside the United States. The only time I ever heard him ever say anything that made any sense uh, when he was using it. Yale Law School, I believe. He graduated from Yale Law School. He did, yeah. Son of a senator? Son of a senator. And uh, uh, there was a lot of speculation, I, I could never really prove it, that the fact that he was the son of a senator is why he got into Yale Law School. He got, and served in Korea, but had a desk job. He had a desk job in Korea. But claimed yeah. that he saw action. Yeah, well, you know, if you've ever eaten military food, <laughs> you might you might have seen some action afterwards. Uh, I want to ask no, I, I want to ask you about the, the indictments that came down sure. today in a second. Critical race theory. I am almost tempted to play this clip again because he reveals what subliminally the Republicans are trying to do here with critical race theory. And that is scare. It's it's so blatant. That's why I played the clip. It's so blatant here because he's you know, he's getting older and he's off his game. So he's kind of showing the hand and the hand is convince stupid white people that the Democrats want black people to get even for slavery. And they're come that they've got the whip handle now and they're coming for you. And that's as old as Reconstruction. It's as old as Jim Crow. It's it's projecting onto black people what white people would do if we were enslaved. Exactly. So it's, oh, my God, we've treated black people so poorly. It only makes sense that they're going to come for us. Yeah. And and that's that is what critical grade, David. He said in the third grade. This is starting. I don't even think we teach history in the third grade, do we? No. <laughs> oh, but he thinks we're sneaking critical race theory in, in the third grade. It, it, it astounds me because I'm, my mind is on get rid of the guns. It's what are we going to do about climate change? What are we going to do about income inequality? What are we going to do about Medicare for all? And racism and LGBTQ 
writes, it, it astounds me how powerful bigotry and hatred, when coded this way, when sure. dog whistled, how powerful that is when people go to the polls. You've talked about how Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, before there was abortion, their cause was segregation. Of their private Christian schools. That's correct. But after the silver. Go ahead. Falwell, for many, many years, he didn't want to get involved in politics. He said that that is not the job of a pastor. You have to bring people to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he's offered, after many right wing figures of his era, he's offered to start an organization and run it called the Moral Majority. All of a sudden, within six months, he's preaching about how the most important thing Christians can do is get involved in the electoral process. I mean, he's a, he's a total hypocrite about everything. But it was about abortion. Time. This was like 79. This was like 1980. Yeah. But it wasn't about integration. He couldn't do that anymore. So he picked no. abortion, right? Right, because he thought he could also form alliances with Roman Catholics. And that said, this Catholic, evangelical, Protestant merger of the minds would lead to an end to abortion. Yeah, he did believe that. But prior to him being offered this wonderful position of being the head of the moral majority, he didn't want Christians to be involved in politics at all. It was dirty business. But he was a segre- but, but was he a segregationist? Bob Absolutely. Jones. Bob Jones was. Bob Jones was and Falwell was. What about what about Billy Graham? I mean, we know of his Oval Office tapes, his anti-Semitic Oval Office tapes. There was a big hagiography of him on the PBS last month that was unwatchable. I don't know if you saw it. No, I didn't. Was he a racist? Let me put it this way. I don't remember Billy Graham ever preaching a sermon in support of integration. I don't ever remember it, but right. I didn't hear him preach too often. Okay, before, but, before we get to the Trump organization, yeah. I wanna show you Ronnie Bullock. Uh, do you, and then, then this is just so much fun. So let me just play okay. you Ronnie Bullock and his okay. toupee. He has a great toupee. And uh... I watched Joe Biden during the the campaign that he clearly lost. He lost big. He lost enough to be ashamed. He lost enough to tell him nobody likes you, Joe. I mean, he lost enough to know that. I mean, it was so bad. If they would show him the real numbers, the man would be ashamed. But I remember he leaned into the mic and told President Trump, we're coming for you. And he growled out this demonic sound. I can't make the sound, but it was this demonic voice. I've heard him make it again recently. And he growled this out. When he did, I went back and I took a picture. I think it was at that moment, it was one of the moments I took a picture with my phone right on television. There's nobody else's picture. I took it, and when I pull, I was led to, and when I pulled it up, his eyes, at that moment, 
I can't see it, but tell me if we can put that up on the screen and it's clear on the on the eyes. We're trying to do something here for you. Okay, it's up there now. Yes, okay, it's up there now. Look at the eyes. If you look at the eyes, you'll notice they're, they're serpents' pupils. They're slotted pupils. Now, other times, they're not like that. But at times, it shows a slotted serpent's eye. And people say, oh, that was Photoshop. No, it wasn't either. I took the picture. And he shows up more than once with that slotted serpent's eye. It's because we're back at that place where they're trying to, Satan is trying to offer the world that their eyes may be open, but it's not King James uh, anymore. It's woke. Uh, this guy, I think yeah. he's right on this, though. Do you? <laughs> I kind of. Yeah. Yeah, the serpent eye thing. I worry. I can't sleep some nights just going, I hope I don't wake up in the middle of the night, go into the bathroom, look at the mirror, and see serpent eyes. So so this guy, Bullock. Yeah. What what's his his game is what? What what is he trying to You know, Frank, you know, he's one of these really bottom feeder religious right figures. I never paid much attention to him. He didn't have much clout. And just looking at him, and you know I'm very sensitive about commenting on people's appearances, but just look at him and then think, would the average Baptist church in South Carolina, conservative Baptist church, would they want this guy preaching in their church? No. And wouldn't they say things like, why does he dress in black? Maybe he's demon-possessed. All the things that he talks about would yeah. bounce back with him, and parishioners would go in horror away from somebody that looks like he does. What percentage of Americans believe that in Satan and the demon? Um, I, I think about 30% do. 30%. So 30% of American churchgoers believe there is a real Satan and his imps, his demons are real also. And, and what percentage of evangelicals would look at this guy Bullock and think he's a man of the cloth, even though he's not wearing, even though he's wearing leather? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. But I mean, I think it's a fraction. I mean, I think that this guy, this guy would be he would literally be thrown out of most churches. Although I have to say this, uh, I once had a debate, not on behalf of Americans United, because Americans United didn't have a theology, but on the question of what the Bible says about homosexuality with one of these itinerant preachers who goes around and debates liberals. And that night, it the, the protection, the security was from a Christian biker gang. Hmm. And they, a lot of them look just like this character. Leather he Heaven's jackets, Angels? Beards. Was it Heaven's they, Angels? They were, they, yeah, well, they, they weren't. They were, they were Heaven's Angels. Is that what you said? Yeah. No. But, um, yeah, it got, it got so ugly at the end. Like, they had to come up to kind of protect me from the audience because I had said some 
I mean, I was there for two hours and I remember standing up for my closing comment and I said, you know, you've been watching me and I can, but you have to remember, I have been watching you also. And I have never seen an angrier group of hundreds of people seated in one place as I've been watching for the last two and a half hours. And a woman in the front row, (laughs) she thought I was demon possessed. I mean, it's very hard, but these people vote. They come out and vote. There's nothing in primaries. This is why Republicans and, and as, as Harvey said, there's really no point in talking about good Republicans because there really aren't any. But um, you, you can't you can understand how easy it would be in a primary to take out people, even an Adam Kitzinger. I think Lynn Cheney, I think she's gone. I think even somebody like uh, Senator Murkowski in the in the kind of primary that they're going to have in Alaska, I I think she could actually lose. And that would be a good thing because she wouldn't lose to somebody more conservative. This would be an opportunity for the Democrats to field a legitimate candidate in Alaska. But you cannot imagine the terror of somewhat moderate Republicans when when they think about what if somebody who is just like Lauren Boebert runs against me. Right. We're, we're almost out of time. And I put off Weisselberg. And you are a lawyer. You remember the Supreme yep. Court bar. Cyrus Vance, his grand jury handed down. Are these slaps on the wrist? What, what, what's going on here? No, we're talking think, about two million dollars in unpaid taxes. Yeah, I think I think this is very serious. And I think the most that we learned today when they they unsealed the indictments was that there really is, they were cooking the books. They had two kinds of books where one book would say, this is what you should report to the Internal Revenue Service. That's what we actually pay you. And then they had a separate section, a separate uh, set of spreadsheets about what he was actually being compensated for that includes not just the cash that he reported to the IRS, but free rent, uh, a Mercedes for he and for his wife. I mean, it's all there. $50,000 a year to send the idiot grandkids to a private school. Exactly. But but what's what I didn't know, and I'm not sure anybody knew until looking at that indictment today, that they literally had another set of records that talked honestly and accurately about the compensation that he was getting. I mean, talk about stupid crooks. They're stupid crooks. Well, you know, most of MSNBC today was devoted to uh, people explaining why this is not that big a deal. It, it, it boggles my mind. MSNBC is, is saying it's not that big a deal? No, I'm saying this is a huge deal. But was MSNBC is, saying it's a big deal or MSNBC not? MSNBC had, had a lot of people on today, uh, lawyers saying, well, you know, it's it's unusual to an indict a corporation. And this doesn't involve necessarily Donald Trump or the kids or anything. I mean, it's just it's like but you, you remember, <laughs> I mean, MSNBC. Is not 
I've given up on that as anything like a progressive station. And I mean, I know you were criticizing Ed Schultz uh, in the segment before it was on, but Ed, Ed was the only guy who actually uh, you know, disapproved of the pipeline. Of course, General Electric and MSNBC loved the pipeline. None of the other hosts criticized it. And of course, he, he is essentially, he was fired because he talked about that. He also the fought the union. We, we have to wrap it up. I wish we had okay. more time. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation church and state. He is a member of the Supreme Court bar and uh, also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. I, I wish we had more time. Thank you, Reverend Barry Absolutely. W. Lynn. Go to barrywlynn.com and follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Enjoy your grandkids. Thank you. And happy Fourth of July. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. When we come back, we'll go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn should be. He's wasting his time with his grandkids in Massachusetts. Uh, I'm telling you, nothing good can come of that, Reverend. Stay out of trouble. Only good trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. When we come back, we will be joined by Congressman Ted Lieu's chief of staff, Mark Savasco. All right. Joining us in Washington, D.C. I hope he's here. Are you there? Uh, Let's go to Washington, D.C., where I believe Mark Savasco. Let me turn you on. There you are. Mark Savasco is Congressman Ted Lieu's chief of staff, and he joins us today from Washington, D.C. Let me unmute you. Everything and anything Mark says does not necessarily reflect the views of Congressman Ted Lieu. They do, however, uh, reflect the views of The David Feldman Show. Thank you for joining us. Hey, David. Good to see you. Well, We're playing clips today, so we'll start with this one. I know you wanted to talk about this. This was a, uh, well, the, uh, the statues. For the second straight year, House Democrats are pushing to remove Confederate statues from the U.S. Capitol, along with the bust of Roger Taney, a former chief justice of the Supreme Court, who infamously wrote the 1857 Dred Scott decision upholding slavery in the U.S. Most of the statues are still standing after the Republican-controlled Senate blocked the measure last year. Then-Majority Leader Mitch McConnell saying the move would be a bridge too far. All right. What's what's going on in Statuary Hall? I've walked through there and they they have some really unseemly characters. I guess it's up to the individual states to determine who's in Statuary Hall. Yeah, that, that's right. So um, part of the um, and I know I know a little bit about this because I in my first job on the Hill, I gave tours of the Capitol building. So, well, wow. um, uh, had to had to memorize a lot of this stuff. I've, I've forgotten most of it, but I do remember that the, the, the National Statuary Hall collection, every state sends two statues, um, every state. And I think ter- the territories do as well. Two statues, um, which are part of the collection. They're spread all throughout the Capitol. Um, and there are you're right. There, there are some really um, we'll just call them interesting choices from some of these states. I believe Mississippi has Jefferson Davis, right? Famously the president of the Confederacy. Um, 
Virginia, for example, Virginia is an interesting state. It, it just it shows sort of the, the the bipolar nature maybe of the state. They they send Washington on the one hand and uh, uh, Lee on the other. Um, so there are not Bruce there Lee. Are, not no, not not Bruce Lee, Robert E. Lee. Right. Um, so there are um, who's probably responsible for more American deaths than any any uh, Nazi or Imperial Japanese or, or anybody else. Um, so th- there are there are several uh, uh, famous statues and paintings of um, of Confederates, of people who who fought against the United States of America in in, a, in the Civil War. And so um, the position of uh, of House Democrats, at least, is that um, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be honoring these folks in, in the halls of the Capitol building. Um, so what, what, what was the bill that was introduced uh, recent, this week? Right. Correct. Yes. So this week we passed um, uh, we we passed a um, uh, a bill which would ask the architect of the Capitol to remove um, all Confederate statues from public display. Uh, It also includes the bust of of uh, as 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 was mentioned in in the clip you showed there, um, uh, Roger Taney, who was um, uh, Chief Justice um, during the Dred Scott decision. You know, declared that people. of African descent weren't U.S. citizens. That's obviously a deplorable position by today's standards. And look, this isn't an effort to erase history, um, you know, as some as some might claim. We, we you can read about these people in history books. We can you know we can learn about them in museums. Um, but every generation, I think, gets to decide who they want to try to emulate and who they want to honor in, in, you know, really prestigious positions in our, in our capital. And um, it's at least the position of our party that anybody who took up arms and fought against the United States of America probably shouldn't have a statue um, in the Capitol building. So last year we passed this, uh, the same bill or essentially the same bill uh, and it died in, in Mitch McConnell's graveyard in the, in the Senate. Um, and this year, hopefully, uh, we'll, we'll get this through the Senate and um, and these statues can be removed and, and new people can take their place. Um, but look, it was quite a week for Republicans in the House. Uh, you know, first they vo- they voted against removing statues and paintings of 19th century traders. And then they voted against investigating an insurrection perpetrated by 21st century traders. Um, so yeah. it, if there's a theme of the week for, for House Republicans, I guess it as we head into Independence Day, I guess it is decidedly pro-trader. Um, but, Which the uh, Republican is, Party uh, used to be. They were. You know, they were Reconstruction. The radical Republicans were the ones who wanted to raise the South and make them pay a heavy price for the Civil War. Uh, They were probably right. We we never really punished the South properly for secession and slavery. And we never made it settled law that... It was wrong to secede and wrong to own slaves. We compromised even after the Civil War. We had the Missouri Compromise and the Compromise of what, 1820 and 1845, you know, all these compromises. Then we fight the Civil War because you you can't compromise with evil. And after about 10 years of Reconstruction, we compromised once again, we pulled the troops out of the South and they were able to rewrite history, come up with their own narrative and say this was about states' rights. And Jefferson Davis ends up with a 
a statue in the Capitol. It's true. The only thing I would point out, I guess, is, you know, rewriting history is hard and, um, uh, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but maybe it's not always twenty twenty because you don't you don't always know what would have happened had you done something differently. There's lots of historical examples, you know, where, um, you know, where after, you know, one side beats another side, they they, they oppress them or they are, you know, they, they respond in a brutal fashion. And um, and those didn't don't end that well either. Right. You know, you, you end up ingraining a lot more um, resentment and and um, and fomenting, um, you know, and 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 civil wars don't ever really end. They just sort of you know, they just sort of jump from generation to generation. I, I, you could argue, yes, we've got a lot of issues in this country for sure. Um, uh, and 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 certainly, you know, some of this goes back to, um, you know, goes back to the Civil War and, and, and how, how it was resolved. But we also haven't been in a state of, of actual, you know, uh, kinetic warfare with, you know, with one another uh, since the Civil War. So, I, you know, they've got a pretty good track record. Right. right? Uh, you know, I don't want to I, I just I that's don't want to lump it all together. That's a, so, that's a good point. In order to form a more perfect union, I think it was the Compromise of 1850. I got that wrong. But. The point I was making is we compromise too much and maybe it's time to stop compromising with Republicans because they're not willing to compromise with us. The Republican leader in the House, McCarthy, supposedly said he will strip committee assignments from any Republican who sits on Nancy Pelosi's new Capitol Riot Select Committee. He's now denying that he said that, but he went after Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who has taken a seat on this select committee. Do we know if he's going to strip her of her committee assignments or has she already been stripped? We, we don't. We don't know yet. She, ha- she has not been, been stripped um, uh, as of, you know, whatever time, almost 9 p.m. East Coast on the 1st. Um, who, who knows what will happen between now and uh, when, when folks listen. But um, uh, uh, look, Liz Cheney, um, this was a brilliant move, I think, by the speaker to put Liz Cheney as one of her picks. Uh, number one, she she separated the committee in such a way. It's it's eight. Uh, she gets to a point eight and then five are uh, five are appointed with consultation with the consultation of the minority leader. So she reserves the right to veto anybody uh, so she can keep some of the worst offenders off of the committee. If that's what we decide is strategically the best thing to do, it might not be the worst thing, actually, to have a crazy person on that committee ranting and raving and and, and draw that contrast. Um, but but she gave herself the extra flexibility of being able to put Cheney on um, even though she is a Republican. So even if Cheney were, for example, to side with them on something, we would still have the clear majority at, uh, at seven, six. So, um, so there's really no risk to putting her on there. And if anything, it, it helps to add some of the legitimacy back that, uh, that we didn't get from doing the bipartisan commission. Um, uh, look, one side is clearly trying to be bipartisan here and, tr- you know, truly trying to work to get some to some ground truth. And, and, and one side is clearly not right. You have the majority, le- the minority leader threatening his own members, um, uh, you know, about joining this committee without um, uh, w- w- with with the speaker's invitation by saying he'll kick them off uh, of their other committee assignments or, or that I guess the way you put it was they should go to her and ask her for their other other committee slots as well. 
Uh, remains to be seen if he'll actually follow through and do that. But I'll tell you, he's in a tough spot now because at least if you, if you believe reports, and I have no reason uh, to believe otherwise, he did make this empty, empty threat, essentially, or this threat to uh, to his caucus. If he follows through, that's going to look bad. It's going to reignite all this sort of Republicans in, in disarray. If he doesn't follow through, he's going to look weak in front of his conference. So, um, you know, either way, he's kind of paid himself into a bit of a corner. Um, and uh, Why is and- McCarthy uh, going to be the next speaker if you guys lose next year? Well, what is his power? Fundraising? Money? Is there somebody behind? It has to be the money. He's sp- spreading money. Although with the Republican Party, you never know. Hastert, the only reason he was speaker, I think was he was a useful idiot who they knew was a pedophile. They had, they had something on him. Yeah. I mean, is, is, yeah. is McCarthy spreading money around or is he a useful idiot? You're not allowed to say anything, I understand. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, honestly, I, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Right. I don't have um, I have enough trouble keeping keeping track of the, the, the Democratic caucus. Well, we and, know why Pelosi politics we we know pelosi disperses money we we know that schumer disperses money so they get to be in charge of the democrats uh money talks in the democratic party uh i don't understand the republican party i, I really don't i it, they're they're but I, i've been watching why well, what i do understand of the republican party is terrifying Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, what I what I see is a, a playbook that's about, you know, 80 years old and it dare not speak its name. Do you see the same? You're not allowed to. I don't want to put you in a, in a difficult position. Uh, I spend most of my time fighting against bad things that Republicans are trying to do. So I um, name I, one I, good I, thing they're doing. If 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 you. If you had to say, well, like, you know, in Florida, for example, they just signed uh, this bill into law that's going to connect half of Florida's wetlands and forests to protect the animals, to protect the native species. I couldn't believe it. Florida has almost set the the gold standard for, for conservation. Uh, DeSantis. So, you know, despite all the craziness, Florida's taking care of their their animals. Tell me something good that the Republicans have done where you've seen evidence that we came to Washington to do the people's work. Is there anything you can cite? Oh, boy. (laughs) You're putting me in a t- uh, you know, I, I just I always laugh. I, I always remember the, the example we always used from the Bush administration was uh, was some of the work, uh, the, the foreign aid work, AIDS in Africa. Uh, that, was that was Helms like, and George W. Bush. Yeah, that was like the one thing you could hold up during the that George was w. before Bush that was 2006. Um, uh, Recently. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is pre uh, this is pre Obama. Uh, yeah, I, I you know, <laughs> um. I mean, look, they might say some of the stuff that they're doing is good. But from from my position, um, 
you know, I just, we, we, I have fundamental disagreements with, with, so some of the things they might point to are, are things that I would, you know, be diametrically opposed to like tax cuts or, or, you know, whatever. So, um, no, I don't have a very long list or any list, uh, per chance of, um, uh, of so what, what is their move? You know, we, we keep hearing they march in goose step, critical race theory. That's the new thing. They, they all it's fantastic. It really is the, what they do. They, they all warn us about critical race theory. And that's racism. It's the fear that black people are going to take over the country and get even with us the white people for slavery. I played a clip from Pat Robertson about a half hour ago. It's really worth watching again because he just puts the hand on the table and spells it all out. What, what the, the subliminal coded message is critical race theory is really designed. The, the reason the Republicans are bringing it up is black people are going to get even with us for slavery. Watch out. You better vote for the Republicans. Uh, that's what they do. They, they're in Washington to distract people like Congressman Ted Lieu and you from doing the people's work. Right. Just throw dirt in everybody's eyes so nothing gets done in Washington. I, I do. I do think there is a certain um, a certain element of that. Yes, um, for sure. And, and you can see that. Um, and you are right. They are very disciplined when it comes to to messaging and, and all repeating the sort of same thing. They have a, a 24 hour propaganda network in, in, in Fox News that that will, you know, uh, replay the, you know, the, the, the latest and greatest. Um, and uh, it's it's an echo chamber and and people sort of hear what they want to hear. And, um, you know, this is why we end up living in a country where at least a third, maybe sometimes as much as a half uh, of the country occupy the same space as us, but live in a completely different uh, reality. Um, have you ever heard of Jade Helm? Do you know no. what that is at all? Does that, so I didn't know what it was either until it was sometime in, Oh geez. I want to say maybe 2015, uh, 2016, maybe, um, this was the biggest conspiracy theory out there. Jade Helm was the name of a, it was a, it was a national guard operation, I think uh, in Texas, um, uh, just a training exercise that they were doing. We had more calls from crazy people throughout the country telling us about how Jade Helm was a secret trial run for Obama, who was right. going to keep power and not not leave office. And he was going to activate the National Guard and, and, and the military and capture. And these are these people believed it, that they were heartfelt about it. It, it was as true as, you know, anything was to them. Um, and then it just died with a fizzle. I mean, it reminds me of the QAnon stuff, which came obviously much later, um, uh, where people can believe stuff with their heart and soul um, and they get ginned up. I mean, this wasn't even mainstream Fox, I don't think, the Jade Helm stuff. It was mostly like Infowars and, you know, maybe you had Tucker Carlson mentioning it here or there. I don't even know if he had his show then. Um, but, you know, it, it, it made the rounds on whatever the crazy, cons you know, uh, conservative conspiracy theory pipeline was at the time. And, um, 
And then it just went away, right? Because Obama did actually leave office and, and Donald Trump became president. And um, nobody ever asks what happened to, you know, Jade Helm. This was something you guys were, they were very convinced that this was going to be a thing. Uh, and then it just wasn't. And this is what's happened with almost everything um, that's come out of the QAnon movement. And um, and it's so they sit, they, they sit. Let me, you know what? Let me play you Dan Bor- Borgino. I know, you know, it's I know I'm like a uh, kid with a new toy because I can play clips now. And I'm like the guy who suddenly quits drinking and now proselytizes sobriety. I've just discovered Fox News. I'm sorry. I apologize to my listeners. I've avoided Fox News for 10 years. I just didn't want to dignify it. But I'm beginning to see, and Professor Ben Burgess has said, you you ignore them at the, your own peril. And the thing that I've, what little I've watched is, yes, they're playing to idiots. They are capitalizing on people's stupidity and lack of critical thinking. But the people who are putting this stuff out are not idiots. They have a plan. And that it is to brainwash a large segment of the population not to challenge the richest 1%. Confuse, distract, and never let the viewer know that the richest 1% is robbing you blind. That is the mission statement of the Republican Party and Fox. And they're really good at it because nobody ever challenged. So the, the Biden did a great thing. He snuck into that last bill $300 a week for a child tax credit. And this is this guy, Dan Borgino. It's just truly astounding what he says and gets away with. Uh, if I can find it, I hope this plays. Hello, and welcome to Unfiltered with me, Dan Bongino. Are the Democrats purposely destroying the country, or are they just dumb? Well, they're not. By the way, you're a Democrat. Are you dumb or trying to destroy the country? (laughs) Well, I'm not purposely trying to destroy the country. (laughs) It's like those are the two choices. Okay. I just, okay, thank you. Answer that question for you right now. They know exactly what they're doing. And what do I mean by that? Are they purposely trying to destroy the country? Well, if you had a battle plan to destroy the country, one of the first things I would do is separate people from the dignity of work. I mean, no work, no products, no medicine, no food, no nothing. Another thing. I so do that's what I... they're doing, right? They're saying the dignity of work without work. There's no medicine Well, there's no medicine now. There's no food now. And they're subliminally saying without you have to work for this stuff. You can't depend on a handout. This is some real, really evil stuff. Chaos in the streets by doing everything you could to make sure public safety was in jeopardy and people had to rely on the government for everything because they were in fear. The Democrats know that these things they're doing right now have been tried to the past, in the past and have led to these two conditions, chaos in the streets and economic chaos everywhere. And yet they're doing them anyway. 
The recipe is right there. If you had a recipe for poverty to decimate this country from the inside out, Thomas Sowell decades ago just said it. Create a wage floor so people can't get skills to get in the job market through minimum wage. They'll never get a job. You know what the minimum wage is? The real minimum wage? Zero. Make sure the public Did you hear that? Mark? Yeah, yeah. The real minimum wage is zero. That's what they wish it was. Uh, look, I, I, I can't. Uh, I, uh, that's probably more Fox News than I've watched in a long time. Me too. Uh, <laughs> Me too. But this is what you're. This is yeah. This is what you're up against. Yeah. They, the real minimum wage is zero. They want to get rid of the minimum wage. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, you're, uh, I don't, I don't know what to say. There's, uh, there's, uh, I guess your, um, your taxes would be low. I suppose that would be one thing. <laughs> um, it, it, look, I mean, it, yeah, you don't have to imagine. You know, we used to. People say that we are, um, you know, every time an election comes around and and uh, people make claims like this is the most important election of your lifetime, or these are the things that are on the line, and. You know, uh, folks get accused of being hyperbolic. Um, I, I think when people tell you what they believe and we should believe them, um, you know, Donald Trump was was, you know, uh, I mean, he's a big fat liar in a lot of ways, but he was also sort of remarkably honest about things, too, mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. And and I think people uh, uh, people didn't always take him seriously. Um, and he got away with a lot because it was like, oh, he's just joking or he's just being Donald. Um, uh, p- people shouldn't get a pass just because they happen to you know be on fox news or or, or because they happen to be running for president or, or are the president of the united states i mean um yeah it's it's it uh, is it's, let me ask you a question playing that clip because i usually don't play clips on the show in all honesty hearing somebody say that uh, i was shocked that they would say that out loud and it begs the question why haven't why haven't I been watching Fox News? Why haven't I been listening to, to Sean Hannity and AM radio? They, you know, they say about, dare I say, Hitler, if you read Mein Kampf, it was all there. He told you what he wanted to do. And for some reason, I, I don't watch this stuff because I find it, quote unquote, insulting to my intelligence. Uh we ignore these we ignore this stuff at our own peril yeah when i was um uh, when i was running a college i i worked for a uh, you I ran a college i went to college yeah oh, I, I thought you said was... you ran a college oh no no when i was right out of college oh. i said uh right after college no i didn't run a college um Right after college, I worked in, in I did social work. Essentially, I, wor- I, I worked at a, um, a transitional housing program for mentally ill homeless adults and had to do a lot of driving. And, and sometimes at odd hours, I was taking people, you know, uh, different places. And I was like the, the gopher um, helping people move. And, and so I spent a lot of time in the car. I was, I was very tired. And I used to listen to right wing radio. Um, mostly because it, it made me so angry that it would keep me awake. I, right. wouldn't, I wouldn't fall asleep when I was doing it. But I did, I did make a lot of observations in, during that time. It did, it did sort of listening to it day after day. Um, it does start to wear you down a bit, right? You go into it thinking, 
I'm not as crazy as these guys, but I kind of get the gimmick, right? It's, it's entertainment, right? Uh, you know, I'm just, I like getting fired up a little bit about stuff and I don't mind if, you know, Hannity's, you know, he's a little bit crazy, but you know, a rush they're, they're, they're crazy, but, but I, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't agree with everything they say, but I can kind of listen here and it's kind of fun. And then you find yourself a day in a weekend, you know, months in, you, you start reflexively. And I would say things in conversation to people and they look at me like, what the hell are you talking about? This is not, you know, who you are or what you believe. And I, I, I would agree think with about you. it. And I realized they had started to, they started to get to me. I had recalibrated, you know, I didn't, I still wasn't as crazy as Hannity was, but I was, I was crazier than I was before when you weren't listening to it. And it is sort of like a, uh, it is a little bit like a poison in that way. It seeps in and, and it's slow and it um, it's, it's unassuming at first. You, again, you think it's sort of all in fun. And before you know it, you're, you know, you're getting arrested because you stormed the Capitol building. I mean, it's 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 true. They commit the sin of omission. I uh, John uh, Ross is a good friend of mine. And about two months ago, I watched Tucker Carlson. And because he carved the facts and left out just the right stuff, he had me convinced that there was video of Rodney King that I don't even want to talk about. It. It's it's just too embarrassing. He but Tucker, the way they edited it, they he had me convinced that uh, not Rodney King. I apologize. Uh, George Floyd. That there was video of George Floyd that they were keeping from the public that will make Chauvin a hero. And it was the way he edited it and the way. And then I rewatched it. and Oh, my God, that's anything but the truth. But I believe he got me. Uh, It's it's uh, I don't know. I'm going to pay. I know my listeners are too cool for school. And they know all the games that Fox and Own and Newsmax are up to. I'm a virgin, quite frankly. I have not watched this stuff. And it's designed by geniuses for idiots. Uh, does it ever, before you go, uh, and thank you for doing this. Do you ever ask Republicans what they believe? Like, what do you truly believe? Like Jim Jordan? Like, like okay, you, you believe because now they're going after the military. They're going at, they don't like the military. They don't like the Capitol Hill police, but they do love the military and they do love the police. But the police and the military are not doing their bidding so they want to replace the police and the military with, uh, you know, the General Flynn types who are subservient. Do you ever ask them what their end game is, what they want for this country? Well, certainly not the, the members, but um, uh, but I do have, you know, I, I have a working relationship, at least with with uh, with Republican staff and um I can tell you they kind of run the gambit. I mean, um, and I used to have way more, by the way. This was it was much more common to have Republican friends or friends from across the aisle, um, even even under the Bush and and early Obama years. And and a lot of that changed, unfortunately. Tea Party kind of poisoned a lot of that that well. But um, uh, 
but it runs a gamut. I, I, there, there are people that are that are tr- true believers, b- believe all that the, the crazy stuff that they say, and they'll tell you that you're wrong and you, you've been brainwashed by the you know by George Soros and the evil left, and and, and you're you're you know you're, you're not salvageable and there's nothing you can do. Um, but that's a very small minority. I'd say that's that's probably less than a third. Uh, less than a quarter, maybe even um, most are fairly, I mean, at least ca- of Capitol Hill staffers. I mean, these are people that are, um, you know, they're, they're usually fairly well educated. They, they have good, you know, uh, communication skills. I mean, these are, they're, they're smart people uh, in order to do these jobs. And, and most of them kind of get that this is a little bit of a, a little bit of a scam, right? right. They, they, they sort of, they, they, they sort of enjoy the game of it. Um, uh, who can be more clever with the words and get around, you know, the truth essentially. Um, and then, um, and then they, you know, they, they sort of stick around for a little while and then they, then they cash out and they go, Republicans are much better on Capitol Hill than we are about making relationships with lobbyists and with businesses. And, and there's no shame on their side of, of that revolving door and of moving, moving over very quickly and, and kind of, mm, I'm going to, um, uh, <laughs> I, I love you, but come on. <laughs> well, no, I, th- I think there. I think I think on our side there is there is some of that. I, you know, I I, I don't know that. Um, not for everybody, of course, but um, you know, look, the people that uh, I work with on a regular basis, uh, a lot of progressive activists, people like that. Um, you know, uh, they wouldn't be uh, if I told them tomorrow I was going to go work for Exxon Mobil or something. Um, you know, I, I do think that that has a that has sway. Let Not me play you a court. clip before you go. This is a clip from News 4 in Great Britain. This is. Uh, let me just play you this. News 4 did this. They they can't do it in America's Exxon Mobil advertises. So we would never see this on American television. And I'll take dead aim at the cap and trade bill. Joe Manchin, I talk to his office every week. Um, he is the kingmaker. Uh, he's not shy about sort of staking his claim early yeah. and completely changing the debate. Legal declarations show that Senator Manchin has received tens of thousands of dollars from ExxonMobil and its trade associations. Keith McCoy names 10 other senators as crucial to ExxonMobil. Senators Mark Kelly, Chris Coons, Shelley Moore Capito, Kirsten Sinema, John Tester, Maggie Hassan, John Barrasso, Steve Daines, John Cornyn, and Marco Rubio. All bar Kelly and Hassan have taken money from Exxon, totaling $117,000. We gave all these senators a chance to respond. None did so. <laughs> That's uh, News 4. Everybody should watch this uh, News 4. I think you can find it on YouTube. They What they did is they found this lobbyist for ExxonMobil named Keith McCoy, and they pretended they were looking to hire a lobbyist. And he was a lobbyist for ExxonMobil, and he bragged about the work that he does for ExxonMobil and he talked about how Joe Manchin, the Democrat, is one of the ExxonMobil's uh, best errand boys. So that's why the climate, that's why we're on fire, isn't it? Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I think some of the extreme weather we're you know we're seeing now um, and the frequency and, and the increased severity of it. Um, right. Uh, you know, all, all, all the all the scientists tell you the same thing that that points in the right. in the same direction. And I don't know what it's going to take to to actually cause some serious action on on climate. But some of us have been screaming about it for you right. Know, is it is it is it against the law to say I won't meet? Like you're the chief of staff for Congressman Ted Lieu, one of the best Congress people in Washington, D.C. Are you allowed to say no Exxon lobbyists within 100 feet of our door? Sure. Yeah, we don't have to meet with anybody. Right. If we don't want to. Um, so, okay. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Democrats can do that. Great. Mark Savasco is chief of staff for Congressman Ted Lieu. Everything he said reflects the views and opinions of the David Feldman show, but not necessarily the views of uh, Congressman Ted Lieu. And be careful reading the chat room. Are you reading the chat room? I'm not reading the chat room. Don't read the chat room. They are, uh, they, they're, uh, now I want to read the chat. No, I'm just are saying I have a feeling. Here's the thing. Are they talking about my serpent eyes? We're a snarky bunch. And they're and, you know, if so, they tend to uh, they don't trust. They, they, I don't I haven't read the chat room. I suspect that somebody might have uh because you're in Washington, D.C., they, they may uh, until you actually have to make the sausage until you until you have actually have to roll up your sleeves and make a bill and, and compromise. You can you can sit on, and we need people to sit off in the side and snipe and say nothing's good enough. Let's let's just put it this way. I, I'll leave it with this. Um, I look forward to my retirement when I can say exactly what I think about everything and uh, and not have to worry about who I, you know, who I offend or what I what I say. And I could just uh, I but, could then, just but, you, but, but when you're retired, together. you can't get things done. And well, that's true. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. That. Here's the thing. Uh, Ralph Nader, who is a purist, was celebrating the three hundred dollar tax credit that Joe Biden is giving every kid in America. And he said it, it. This is what Ralph Nader said on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour show this week. It's incredible that the Democrats were able to pull this off. And 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 the, and he said the fatalism, they want this fatalism. It's he says you get one percent of this country behind an idea. And there's no limit to what we can achieve. And he said, this is a major victory. The three hundred dollar tax credit. It's it's incredible. And you have to celebrate these victories. And it's hard to get these things passed. It isn't Medicare. Ralph didn't say this, but this is what occurred to me. You know, Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security have a big banner. Well, you can't pass that now because the Republicans won't allow it. So you have to sneak things in to the, you know, you got to sneak things into bills. But this is big, like chips is big. And and you can't just, 
I understand we need people to sit off to the side and snipe, but uh, there are great things that are being done in Washington, certainly from Congressman Ted Lieu's office, where Mark Savasco is the chief of staff. Thank you for coming on. It's always great. Always good to be here, David. Thank you so much. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. I've kept the professors and Marianne waiting, and they all have a hard out. And I see that Professor Adnan Hussein is here, and Professor Ian Faluna, and Professor Jonathan Bick, and Professor Marianne Cummings. And I promise you, we will be done by 10 o'clock. I apologize for keeping you waiting. There's Professor Ian Faluna. Are you still at the Russian River where the river is dried? No, I'm actually up in a place called Twain Harse in the Sierra foothills. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. Wow. And Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist, Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois, Professor Jonathan Bick, is a political scientist and it's good to see professor adnan who said i i i'm so honored you showed up uh i know everybody's so busy and you you find time hey i i know you all have stuff you want to talk about i've gone down the rabbit hole and figured out how to play clips on the show and you know I don't know if you we're not going to do it tonight, but I there are some things that I would love to play for you and have you talk back to some of these clowns because nobody it. Professor Hussein, do you watch Fox News? Do you listen to Michael Savage? Do you have any idea what they're what they're saying? I I do not. I listened a little bit to some right wing radio in the 1990s during the, you know, Rush is right uh, kind of era. Uh, The contract with America, it seemed to go hand in hand with that. And I was interested Uh, when Fox News came along. Occasionally they had this this show that um, had a liberal and a conservative. Um, I'm forgetting the name of these two figures. One was Hannity, but it was like Hannity. Oh, and Combs. Combs. Yeah, Yeah, Alan Combs died. I gradually saw, you know, Hannity come to abuse and brutalize Combs, who could not even get a word edgewise and was such a kind of weak willed figure that he seemed to accept this abuse until they just eliminated him entirely and they didn't even have any more of a dialectic it was just a mono voice of extreme right and i found it so uninteresting i kept thinking that well i should know what people are saying on the far right and i should watch but now with the internet i think you can find out you know without actually having to go through all of those commercials you know, which are endless and ridiculous. Uh, so it just is such a waste of time to watch cable news at all, I think. And that includes uh, MSNBC and CNN or any of them. I mean, um, you know, I just I just find out my news from sources on the Internet, YouTube, etc. And you might I, be missing breakthroughs in catheter technology. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me ask Professor Marianne Cummings. Do do you watch these shows, or do you think people like Hannity and Own and Newsmax 
end up serving the Democratic Party's best interest because they're so terrifying. People like me, the feeble minded, go for the lesser of two evils. Is, is, I think is, they serve their corporate masters. Right. And in fact, we over the last uh, several years, we now have two polarized silos of information. Yeah, I listened to Rush Limbaugh and all this guy. I actually used to get on their shows once in a while. I was on Michael Savage's show. He's a genius. Huh? Savage is a genius. No, he's, well, it was entertaining. He is. But this is, we're talking way back, almost 20 years ago, you know, so uh, nothing new there. What, What is a little kind of stunning is how bad msnbc has gotten and i haven't been watching regularly for several years but it's it's bad and the problem is if you've got a lot of people who watch msnbc have no idea what's going on in in the outer world do not read for a newspaper i mean if you watch if you watch cnn espanol which comes on in the mexican restaurants around here that seems to be plugged completely different news they at least show you like there are other countries you know south of mexico there are other countries south of the mediterranean it's so for the uh english speaking uh which is most of us you've got two just you know polarized silos of individuals who both of whom think they are better than average informed and who don't as i think it was uh, i can't remember who said it like to credit them, but they said it's basically Fox News is catnip for those who hate Democrats and MSC, MSC is, MSNBC is political catnip for those who hate Republicans. And it isn't informing you. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, Rachel Maddow actually broke news. I mean, she, you know, got she or her staff kind of got behind, you know, got the story behind Alec in all these state legislatures passing the same legislation taken over by Republicans. She was the first to make the Flint water crisis a national news story. She also made the emergency manager rule and how it was implemented in in, in Michigan a, a national story. That was years and years ago. She's barely mentioned Flint. And by the way, they still don't have water. They they still can't drink the water. They're so, you know, as I said, there's nothing new coming out of the Republicans. I mean, that lost interest long ago because they're repeating the same stuff. Jonathan Bick, Professor Bick, do you watch the other side? I do. Uh, I don't watch Fox. And by the other side, that includes MSNBC. Oh, yes. I definitely watch that. But, um, yeah, I, I can't watch Fox News because I, I promised myself not to self-harm. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I do try to uh, keep up with what their arguments are, uh, you know, what, what storylines they're pushing, uh, what nonsense they're making up. I think it's important to to stay uh, informed, but I don't think uh, you need to spend a lot of time uh, watching Fox News. So you watch your news diet, and yet Bella, her diet, out of control. I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't fat shame your cat, but as you were talking about your, your news diet, Bella came into the screen. Go ahead, Professor Hussein. 
I know. I think maybe she's eating Fox News. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Got to cut down on it. Yeah, it's bad for you. It's so gaseous, you know, and bilious. <laughs> it's just buffing her up. That's why she's bloated. Professor Faluna, uh, Professor Bick sent me a picture of Belle. There she is, that tail. Uh, beautiful face. Cats come in all sizes if you don't control what they eat. But. Uh, <laughs> She's 90% fur. Come on. <laughs> She's big furred is what you're saying. <laughs> People actually get pissed off. Do you watch this stuff? Oh, me? No, I don't. I had. I haven't had a TV in like 20 years. I don't. Mm. So, I don't really watch TV. So do you think, okay, I, I kind of, uh, I don't want to beat up on myself, but. I was flattering myself by saying, I don't listen to Fox. I don't watch Newsmax. I don't. And it's occurred to me that it makes me stupid and ill-informed not to know what who's driving the narrative and what they're claiming. And then I like a fool. I'm going, well, why can't our why is why are we so stupid? And why is the American? If you're not here, I mean, take a look at some of these clips I've played are astounding. Yeah, but do you really consider that being informed? I mean, listening to noise doesn't really strike me as the most valuable use of your time. Well, it, it, it's not necessarily noise because... I mean, is it information? I guess, I mean, no, it's propaganda. Right, so... Do you need to know all the details, the ins and outs and nuances of the propaganda machine? I mean, I, I just. I don't know. Let, let's go around. Anyway, I, I'm uh, hogging. Professor Hussein, what is on your mind today? Oh, I uh, just wanted to say on that issue um, about watching what's happening over on the other side. Um, you know, for example, right now there's all this critical race theory discussion. It's just one new discursive orientation, one minor variation within the same theme that they've been pushing since the 1990s, which is that PC culture is out of control and it's totally dangerous and has taken over America's campuses ever since the 1960s, where they feel they lost the university setting uh, as an institution. That's and with the end of labor or at least labor's retreat and various other rollbacks of universal programs, the cuts to welfare, etc. You had the narrowing of the institutional base of the left to college and university campuses. So they targeted that because that's all that is left really to the left. And so they've been making a big deal about how horrible it is. And this is just the latest of the same, you know, kinds of points they've been making. So you can kind of know what's, you know, I mean, it's interesting to see what is it that they will pick now as the latest, uh, you know, uh, you know, dimension of this issue and how they will try and make it seem useful, what contortions they will put actual critical race theory as a legal, you know, orientation that developed in the 1980s and 1990s to explain why structural racism, you know, how to understand that structural racism existed since legal changes hadn't wrought 
the actual outcomes that everybody would have expected if you thought that law itself was the causal factor. So they had to look to other sorts of explanations. This is what it was. It was a legal theory. And that, of course, is nothing like what critical race theory means to the Fox News right and what they're pushing. It's some complete caricature of that. And so it's really more about the continuing assault on PC culture as the greatest danger in the in the fighting the, the culture war. So, you know, you could watch Fox News to see, well, what's the latest thing? But you kind of know what the thing is. Hmm. Interesting. Well, what is on your mind today, Professor Jonathan Bick? Uh, well, David, yeah, and I'll just say real quickly uh, on, on that last point uh, that, you know, when you go out into the world and, and you interact with everyday people uh, and, and you want to have some kind of an impact when you're when you're talking to them, you have to be prepared uh, for what they think they believe. Right. So it may be well be informed by Fox News and these other right wing sources. So you should be prepared to counter and to point out, you know, how wrong those things are, you know, that that they're just ludicrous if you if you really think about it. So if you can think of ways to do that, uh, that's conversational and that, uh, you know, won't offend people, um, I, I think that might be a good thing. So uh, that's why I, uh, one of the reasons I try to understand what, what the propaganda from the right is. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to point out, uh, one of the members of the uh, Feldman community uh, pointed out this study uh, to me, that would be Rodrigo, and uh According to a recent study by the London School of Economics, reducing taxes on the rich uh, leads to higher income inequality, but this does not have any significant effect on economic growth or unemployment. The, reach, the researchers of this study uh, say governments seeking to restore public finances following the COVID-19 crisis should therefore not be concerned about the economic consequences of higher taxes on the rich. Uh, you know, because the story has been, well, look, if you give the wealthy uh, and corporations uh, lots of money, uh, they will be, they will have the resources and they will be incentivized to create jobs and this will benefit everyone in the economy. Uh, this is patently untrue. It's supply side economics, the Laffer curve. They've been pushing it for 40 years, essentially. Exactly. And this paper uh, looks at 18, it looks at data from 18 OECD countries, including the UK and the US, over the last five decades. The OECD is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is a group of the world's wealthiest countries. Uh, this paper called The Economic Consequences of Major Tax Cuts for the Rich shows that the last 50 years were a period of falling taxes on the rich in these advanced economies. It reads, uh, quote, our results show 
that major tax cuts for the rich increase the top 1% of pre-national, uh, pre-tax and national income in the years following the reform. And by reform, they mean the tax cut. Uh, the magnitude of the effect is sizable. On average, each major tax cut for the rich leads to a rise in the top 1% share of pre-tax national income of 0.8 percentage points. The results also show that the economic performance as measured by real GDP per capita and the unemployment rate is not significantly affected by major tax cuts for the rich. The estimated effects of these variables are statistically indistinguishable from zero. The report continues, our findings on the effects of growth and unemployment provide evidence against supply side theories and suggest lower taxes on the rich will induce labor supply responses from high, high income individuals more hours of work, more effort from workers, et cetera. This is not the case. Uh, they are in fact more in line with recent empirical research showing that income tax holidays and windfall gains do not lead individuals to significantly alter the amount they work. In line with other empirical studies that have found substantially declining taxes on the rich in the last decades from the late 1960s to the 1990s, the average value of the latent variable for taxes on the rich across the sample dropped more than 30%. This indicates that tax policies on the rich have converged among OECD countries over time. Now, I think this point is important because there are those who argue that we can leave the economic power under the control of capitalists and that there's no reason to believe that they will use this power to manipulate the political system to benefit the ultra wealthy at the expense of everyone else. This study looks at a half a century of data and uh, the historical record proves contrary to that belief. The country study in this paper include Australia, Austria, Belgium, Canada, Germany, Denmark, Finland, France, Ireland, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Norway, New Zealand, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United States and the United Kingdom. The share of tax paid by the wealthy in all of these countries has decreased for decades. And this includes all Scandinavian countries. All of them were included in this. And I mention that because they are the best examples of social democracy. That is a strong welfare state, uh, you know, high standard of living and uh, very low, if any, poverty. So why has this happened? Why have the tax rates declined even in the Scandinavian countries? And why has the welfare state been slowly eroded even in those countries? It's because the power of concentrated economic resources was used to corrupt and undermine the democratic process. And academia. Yes, yeah. It, it's been imposed and propagandized you know, across the institutions, from think tanks to academia, to government, uh, 
you know, it's just infused, it was infused into the culture and it wasn't by accident. It was using these immense resources that were left in the hands of the business owners that, uh, that were able to force this on the public. So my point is concentrated economic power leads to concentrated political power. It is inevitable. The only long-term solution is to distribute economic power much more equitably through more equal income and wealth ratios. This is achieved through cooperative ownership and management of business, high levels of unionization, codified vigorous rights in the workplace, steeply progressive income and wealth taxes, and dramatic democratization of the political systems that make governments responsible to the will of the, of the people. Yeah. Amen. We're, I promised everybody we would end by 10. And, uh, you know, supply side economics has been disproven for decades. But every every university has a business school and they push this as a legitimate theory. Glenn Hubbard runs the business school at Columbia. He was exposed as a fraud uh, in that Matt Damon documentary that came out right after the financial crisis. And, you know, but, it, but he's advising presidential administrations, right? Right. Yes. Professor Hussein, do you want to talk about the bombing in Syria? We were supposed to talk about that last week, but uh, I uh, ended up talking about how rich people should their kids should be round. I don't know, something <laughs> some nonsense. always a useful topic uh, <laughs> bears repeating. I mean, but uh, uh, yeah, I was actually there were two main topics that I was interested in talking about um, on Monday, one of which was uh, the Syria bombing. Um, and so we could certainly talk about that. And the other um, was uh, talking about this new national strategy that the White House has put forward on countering domestic terrorism. Well, let's talk but, about the Syrian bombing, because to okay. me, the, it's presented as the carrot and the stick approach towards Iran. Like, yeah, we, we well, want you've made the connection that I think is the important one to recognize and realize in terms of the broader implications beyond, of course, the terrible implications that are of the U.S. being involved in imperial attempts at imperial management and control within the Middle East in Syria and how the bombing actually puts us on a path of greater and greater conflict and of increasing involvement, which is the inexorable logic that we've seen of these kinds of uh, interventions and attempts at creating uh, sort of uh, red lines, you know, again, you know, after which uh, if they're crossed, we end up having to be uh, in involved with more and more military involvement. But quite apart from the details and of that scenario, uh, most of what seems to be happening is a kind of proxy conflict of 
uh, putting pressure on Iran to try and force them. And this is essentially a repeat. You know, this is not the first bombing of the Biden administration in the Iraq-Syria zone against very similar types of groups that are affiliated or associated or supported by uh, Iran um, as militia groups and forces in you know, that are are Shi-oriented and are countering the United States and the influence of U.S. allies in the conflict in Syria and and Iraq, right? So that's what that is happening is that there are proxies, there are U.S.-sponsored, you know, uh, groups uh, that include ISIS, you know, uh, just look up Timber Sycamore. I think somebody suggested you look that up uh, in the past. And if you have looked it up, listeners and and David, then you know that the United States was in, involved in sponsoring extreme jihadist groups to topple, uh, to basically take over uh, the Syrian opposition, to arm them, uh, and to use those extreme radical jihadist groups to try and topple uh, the Assad government in Syria. Um, so the U.S. has certain proxies that it's supporting um, to achieve its geopolitical interests and goals in the in the region. And likewise, Iran has its groups that it supports that are from, you know, uh, Shi'is in Iraq, Shi'is in in um, southern Lebanon, Hezbollah, and. Um, this fight and conflict that is going on um, is being used by the Biden administration to try and force Iran to make the first move in uh, shutting down its uh, enrichment of uranium uh, that is, uh, you know, been uh, taking place outside the parameters of the joint agreement uh, that had been created under Obama, the so-called Iran nuclear deal that Trump canceled. And as a result, Iran, um, partly to sort of encourage the U.S. to come back to the negotiating table, said, well, if you impose these sanctions and cancel the deal, then we will start enrichment. They had not been enriching beforehand. And so now, in order to return to the deal, which had been a stated goal of, you know, Biden's foreign policy during the campaign, um, you know, there's just uh, been kind of confusion here about how committed, um, you know, the Biden administration really is to it, because instead of just seeking to return to the deal, they're seeking to have Iran begin without any assurance that the U.S. is actually lifting the sanctions um, and and to have to force them to, um, you know, stop uh, enriching, enriching uranium. And so Iran claims that since they were not the party that broke the deal or withdrew from the deal, that the onus is on the United States to indicate that it is actually serious about the deal since they made it, they broke it. You know, now the question is, is are they actually going to remake it? And if they are, then why not show that you're going to lift the sanctions? And then Iran says that they will then submit to the inspections and stop 
enriching uranium. So I think it's, you know, this is what we discussed with Juan Cole earlier this year. We had a wonderful discussion with him about it. And it's basically a repeat of the same scenario, but clearly the Biden administration has not been reading informed comment um, and doesn't really seem to absorb the lessons that, um, you know, he outlined there. And I think what it suggests to me, and I'd be interested in the rest of the panel, it suggests to me that even though he, you know, expressed um, commitment to it as part of his continuation of Obama's legacy as his uh, former vice president, that in fact, perhaps he was not certainly not necessarily uniquely or personally committed in his foreign policy ideas to it, but he served, you know, Obama and it was really Obama's um, kind of uh, idea and and policy. And um, he used that to uh, get elected by saying he will continue the good work of of Obama, but is not himself necessarily that committed to it. And he's a bit more of a belligerent, uh, maybe not quite as bad as Hillary Clinton in terms of being a war hawk, but somewhere between Obama and Clinton in terms of the strong line that he wants to take vis-a-vis Iran. So I wonder, you know, if people agree with that or they think you know, he's just, you know, what I don't know how, how else to explain. And there, there could be other explanations, but I can't think right now of how else to explain uh, his unwillingness uh, to take any genuine concrete steps, but instead actually to play with fire here by potentially uh, inflaming the situation much worse by trying to put pressure through these proxies on Iran. What what was the excuse they gave? What what were they saying that they were they were trying to keep Iraq from uh, intervening in Syria's civil war? What why would what justified the bombing? Well, yeah, this is I mean, well, one you know way of justifying it is to say that this was an attack on you know this is a response to an attack that happened on a U.S. Uh, facility. Um, that killed, a, I think it was a, a Filipino contractor uh, working for the U.S. government, for the Defense Department. Um, but of course, these are silly. I mean, it depends where you begin your histories to talk about it as a reaction like that just doesn't pay any attention to the other things that were happening immediately before that you can find any reason was a response to, right. you know, from the, you know, from the Iranian side. Right. So basically, um, it is, yes, that I think, um, yeah, I think that the, the fundamental problem here is that uh, Hezbollah and other Shi'i, um, you know, militias from Iraq, so you had from both sides, were intervening on behalf of the Assad government um, in um, the conflict in Syria to uh, oppose and eliminate, as they have done in other theaters, um, you know, uh, the jihadist, uh, Sunni jihadist oriented groups. You know, so the groups that we invaded Afghanistan to eliminate and began the global war on terrorism are the groups that these Shi militias 
and Hezbollah strongly oppose and have been fighting and doing much more than almost any other group to eliminate both in Iraq and in Syria. But because they don't serve U.S. Uh, goals, um, the U.S. has gone back to the previous policies before it started the global war on terrorism of supporting and promoting these jihadist groups to achieve its geopolitical goals uh, you know, in, in the region. If we recall, the, the Mujahideen were a creation of Saudi funds and CIA kind of training and, and, and weaponry, you know, that fought the, the Russians in Afghanistan, right? And similarly, the Saudis sponsored uh, basically terrorist uh, groups in East Africa during the Cold War in the late 70s and through the, through the 80s. Um, you know, against kind of socialist and secular uh, nationalist movements, um, liber you know, newly liberated countries and the movements that liberated them from colonialism had often a rather socialist orientation. They may have interpreted differently than, say, the Soviet Union, and they maybe they didn't want necessarily to be absorbed into a full military alliance under the you know warsaw pact and the soviet bloc etc but the united states typically saw them saw militant third world nationalism because it often had a redistributive kind of policy that there would be some big land reforms there would be big centrally directed infrastructural projects and you know ways to uplift the you know these people after you know freedom from colonial uh, uh, empires and the u.s opposed those and one ally that it found to help finance and orchestrate movements um, in East Africa were, were the Saudis. And so that same pattern, somebody who is very good on this is uh, Mahmoud Mamdani, who is a political scientist at Columbia University, or at least used to be at Columbia University. He might be back in Uganda or in, in Kampala, um, who wrote um, quite a lot on East African liberation movements and the Cold War in East Africa. And in one of his books, um, one of his many books, um, uh, uh, Good Muslims, Bad Muslims, uh, um, he you know, talks about uh, you know, developments in the 1970s where the Saudis were involved with helping to finance on behalf of the U.S. terrorist movements um, um, against, um, you know, uh, governments in, 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 in East Africa. Hmm. Wow. So the U.S. now is going back to, so when people think, oh, this is some strange and bizarre about face, you know, you know, a ironic twist of the cold, war, you know, of the war on terrorism is that now the U.S. is supporting if they actually believe in and and find out about this. Many people will not even, you know, acknowledge that this has been the case. Uh, but those who do think of it as some kind of new realignment, when in fact, actually, it's a return to the policies that the U.S. pursued in the late Cold War period. Great. I, I'd like to do follow-ups, but I promised we'd all be done by 10, or you guys and gals and would be done by 10. Uh, I've been told it's all right to say you guys. All right. Mm -hmm. Professor Faluna, uh, Lisa is telling us that uh, they are evacuating a city in British Columbia whose temperatures reached 
120? I, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, yeah. The I heat didn't hear dome. About the fire, but that is what I was going to talk about. The heat dome. The, Again, with the climate change. <laughs> it's just. Uh, it's incredibly unavoidable nowadays. Like, is it really on. that bad? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know where you were. You're on the east east of the heat wave, but it's, we were. It's I was bad. told not to leave my apartment, but I thought that's just because I'm a creep. But Cuomo, they said, do not leave the apartment. It was really so hot. Bad. It was so hot. Wow. Well, it was so hot today. I saw. Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein again. Yeah, that's. Hang on, where's my bump? Um, so the heat waves. The reason I wanted to talk about this is, is that people might not know this, but the National Weather Service keeps statistics on weather fatalities, and the long-term average is always dominated by heat waves. It kills more than um, floods, tornadoes, even rip currents. These things. So the 30-year average is something like 140 people die per year of heat waves. This, this recent uh, heat wave in the Pacific Northwest killed, like, likely killed more than that in one go in June, the first month of the summer. So and the, the other thing about heat waves that's, that's crucial to understand is that in terms of all the extreme weather events, this one is the most easily attributable to global climate change. Right. So, you know, a lot of these other ones are still scientific debate about this thing. But this this, this is the easiest thing to attribute to that. So, yeah, British Columbia, 118 degrees. Portland, 116 degrees on Monday. Phoenix had high temperatures of over 115 for six days in a row. Um, And the highest June temperature ever measured in Mexico, just south of the border, was 124.5. I mean, it's a brutal, brutal heat wave. The other thing about this heat wave and and a pattern that you can see in the data is not only are the events getting more intense, they actually cover greater and greater areas. So this thing, like I said, stretched from the Mexican border all the way up to into British Columbia. And now if you look at the current US drought monitor, which is updated weekly, there is 20% of the continental U.S., which is categorized as either extreme or exceptional drought conditions. 20%. Most of that, again, through that whole region from southern Arizona up to Washington. So it is brutal. And this is as we had in and brace ourselves for another fire season. Um, these kinds of temperatures just dry everything out and make, uh, make for more masses of kindling everywhere. So... I just wanted to, I don't know, bring in a few statistics about that. I hadn't heard about the fire in British Columbia today, but, um, you know, and just thinking back over the, over the decades, how this has progressed, um, you know, those reports in the 80s, uh, those, those um, testimonies to Congress, which was declaring that this is human-caused and needed to be addressed, so that's 40 years old, um, this is all somewhat predictable is, is what I'm getting at. But um, you remember in the, in the European continent in 2003, there was a heat wave that killed 70,000 people. That was huge news. Uh, and then the Russian heat wave in 2010 killed something like 50,000 people. Uh, studies indicate that this, the chances of those events happening were 
approximately three times greater because of human-induced climate change. Um, last year, we saw the Arctic Circle. Temperatures in the Arctic Circle exceeded 100 degrees Fahrenheit for the first time in ever recorded. And, um, and a recent study showed that 22% of the population populated in agricultural areas in all of the Northern Hemisphere are impacted by these exceptional heat days now. So um, I think it's, I think it's pretty urgent. I think it's, uh, and, and it's, it's so like immediately associated with to say that, you know, Harvey dropped a bunch of water and that's due to climate change. That's a couple of logical links steps away. This heat is just a direct, direct um, connection. And so it's very simple for people to understand. In fact, the last book by Kim Stanley Robinson, you know, the science fiction author who lives in Davis, um, Ministry of the Future. He posits that there's this actual global movement that's initiated by this massive kill off and a heat wave in, in northern India is, is, the, um, is this fictional idea. And I thought that was an interesting idea in that this could be something that could capture people's imaginations um, and, and make the connection to what we're doing to the climate so so succinct that perhaps um, someone will strangle <laughs> strangle our leaders. Before Professor Marianne un- unmutes herself, I have a quick question. The highest temperature we're seeing is what? How high Where? are we? Huh? Where? In Phoenix. What, what is, what is, how high has it gotten? In like 100, have we gotten to 115? Oh. Oh, if you go to Death Valley, yeah, you're in the 120s. Okay, I mean, 100. What can, there? I mean, this is the, the, the interesting thing is British Columbia, way far north. These are climates that do not have air conditioning. Right. They saw 118 degrees. 118. What can a human being endure? Mm. How high can it go before? That's an interesting question. So it turns out it's got a little bit more to do with what's called the wet bulb temperature. Which is, it, because we sweat, right? That's our natural way of heat of cooling. Because the evaporation of the sweat extracts energy from our from our skin and allows us to, to uh, maintain a lower uh, temperature. So, meteorologists make this measurement where they wrap a little piece of cotton that soak it in water around a, around a uh, thermometer and then sling it around, and they let the water evaporate, and then that draws the temperature down. So really, it depends on the dryness and the humidity, right? So it depends on the humidity and the temperature that establishes this, what's called the wet bulb temperature. It's like we, in this place, we have a swamp cooler. And the swamp cooler is, is, is cooling the air by just evaporating water. And so the, the temperature that you can bring down, the lower that wet bulb temperature, the more you can survive, in, even in blistering heat, like in the desert. But when the, when the humidity is high and you can't evaporate that much water, um, then you get these high wet bulb temperatures. And so that's the one that really is sort of most directly dangerous to humans. And what are the numbers? Like how high? You know, I don't, uh, I don't really know. I mean, if you think about it. Well, a sauna. What is a sauna? When you go into a sauna and a steam bath, how hot does it get? I don't know, 110, 120 maybe? I mean, a hot tub's 104, right? So I think a sauna's probably a little higher than that. And you can, but that's extremely humid. So that's a very high wet bulb temperature in there. 
So, um, but you know, these temperatures are, are attributing, they're attributing, it's a little difficult to do, but they're attributing it to deaths in, in the orders of hundreds of people. So, you know, I'm sure it depends on the health and the, in the environmental conditions of each person, but you know, it's, it's killing people. I don't know what, that there's a threshold number. I, I'll have to look into that and see if I can get you a better number. Professor Marion, it's, it's truly astounding how they can scare us about, you know, black people and crime. They love to terrify us. Right. But here there's, you know, calm down. There's, no need, you know, it'll change. You have to unmute yourself. I muted you because there was some sound coming from your mic. Yes, there's either gunfire or fireworks, probably fireworks. Yes. Okay, that seems to come down now. Yeah, yeah, The uh, there's a DNI summary of uh, domestic terrorism, and uh, they've got a list. And uh, half of us are on that list of potential domestic violent terrorists, extremists, as they call DVEs, uh, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, animal rights, number two is animal rights slash environmental violent extremists. Well, hang on for one second. They are saying now, the conservatives are saying that white nationalists are not the biggest threat when it comes to terrorism. It's environmental environmentalists but where does this where where's this coming from you saying the dni the well there's this like you know this is the office of the director of national intelligence that's a summary on domestic violent extremism and this is a new report this is a new report it came out about a week ago and you can just get it it's it's a, it's on oh actually it's not a it came out about weeks ago they say that oh they released it about a week ago but this was like dated for march of this year but they released it, they declassified the summary, and so you can go get it. So, uh, oh, anti-government, anti-authority, possible violent extremists. That's people who question the, uh, the authority, natural authority of the government, who, or the economic structure, meaning commies. So they're no longer saying that they're no longer, because it, w- it was, we were being told since the Obama administration that the biggest domestic threat of terrorism came from white nationalists. Mm -hmm. They're no longer saying that. Well, they're saying that there are all these other groups. I mean, they still put racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. So I guess you would put white white terror. You would put white supremacists under that. But they've got like four other categories that they, uh, and, and believe me, vegans are going to be their own category pretty soon. But no, this is kind of like, this is kind of like nuts because we're sitting here, we're supposed to be whipped up in fear about each other. You notice this is the violent terrorism. And then we've got, we've got climate change happening, but they're worried about some 12 monkey scenarios because me and a bunch of my vegan friends might, you know, be joining forces with PETA and like and letting all the cows loose from all the uh, you know the the uh, factory farms or whatever. I mean, this is this is kind of silly. But I, I thought that the anti-government, anti-authority kind of category was particularly like problematic. So that would be you know anyone like our friends over at the Marxist Sour. 
I'm pro-government. What are you talking about? I want big government. I, I'm, I'm, of course. I'm, I'm a lefty. I, I believe government's the answer. Yeah. I would think a Marxist believes in big government. But who's anti-government? I want more government. Yeah, but uh, particularly, I think it was the Defense Department came out with their own assessment about, you know, socialist and Marxist ideologies being a threat and a possible source of domestic violent extremists. So, Professor yeah. Hussein, am I misreading Marx? Doesn't no, yes. Yeah, see, this this is exactly what everybody um, who was who has a sense of history and has been following what the security and surveillance state has been all about was concerned uh, would happen after the January sixth is that there would be a human cry that would be the aegis under which yet more. Uh, draconian and wide-ranging, you know, a wide net of phenomena would be characterized as um, domestic violent extremism. And um, now we're seeing, you know, those fears come to, you know, reality. And for those people who think that the eco-terrorism angle is some you know, uh, strange new way of trying to uh, make sure that the administration isn't pushed to actually do more uh, to change, uh, you know, its policies uh, because of climate change. In the 1990s, before, you know, Islamic terrorism was clearly the winner in terms of the state uh, apparatuses, um, you know, marketing campaign to ensure that we could put in all of this um, surveillance architecture and, you know, uh, you know, uh, go and pick up, you know, people and detain them indefinitely and, you know, have extraordinary rendition and so on. They actually, I remember under Clinton, maybe even under late Bush uh, senior, that there was great concern in the about you know, eco-radicals in the Pacific. The Northwest. Earth First. There was one Earth woman. That they, they, she they blew up. Logging campaign. Yeah. They were stopping loggers by putting in st- stakes or spikes in the trees. And this was really portrayed and represented as an extremely dangerous phenomenon that was emerging. Um, and it was the shape of terrorism to come and that w- we would need to take special, you know, uh, special measures to infiltrate and suppress these radical groups of eco-terrorists. So, you know, this has a history, and the history is that the state has been looking for ways to expand its powers under emergency sort of conditions and emergency laws, and to use the state of so-called exception, of extraordinary exceptional circumstances to justify new norms of state control. And so I think we're just seeing that. And so I, you know, I really do not like the way in which outrage over January 6th, which I considered dangerous. I consider that this could be a prelude to further right wing organizing, that they would seek inspiration. But I would never agree to use those concerns to expand state power. That's, well, yes, that's I mean, it's a real parallel between 911, which again was a very dangerous, yeah, these people were very dangerous. People forgot that Clinton 
like not even six weeks into his first term, had to deal with an attack on the World Trade Center, which if it had gone off as planned, probably would have killed more people. I'm sorry, you all. I have to boogie. Yes. Okay. See you all. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, keep up the thank you. But I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, Clinton actually had a whole network. He actually had competent people that were talking to each other in the various departments to stop terrorism, which they successfully did many times. The Bush people get in and their their national security directive of February of 2001 basically dismantles all of that, dismantles it. We were basically blind, you know, just kind of like whoever the uh, whoever uh, uh, Mitch McConnell or whoever was on the board just had the Capitol Police at minimum security. We had our national security standing down. We get attacked. And the first thing is not to really find out what who screwed up, but like to build all these other edifices like the Department of Homeland Security like the Patriot Act. And, you know, we're still, and they're still keeping it alive. Democrats and Republicans are completely on board because they serve the same people. So as we're watching these temperatures all over the country, we're supposed to still be afraid of each other and not what's actually happening to us. Like, you know, your Game of Thrones fan, the dead are coming. <laughs> it was like, we need to like quit whipping up hatred against each other, especially those of us who are just basically working class or middle class people. Oh, another terrorist just joined us. <laughs> Emil. Peter, Peter, Peter. I think it would be helpful if we push back and say, let's see the data. Let's see who is committing the violence. Let's see how many people have been killed by uh, vegans. <laughs> You know, in furtherance of their vegan agenda, uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, professor, pro pro professor Vick, this is a very real thing. There's a reason why you don't see as many PETA demonstrations out there anymore. And it's because they would get arrested because of the, you know, the anti-terrorism laws that specifically go after, you know, animal rights activists. So, yes, uh, I'm yeah. glad you're raising the awareness of this because it's... Uh, it, it's actually changed. It's made the vegans become shareholders in in companies to try to get them to do the corporate the corporate bidding. And in fact, one the the big thing last week was can the goose uh, is decided to go in uh, to, to go anti fur to to un, uh, to go fur free is uh, no coyote fur anymore. No coyote fur, but they're still feathered, and that's going to be the thing. Are they going to dump the goose down? And so they, I guess it'd be Canada polyester or Canada fiberfill right. or something. Because the down feathers are really, they're inefficient and they're, they're bad. But like I said, it's changed. Everything has changed in animal rights activism because of that anti-terrorism thing. Talking Have there been any PETA activists who've blown anything up? Not that I know of. Uh, um, no, I, in fact, the blood, the so-called blood on fur coats is is not is not real. I think I, you know, that's always blown up as a kind of PETA, uh, as a kind of myth about PETA. But, but PETA is just a bunch of fun-loving uh, animal rights people. Come on, they want to, they 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 
all right, they believe in euthanasia, but that's like the worst, yeah. you know, from some people's perspectives. But we could talk about no-kill shelters. And you can talk about euthanasia because I'm going to do the old joke. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I even I heard that joke. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it does. Okay. Uh, I'm going to leave, David, but I, I just wanted to yeah. say, um, you know, th this is why categorizing terrorism as a crime is very problematic. Whatever the crime actually is can be prosecuted as such. If it's murder, if it's kidnapping, if it's, uh, you know, reckless destruction, whatever it is, there are plenty of laws that can be used to prosecute those people. You don't need to create this amorphous, all-encompassing term of t terrorism where you can put stuff anybody into it that you don't happen to like. And just completely negate habeas corpus. Basically, we're, we're, we're negating the Magna Carta. Yeah. And that yeah. was Obama did that. That's right. correct. Very That's dangerous, correct. very dangerous stuff. And it's just uh, crazy. Um, yeah, I will. I just want to end, though, on a, you know, on a positive note, like I usually do. Um, apparently, a major witness in the United States case, uh, uh, Department of Justice case against Julian Assange, has just admitted to, to fabricating all of his key accu uh, accusations. This, this came out in the Icelandic newspaper, but has since been, uh, which has an English-speaking version, which has since been, you know, just kind of... Uh, has been circulating around at least lefty progressive circles. Uh, Sigdur Ingi Thornson was recruited by the U.S. authorities because you remember um, the Trump administration went after Assange on espionage charges. You know, the, the even the Obama administration wouldn't do it because they said they had a New York Times problem because New York Times and Washington Post and all these major news sources took WikiLeaks as a source for a lot of their stories. So anyway, but they claim that in getting the uh, information in those horrible uh, uh, videos of us committing war crimes in Iraq, that Assange actually actively committed espionage and actively instructed somebody on how to uh, break into these uh, national security, which would be a crime. And it turns out they got this guy who is a liar, who apparently was working for WikiLeaks for a while, but uh, has been accused of embezzling more than $50,000 from them, among other things. But he's just go around and turned around and said that everything he said about Assange instructing him to do all of this illegal hacking type activity was just, he made it up. Right. So, I mean, if the... Biden administration doesn't immediately drop these charges or very soon, then they're just as much a fascist terrorist type of front than, you know, the worst, the, the worst fantasizing is about Trump. A British judge, if I recall, in January, a British judge said right. we will not allow an extradition of Julian Assange because he's a little depressed. And if he ends up in an American prison, he'll commit suicide. Yeah, but the thing is, she used that argument of the U.S. that, yes, we we agree that he's possibly a dangerous criminal having been, you know, he might be guilty of espionage. And that's why she held them. He, she just didn't want to send him over to a U.S. prison. Now, that fig leaf is gone. There is no, there is no even shred of a case against Julian Assange. 
So if he isn't, if they don't drop charges in the U.S. and he isn't released, then we basically, we are in a fascist state. Some of us are more comfortable than others. And that's the only thing. Now, (laughs) thank you. Come after us vegans. Thank you. Are you drinking? Can I can I just make you are you drinking a Diet Coke? Uh, in in memory of the do the the dearly departed Donald Rumsfeld. This product exists only because Donald Rumsfeld was the lobbyist who got uh, the FDA to drop its normal process in uh, it and basically okaying as, aspartame as a non-sugar sweetener. Is that Coke or Diet Coke? Probably a neural, you know, neurological warfare study too. So in his memory, I am drinking a Diet Coke. I used to be like fatally addicted to this stuff. I can't even finish it. You know, I'm just, but. We should, I would love to do a segment. Peace, Donald Rumsfeld. I would love to do a segment on Diet Coke because I, I confess I had when the when the quarantine lifted, I went outside and I wanted to treat myself. I tried it, you know, a, a Diet Coke. And next thing I know, I'm craving it. I can. So we should. Anyway, I'm very grateful for all you professors for coming on. Professor Hussein, thank you so much and professor marianne cummings uh again i'm really grateful that this is a little show it's a small sliver uh, on the internet and to be able to get uh, brilliant people like you to find time for this is it's humbling uh it really is uh, uh, and scary at the same time thank you so much also humbling is Emil Guillermo, who is host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, as well as a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Do you rename yourself? Every week I have to rewrite your name. Is there? I, I do not. I do not. I, I, I've noticed that. I don't yeah. rename myself. I'm just, uh, I'm just Emil Guillermo. I should say. Emil Guillermo. Hey, you know, you were talking about Diet Coke. Yes, sir. Oh, I am nostalgic for Tab. Tab, Tab Cola for beautiful people. Remember that? that yes. Now that yes. dates me now. Yeah. And, and so suddenly Tab goes off the, you know. it's You possible. can still get it. You can still get well, tab. No, they, they ended. They ended making tab a couple years ago. Are you I certain? Because I remember certain. seeing it, and I'm embarrassed to say buying a six pack and bringing it home and <laughs> loving it. Tab. Well, the tab you remember had the bottle that had like bubbles. It had a kind of a. It was tactile, so you could rub it. Now this is kind of oddly sexual for. Maybe some of your audience members, but but it was a kind of a a kind of a pleasure toy, yeah. As Tab. well as a diet drink. I remember Bobcat Goldthwait when he came to San Francisco would drink like a six pack of Tab, uh, like he was addicted. Yeah. To t- it is they they designed these things to uh, yes, addict you. Speaking of food, James uh, yeah. Corden. Oh yes, I saw that in the New York Times. I th- I thought you you might bring that up. 
I thought you might bring that up. But okay. it was one of the top read articles in, in the New York Times. But, but here, I, I, I can't wait to bring this up to discuss with Emil Guillermo, because you are the host of the PETA podcast, and you're also a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and hate crimes against Asians are going up astronomically, and a, a young woman, I believe she's a woman, uh, had a petition going, 40,000 signatures, to change a comedy segment on James Corden's show in which he plays like a truth or dare game. And if you don't want to answer the question, you have to eat some disgusting food. And apparently most of the disgusting food or a vast preponderance of these disgusting foods were Asian delicacies. Well, now, as a member of PETA. Yeah. Yeah. Are you torn? Because these things are like duck hearts, you know, they, and, and f there's some Filipino delicacies where they, quote unquote, use every part of the animal. This must be conflicting because as a PETA, as, as the host of the PETA podcast, you have to say that some of these foods are disgusting. But as a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, you're you have to say to cr call this food disgusting besmirches my culture. Which side are you on? Pick a side. This is why I've started meditating so I could be equanimous to it all. <laughs> And not be distracted from the goal. I, I'm mindful. I take it all. I, I, I try to. I try to take the Bruce Lee, another Asian American, the Bruce yes. Lee approach, instead of the polarization of different ideas. Well, hang on. Now, I, I believe the woman. I like water, my friend. Yes, I believe the yes. woman who got the petition going is Filipino. She's part, she's part Filipino, and part she has Chinese. warm memories of sitting with her family during yes. blackouts when there was no heat and no light and they would eat what I consider to be something unappetizing. Look, David, I, I, I must say that I'm, I was a big fan of the food that you've mentioned or referred to. Like thousand year old eggs. No, not that. That's Chinese. But uh, the the balut. B the balut. What is balut? balut? Balut is not a duck egg. Well, it is. It, a duck it's egg. intestines. Well, it's, it's, it's intestines. It's a fertilized, fertilized duck egg. So you know, this is how, this is how the Filipinos learn about abortion. This is a fertilized duck egg. This is what you can eat. This is what you can't eat. And you this can is, see a you can see a baby duck. There's an embryo there. Yes, there's an embryo. I you might see formations of hair, but uh, most of the time you get you crack the egg and you get the white right. The white uh, uh, it's not really an exoskeleton. It's like a white right of uh, the, uh, the egg, and then you. You know, you might chop it in half and then you just eat it whole and you drink a bunch of beer afterwards. You, you chase it with a San Miguel or something. But that I mean, look, this is what they call in um, Filipino um, street language, pulatan, which is, you know, the stuff you drink with beer. 
Pulatan. And, um, you know how you go to, to Asian places and there's like street street vendors, right? Street vendors of food. Have you ever been to like in uh, Thailand or Malaysia, or Hong Kong, Philippines? They always have these things. And in the Philippines, they, they have a guy who carries like a six pack of duck eggs and then you buy them and then you down them. And, and they're, they're delicious. And I've had my share of them. And why are they just, delicious? Well, it's just uh, they're sometimes it's just uh, I, it's like a hard boiled egg with a with a fetus. So, with hair, you know, a, hair a hairy, hard boiled egg. It's not really quite a fully. Well, only once, only once did I detect a real fur, feather in my mouth afterwards. Just once, just once. But, OK, so you know, so is it is it is it what? Is it disgusting? It's not it's not nearly as disgusting as the idea, the idea of a a fertilized embryo, um, you know, in this egg. I mean, because usually when people think of eggs, right, it's just a hard boiled egg or a soft boiled egg. Or, I mean, look, why would why would it be any different from that? Right. Except for the fact that it's maybe slightly more formed. And now am I case, allowed to say James right. Corden is obviously somebody who doesn't find food too disgusting. I mean, yes. this is a man who I, he loves a man who loves. He obviously loves food. The only uh, food he doesn't like is a balut. Is that that that's now that's racist. That yeah. could be racist. But is it uh, so is it unfair to say this is disgusting? Is it unfair? Because I do think eating what was what, what it called? Sweet meats? What, 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 um, sweet bread. Sweet, sweet bread. Sweet bread. Yeah. Sounds so anodyne, doesn't it? Sweet breads. It's in the it's in your GI tract. It's, so. You're eating a cow's intestines. Yeah. Uh, look, sweet uh, bread. Here, here's the thing. D David, here's the thing. It's disgusting. I mean, it, uh, you know, sweet breads is I believe it's British. It's disgusting. Yeah. Balut it, 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 is Filipino. I have. Am I? Am, Are you racist? Am I racist for saying I? I think that's kind of gross. You're, you're not racist for having uh, an opinion on your taste. That, that's that's okay. That that I mean I think that's okay. But see, look here, here's the thing about all of this. We're, now we're talking about food cancellation, right? Isn't that what we're talking about, David? Making fun of people's food. Right. We're talking about a kind of um, edible cancellation. You're not allowed to make fun of ethnic food. See, I think as a First Amendment purist, I believe instead of limiting speech, there should be more speech. I always thought that even, you know, when the guys who were saying the nasty things, I think that the good thing is we have been able to come out and and debate in, in the open marketplace, uh, these ideas. You'll notice in that article, there was a Filipino chef uh, of a place in, um, in Rockville, Maryland, a place where I used to live. And he was, you know, he serves Filipino food. And he says, look, all this is, is an opportunity to talk and educate people about my food and about Filipino food. And I think that if you look at this as a debate in the marketplace of food ideas, then, you know, 
uh, you know, cordons. But now, uh, as my pro blue. Okay, this is the marketplace of ideas. Does that also include an opportunity opportunity for me to educate people on their delicacies and 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 explain to them that perhaps this was once. A, a, a dish that you that was savory, but now given climate change and given that we have to find alternative proteins, you should not be eating things that David Feldman thinks is disgusting. Right. Well, or maybe you should just consider the the new alternatives like Beyond Balut and Impossible Balut. <laughs> which- I think could be could be tasty under the right circumstances. Look, here, here's the thing, Dave, because I I really think uh, that the article when I saw that article and I saw that it was a younger woman, a younger a gen a new generation, right? I'm I'm slightly, you know, older, and I fought these battles over Balut, and I was I, I even you fought the battle to protect its reputation or not yeah, to eat it. I, I would talk about Balut. I would make jokes about Balut. Every Filipino. You're pro Balut. I have been pro Balut, but here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm a vegan. I'm, I'm pro animal rights, but I I'm when in terms of my veganism, uh, I was vegan mostly for selfish reasons, right? mostly for my my heart my my body my health um only later within say the last 15 years have i become more ethical in terms of uh of of the animals and that's because you know my my wife has her ways of working her you know magic powers on me and and i've I've begun to see why you should avoid eating meat you should avoid eating animal products because it's disgusting well, it's not. Well, it's also probably high in cholesterol and bad for you, uh, just from a, from a health standpoint. From a totally aesthetic standpoint, I don't know. Uh, are you going to start the anti haggis league? Are you yes. Start the, yeah, well, okay. I mean, you know, turnabout is fair play. Let's go after the uh, the Scots and the. You know, are you, let's go after. How about uh, stuffed derma? I, 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 my grandmother made stuffed derma. It's like I don't even. It's, I don't even know what. I mean, sausages aren't sausages pig intestines. A sausage, yes, they are pig intestines. Actually, the casing, my- the casing is pig intestine. Exactly. Uh, one of my more Filipino moments in my life was sharing pig intestines with my father after we killed a pig. Hey, hey, and hey! I, we don't call them pigs. I, I, we we. We killed a a porcelain effigy that right. hung from from a rope. You killed and, a pig. Well, with other Filipino guys, you offed a pig. I was a young kid. This was a Filipino rite of passage. I thought, oh, if I was Orwell, I would be shooting an elephant now. But no, I was killing uh, a pig with my father, and and the, uh, the pig was like hung upside down and peed on my dad, made me laugh a little bit. And then afterwards, as a as a form of Filipino bonding, we cut up the intestines and we fried it on an open fire and we shared it. And it, it really was my most Filipino moment ever. And I something I that was alive, something that was a, something that was alive. How many minutes ago? I know. Look, I was all of 11. 10 oh, but 11. hang on. How, how, how many? 
from the time you killed it to the time you started eating it? How many? How oh, many? Almost immediately. And what did it oh, taste no. like? Yeah, well, you know, we, we they, they killed it. We were on a farm. So it was fresh. Farm in Central, it was fresh intestine. And you want your te- the, fresh intestine. <laughs> Is this, is are the intestines, excuse me, I, look, I, I Maurice, are the intestines fresh tonight? Because last <laughs> last week we were here and the oh, the man. intestines they, tasted kind of they shitty. They smelled to high heaven last time. A little, a little off. But the intestines were off last week. Now, yeah. condoms, yeah. condoms, yeah, used to be yeah. lambskin, correct? Ah, the bad ones. The bad, you know, they always put out the, the you know, the, sort of like a disclaimer. These are lambskins. They sound like they could be good. They sound like you can, like, fry them up if you're hungry afterwards. But they are membranes that are not totally, you know, impregnable. But, but where, the, where do they come from? Because this what I guess, I, I guess from, from lamb. I don't know. I, 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 they come I from the innards. Of, uh, I, when I was when I was, yeah, young, and I, I was told that lambskin condoms were made from the innards of lambs, and I said, "What do I need a woman for? I'll just put the condom on, and that'll make me hard." And right, I saw I saw that scene where Woody Allen's drinking the woolite. I saw that. I mean, the yeah. idea of just wrapping <laughs> hey. a lamb's innards around my look, look david to get back to bullard uh let me just say this i think that i would not eat balut today i do not eat balut today and i am still very sensitive to the animals yes but i am not so doctrinaire that i have lost a sense of humor and i'm also look i'm i'm also uh, looking at the person who's protesting and putting out this, this, uh, this, uh, what, uh, what is it? A, a petition, right? To cancel James Corden. She's young. I, I think it's good that this is her reaction. I, I, I hear what she's saying, and I, I hope that instead of going after each other, like with, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm against you, and you're this, and you, I hope we can have a conversation. I hope we can have that that civil debate that we seem to lack uh, in, in our society that prevents people from at least looking at things and not laughing at people's ideas, but to trying to communicate how they feel about things so that they can, you know, find some kind of uh, a sense of um, mutual agreement, if not mutual respect. Okay. And, and so, well, let's I'm, talk about something I, serious because you are a columnist for ALDEF, the Asian American Defense and Education. Legal defense. Huh? Asian American Legal Defense and Education. What did I say? I don't know. You usually say something that, you know, messes up. California Attorney General Rob Bonta. Yes. Filipino American. Announced that hate crimes against Asians in California have jumped 107% in the past year. He calls it an epidemic of hate. Assaults on Asian senior citizens in the Bay Area, shootings of Asians in, in America at a health spa, at the uh, the spa in Atlanta, violence against Asians has doubled during the pandemic. 
mostly because of President Trump, I believe, blaming yeah. China for the pandemic. But it's, it, it's not, as you have pointed out, it's never been easy for Asian Americans. Does and uh, enough is enough. Uh, and it's serious. And the the to people who trivialize some of these stories, you're not Asian or you're not gay. You're not black. Well, you don't. You, well, the, you know, the thing is, people need to be uh, aware of all this. So one of the things my, is, but, but, but hang on for one second. My question yeah. is, and, and I, I mean this. Yeah. Uh, Balut. Yes. Making fun of Balut. Mm. Food is important, especially to ignoramuses. And when you dehumanize what people eat you you when you make when you when you portray a culture as eating oh i don't know christian babies and then drinking their blood you demonize a certain group and thereby make it easier to commit hate crimes against them so the the idea there is some truth to this petition I'm not 100% on board, but well, one of the ways uh, you demonize a culture is making, mocking, right. terrorizing people by what they eat. Well, or making fun of the culture and you say, uh, look at these people, uh, they're headhunters, like they said about the Filipinos or looking at, the, you know. The blood told- libel of the Jews. Yeah. Hey, look, I'm just saying, uh, I... When you when you put out something like that, here here's what makes it very hard to be equanimous about this all because you just do not hear about balut stories in in a in general media, right? You, you know, when you hear about balut, if you're Filipino, your eyes perk up and say, "Hey, they're they they recognized us," right? If it was something that everyone knew and everyone kind of understood, you know, that it's not discussing it all but it's just part of the culture then that that wouldn't be nearly as negative as some people think but in the absence of a full picture of philippine culture in the absence of a full picture of what philippine food is like then an isolated incident uh, like cordon's joke does become magnified and and then a younger person like this one woman who is out there with the petition her her perspective makes sense and and like i said i i come from uh you know i've seen people talk about balut for for decades and i've even joked about balut i i joke about it uh uh in in my solo show i i've joked about it in my column uh it's one thing for me to joke about it because I'm usually talking to an Asian crowd and they know they know what Balut is. It's not just it's not just Filipino. It's also uh, Vietnamese Chinese. You go to the Vietnamese towns in in uh, California, Huntington Beach, uh, they, they Balut for for New Year's. That's like a big deal. Balut. Everyone eats the duck eggs. And then, you know, the, the leftover duck eggs after the Vietnamese New Year go to the Filipinos. 
they, you know, the Filipinos keep them decades forever. But like I said, if you know about it, you get the joke. If you're from Kansas, not good. Now, if Corden, if James Corden did jokes on Filipinos and other weird food, if he did something to counterbalance the negative, counterbalance the joke. So it's not the only thing. So we see that, oh, this is really part of Philippine humanity, part of Asian American humanity. Then, you know, we wouldn't have this problem. Or if people really talked about Asian American food and Filipino American food in a broad way, then it, it, we, we wouldn't have to be so sensitive. But in this case, you know, it does seem like they should show a little more sensitivity. Yes. I want to be, I want to be, like I said, a little more equanimous and say, hey, look, I get it. James Corden's making a joke. And like that rest, uh, rest tour from the, in the, that Philippine section of Rockville, Maryland said, it gives me an, ed- it gives me an opportunity to educate people about my culture and my food. But that's not the same as James Corden putting out something else saying, hey, you know that joke on Balut? Hey. I, I tried them. I loved them. I love the Filipinos. How about hiring some Filipino comics? How about hiring some Filipino writers? How about getting some more Filipinos in there, you know, uh, in this show? You're not going to see that. But that's what it takes to, to even it out. So I don't, I don't mean to be flip. Flap. I don't mean to be flip. But, you know, because there is a serious side to this. And you pointed that, pointed that out. Now, back to Bonta. The thing about Bonta is he's doing all the right things. He's the uh, attorney general. The new attorney general, Filipino-American, a little younger than me. He's replaced Becerra from Health and Human Services. Uh, Yeah, well, he's in the spot, the attorney general uh, spot, that has become the major league springboard into Democratic politics. Kamala Harris. Well, Kamala Harris, right? Vice President. Uh, uh, Xavier uh, Becerra uh, or Javier Becerra. Uh, I, I met Becerra when I was working as a press secretary in the 103rd Congress. Becerra was a young, young um, rep from L.A. And you knew he was going to go far because he knew how to play it. And he's played it right. He went from Congress to AG. Now he's head of H- uh, HHS. I think I think uh, Bonta's going to blow up big. And if you don't know Bonta, you better get to know him because he is he's going to be uh, the Asian American, Filipino American uh, player in Democratic politics if things go the way I think they're going to go. Uh, his wife is running for his seat. His I know that sounds kind of nasty. His right, his wife is running for his seat as he vacates. He has a runny seat. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, she's she's running to be assemblywoman of the I believe it's the 18th district, Alameda County. And you know she wants to the state. And, and he is the child of immigrants, and he is the child of immigrants. He get this, child of immigrants, parents. Grew up working with Cesar Chavez. He grew up in a trailer park next to Chavez, right? He marries this woman from the Bronx. Uh, she's sort of mixed race, I think, uh, Latin, Latinx. And they have mixed race kids. 
they both of them, uh, Rob Bonta and his wife Mia, uh, have uh, Harvard Yale pedigree. They're smart. Well, you and, lost me. Yeah, and by the way, somebody from by the way, somebody from PETA should not be using the term pedigree. Do you, that is an evil. You know what? What is it? Pedigree. Yeah, oh, okay. Uh, that's look, that's breed. That, you know what? That's breeder. You sound like we're a breeder. What? Yes. So you're. But before you go, what makes yeah, America? Before, what makes America you great? My Rob Bonta thing. Well, it's I enough on it. Rob Bonta. The uh, <laughs> he's an American success story. This is what makes America great. That that the child of immigrants like Bonta can become Attorney General and go, and Becerra can be Attorney General of California and go on to Washington D.C. Our Vice President was Attorney General of California, and she's the child of two immigrants. Correct. Right. That's right. Let me let me ask. She's here. She has something she wants to say. Do not come. <laughs> Do not come. Oh, OK. Oh, hey, look, I. I, I was offended by that. I was oh, offended yeah. By, I was I, like I said, she was the anti statute of liberty. Right. I mean, it's not. Uh, but here's the thing. When you're in politics, I, I imagine she was doing what she was told to do. Mm-hmm. I was only I was only giving orders. That was, that's my new thing. I told Rick Overton this last week in Germany. The excuse was I was only following orders and people say, OK, that's not so bad. In America, you only get off if you say I was only giving orders. I didn't think they would follow through. Don't blame me. I was just I was just in charge. I, I think right, we got to wrap it up. Playing a role, she's playing a role. Like, here, you know what? Stick around here. Here, stick around, because Andrea Ravensky is standing yep. by. I don't know if you remember, but what? I'm, I don't know why I'm giggling. One day after former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty for the murder of George Floyd, this was April like the end of April of this year, Andrew Brown Jr., a 42-year-old black American, was shot to death in the back of the head by police in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. The shooting Mm -hmm. occurred when deputies, this wasn't the local police in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, it was county deputies. They were trying to serve a drug-related search and arrest warrant. And uh, it was accusing Andrew Brown Jr. of possession with intent to sell because he had approximately three grams of cocaine on him. Three grams of cocaine on him. Uh, Seven officers, seven deputies were placed on administrative leave after the shooting. There's about two hours of body cam footage that we have not been allowed to see the the lawyer for Andrew Brown Jr., uh, the family, uh, they said they looked at something like 20 seconds of the body cam footage. Uh, the family and the lawyer called it an execution. A judge has not allowed the two hours of the full body camera video to be released. 
Uh, about a month ago, the district attorney uh, in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, said that the deputies who shot Andrew Brown Jr. in the back were justified and they will not, he will not uh, indict the officers. Uh, the district attorney, Andrew Womble, said the facts of this case clearly illustrate the officers who used deadly force on Andrew Brown Jr. did so reasonably and only when a violent felon used a deadly weapon to place their lives in danger. Well, Andrea Ravensky joins us from Elizabeth City. Stick around, Emil. Okay, sure. Andrea Ravensky is uh, an activist and a podcaster, and she has been protesting 70 days straight every day. And her First Amendment rights seem to be under attack. There's now a warrant for you to appear before a judge because of your Facebook postings. Is this true, Andrew? Welcome, Andrea. Uh, well, I can't, I'm gonna be honest, I can't really talk too much about the legal trouble that I'm in quite yet. Um, but the result of that legal trouble is the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Department has publicly posted myself and other people's addresses on their Facebook pages. You've and been doxxed by the police, isn't that a crime? Yes. I where I think the isn't that a crime question went out the window uh, 72 days ago, personally. So what can what what can you tell us? Apparently, you've pissed off the the uh, the county, the county police. You've well, been protesting uh, yeah, so and you've been accused of making posts on Facebook. No, what we are being accused of filing a false police report is what we are accused of. So the police were asking us, you know, all throughout the protest, if you see anything threatening, let us know. We'll look into it to make sure you're safe. And we let them know, lo and behold, they give the people that are threatening us our personal information. And you, you, but you were given a summons to appear before a judge for filing a false police report. Is that correct? That is the charge. That's correct. So, without going into too many details, uh, uh, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. They have a trial. So, if you ask for somebody to be arrested or you report a crime, and that person is then acquitted, the person who filed the police report filed a false police report. Anytime you report a crime that doesn't result in a conviction, you could surmise that that is a false police report, right? It's a law that is almost never, ever used. Uh, it's it's something that they're just trying to catch us with because uh, I think it's a suppression tactic. Um, you think? <laughs> what, what have you I, uh, done to what have you done to irritate? What is the name of the county? It's hard to pronounce. Pasquatank County. Pasquatank County. That's correct. And those are the deputies from Pasquatank who shot Andrew. Brown Jr. in the back of the That's head. That's correct. 
what was the weapon he had? Andrew Brown Jr.? Yeah. Uh, there was no weapon. He had his hands on the steering wheel driving about two miles per hour when he was shot in the back of the head. And is Biden looking into this? I, you know as much as I do. Is, is the Justice the Department? I, I thought the Justice Department might be looking into this. Oh, there has been meetings with uh, the protesters and the Justice Department. But so they are aware of the situation. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what the follow up is. All I know is that they are aware of the situation. And is Andrew Brown's family suing the, the deputies? To my understanding, yes, that's that's something that they're still in the process of putting together. And the protests have been going on for 70 days. Today was day 72. Are the protests bigger or smaller? Oh, we've been going through waves. Um, you know, for example, you mentioned that uh, about a month or so ago, Andrew Womble, uh, the district attorney, came out and said that the shooting was justified. I would, uh, you know, if I could say the murder was justified. What color is Andrew Womble? Not. What color is Andrew Womble? He is a bald white guy. You don't have to say bald. Just so you know, when you look him up. Um, but uh, yeah, so, you know, when that happened, we had a lot of people come out the day after that, the, the day, you know, two days after that, three days after that. Whenever there's like more news going on or like a big, uh, you know, news update with the case or when police do something, you know, hectic, we do have people come out and show support. But for the most part, it's been and again, this is a city of about 20,000 people for the most part. Um, it's been a, a core group of around 50 people that have been showing up every day. Uh, and sometimes there's more, sometimes there's less. But for the most part, we've got a very strong group of people that are willing to put their time in every day. Sometimes people take breaks. But again, we've got a pretty good group. of. People. What percentage of Elizabeth City is African-American? Uh, to my understanding, it's somewhere around 55 percent ish. And the police tend to be what? White, black? Mixed the Pasquotank County deputies that I see, uh, are, I, I've you know seen a couple of black ones, but they're mostly white. The local police is probably evenly split. OK. And the local police, last time you were on the show, you said that you were getting some support from Elizabeth City, North Carolina police because they didn't like the 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 county deputies coming in and serving a warrant and stepping on their territory. Is that still the case or have they found solidarity in their ranks? Well, uh, they've they've had a lot of reasons uh, to go at each other. Uh, recently, the Pasquotank County commissioners voted unanimously to give the Pasquotank County Sheriff's Department a salary raise, an increase. Uh, every single deputy and worker at the Sheriff's Department got a 2% salary increase uh, for the murder of Andrew Brown. That is their reward. And so that is something that the uh, Elizabeth City Police Department does not find too favorable. Uh, the Pasquotank County Sheriff's also pulled out of their protection detail uh, and leaving ECPD to be the only ones to, you know, do any sort of protest related activities. OK, so on the show, we're critical of police. We, we believe that police are not social workers that most of the time police are doing the jobs of social workers or doing jobs 
that wouldn't be necessary uh, if we had more teachers and more social workers. Uh, they're dealing with people with psychological problems. I happen to think that the police make things worse when there's a protest. There's, there's no need for uh, the police to show up and monitor a protest until a, a rock goes through a window and then it's reasonable for the police to then show up. But when the police study after study shows that when police show up to a demonstration, they not only make it worse, they are the thing that makes it worse, that their ego gets in the way and that's it's their street, not your street, and they take it personally and it gets violent because the police have showed up, shown up. So it, it would be best to just let people protest and stay out of it until we need police and we do need police. We do. We just don't need them always arresting poor people, we need them arresting upper middle class people. We need them patrolling wealthier neighborhoods because that's where the real violent crime is taking place. You need protection. We all need protection. There are violent people out there. Sometimes you need the police. Do you feel safe? Do you feel that you could call the police in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and they will arrive and make things better or make things worse? Well, uh, considering that the, and again, these are two separate institutions, the Sheriff's Department and the local police, but considering the Sheriff's Department has doxed me, I don't really feel comfortable speaking with any form of law enforcement at this point. How old are you? I feel like, say that again? How old are you? I am 25 years old. Okay. If you were my child, you know what I would tell you? Uh, Get the fuck out of there. Well, as you can see, I am still here uh, for the time being. But, uh, you know, I, I, am, I am considering all options uh, that are on the table. But, you know, they, uh, they, right tell, now, they tell people like me, white middle-aged men to check our privileges. Oh, I will. You should check your privilege. How privileged are you? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of privileged. Well, I, maybe I not as privileged. In other words, it, what, you know, I fancy myself uh, a, a threat to the cops because sure. I look a certain way and I talk a certain way and the, the, the cops aren't going to crack my skull. So I, mm. I would I, I, I've checked my privilege and especially in Los Angeles, where I've said things to cops that I knew I couldn't get away with if I were uh, if I look different. That's checking my privilege. But I think people who might be an easy mark for the cops should also check their privilege. In other words, the talk that black parents give their kids about, you know, check your privilege. You're not so privileged. You're black. 
uh, cop asks for your ID, give them your ID, keep your mouth shut. You, you have to come home to me. That The talk. So uh, that's what I would tell you if you were my child. I would tell you to get the fuck out of Elizabeth City, North Carolina. <laughs> I appreciate I saw what the police chief looks like. I, I, I These, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but... Uh, Hey, hey, David, I was going to ask Andrea why I know it's important to fight this and she's now you know, she's got this court appearance. But why have you been so motivated to stay on with this protest? I, kn I know that when it when it first happened and I believe it was April. April 21st. Yeah, it, it got some play. And by the way, I apologize. I, I, that, that is what I would tell you if you were my child. I don't mean to, oh, yeah. I, I, Andrew, I don't mean to, dis you're on the show because I have tremendous respect for you. And I think you're incredibly brave. Thank you so much. So I, but I, I'm just telling you as a parent, I'm old enough to be your grandfather. But I'm just telling you, if you were my kid, that's what I would tell you. I understand. But, okay. But, and I'm old enough to be your great grandfather. And I would say I would say the same thing as David. I would say, I, in fact, yeah, I, that's why I asked the question. Why? Why? Why are you compelled aside from the basic civil rights of it all? What the, the media has abandoned the story pretty much. Ben Crump is the lawyer. You know, he's the big media lawyer and he's not, you know, Unless you can call him up and say, hey, I need some help or unless you got some kind of great, you know, connection. Why are you motivated to, to protest? Well, my main thing is, as you said, the media has abandoned what's going on here. Like this is a small town and this small town is participating in a historic protest. You know, we've been going for 72 days straight. Uh, I've been out here for 71 days. I missed today. My first missed protest was today. And I, I feel bad about it, but I had some stuff I needed to take care of. But we've been out here for 72 days straight and the media has abandoned us. And so my goal from the get go was to be here as much as I can originally every single day. And, but, you know, be here as much as I can to document what's going on. Because I believe that this is a historic moment, not just in Elizabeth City's history, but even in the United States of America. I think that there's a good chance that this story will get its, uh, you know, second sunlight uh, moment. And, you know, I, I want to be there to show people what has been going on from day one all the way to day 71. I've got a complete entire timeline until today. I'm so sorry. But, uh, you know, that's my main goal is I want people to know what's going on because when the media disappears, there's not that many people out here recording. So my goal is just to try to record everything I can, make sure that, you know, if any incidents occur, I'm there to, to, to you know, provide video. If, uh, you know, if people, you know, there's a lot of people in local news and in the community that say that, oh, the protests aren't even happening anymore. Or like, you know, the police might claim that the protests are violent or, you know, that kind of thing. And if I, you know, say, hey, I got this video of the entire demonstration and you can see nothing happened. Right. That's been my thing, because in a lot of these instances, when these protests do have the media blackout, which has been happening a lot under the Biden administration compared to the Trump administration, I should say, the Biden administration Media doesn't really care about protesting as much as they used to. So my thing is people need to know what's going on. And there's not that many resources in such a small town. 
So my thing is I really just want to be here to make sure that history is actually recorded and documented. Well, well, it's important. Look who won a Pulitzer, right, for for being right there uh, when when the George Floyd um, thing came down with with their camera. Uh, it, it's important to do. I, I applaud you for that. And it's true that the media will be there on a slow day. They'll be there when no one shows up. I mean, when there's nothing else happening. They might be there on Christmas. If you're still protesting, they may be there. You oh, know? we will. Or on a holiday. They'll be there on the 4th of July. But it is an historic case because as, as George Floyd sucks all the media attention in the Derek Chauvin trial, you have all these cases that are happening contiguous to all that. And what what's happening? You know, who who is paying attention to those cases, and it and this is as just as egregious, right? I mean, there's Sharpton out there, there's Ben Crump out there taking the case. You know that they will mount a case when the time is right, or they'll go public when the time is right. But it doesn't mean that. Well, I I would hope that there's a better. Well, you want to be objective, so you don't want to be totally um, in there with the family and with the lawyers. But usually there's a a kind of a network of people who are supportive. Uh, I just uh, uh, hope that everything, uh, I just hope that you're safe when you, when you go out there and do that, especially when you're going against the authorities and they're doxing you and doing, doing what they're doing to harass you and to knock you off. I'm trying my best to be safe, but you know, it's, it's getting a little hectic out here because another aspect of media is when media leaves and when protests dwindle down, that's when law enforcement typically will take out their revenge when no one sees what's going well, on. Yeah. When, and so we're going to have you we're going to listen. Uh, I'm listening. OK, you're going to we're going to keep an eye on you. Uh, to Thank make you. sure to make sure you're OK. Uh, so we're going to check in on you. And we may say we may say you some balut. You want a six pack? No. Yeah. Uh, but uh, because I. When Myla told me what was going on, I read a little bit about it and watched some videos. And I don't have your courage. And so uh, and uh, we're talking about a prosecutor who is in cahoots with the deputies. He failed to prosecute. He works intimately with them. We're talking about an African-American named Andrew Brown Jr. who was shot five times, once in the back of the head. They didn't find anything on him. No drugs or weapons were found in his car or on his property. And it just doesn't seem right. And there's... Yeah, I mean, I would consider it a gigantic cover-up. I mean, if you look at the news and you look what the uh, DA has been saying, one of the crucial facts of this case was when the deputies were trying to massacre Andrew Brown, they shot at their own vehicles that had other deputies in them, and they shot into a neighbor's house. Into a neighbor's house, the bullet went through several walls and was stopped by a crockpot in their kitchen. And I want to remind everyone of the case of Breonna Taylor, where none of the killers of Breonna Taylor were charged But one of the officers was charged because they shot into a neighboring apartment. Right. So that's there is an example. There's precedent of these right wing red states actually putting some punishment 
on minor things as a way to kind of alleviate pressure. In this case, they're trying to cover up that that was even a feature. Okay. The DA has not even mentioned it in any capacity. Can well, you do they, me? They can you go ahead, Jimmy? I'm sorry. Well, well, they wouldn't even, uh, you know, release the video, right? I mean, th that's what got everyone's attention in the first place. So I would say this, Andrea, when the second coming of a Howard uh, Zinn people's history is done for the, for the last, say, 20 in the next 20 years, they will point to George Floyd and they'll point to other cases, the lesser known cases of uh, civil rights grievances that have happened and that got either some play or no play and hopefully they'll get some play because the evidence has been documented by people like yourselves who have kept up the protest on the scene so andrea I, I just, can you do me a favor nope i'm oh, just kidding i got okay. you uh you have a podcast correct i last time i checked <laughs> what is the name of your podcast my podcast is called Above It All. I'd stream seven days a week. Okay. So uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of North Carolina is investigating the, uh, the death of Andrew Brown. The federal government is looking in to this. And so is the Department of Justice and so is the FBI. Would you do me a favor just as an intellectual exercise? To, and when you come back, would you contact the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of North Carolina? Would you contact the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice and the FBI and let them know what happened yeah, to you? Yeah, I mean, we have people that have been trying to keep in contact with them. We recently had the governor of North Carolina come down last Sunday uh, to say, you know, a couple things and to say that he is going to be trying to put more investigation, uh, like more focus on the investigations. Uh, but I, I could try to personally reach out on, as, on, as on it, as a, behalf as well. As a civics lesson for you and me and my listeners and your listeners and, you know, uh, what being doxxed by the police, as they have done to you, I think the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of North Carolina should know this. They're looking into the, the shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. We have a Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. that's looking into it. We have an FBI. They, uh, they, the, the Justice Department issues consent decrees they did in Los Angeles. The Justice Department will take over a local police department if they find it to be in violation of the citizens' civil liberties. Los Angeles was operating under a consent decree. It didn't help, but the police were being monitored. I think it would be useful uh, as a this pod. is definitely something we are trying to set up. I know, I do know that there has been uh, some conversations with some people that they do want to try. When you to say we, what, what about you just doing it? Well, I, I can do it as well. Um, I, 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 when I say we, I mean we have several people that reach out independently and collectively to apply that pressure. 
Um, I've made some phone calls, you know, to certain politicians to try to get them to make statements. Other people make phone calls to other politicians. But this to is other now agencies. I'm going to interrupt you. I don't mean to be rude. I have tremendous Feel free to be rude. OK, I have tremendous respect for you. You're way more courageous than I would ever be. As again, okay. I told I I'm telling you, I don't have what you have. There is a difference between politicians, though, and the FBI and the no, justice. Absolutely. And, and they should know you should. They should know what happened. Uh, well, I can tell you that the attorney general of North Carolina and the governor of North Carolina are intimately aware uh, and they are coordinating with state agencies. And so I, I can reach out if you would like and then uh, report back on what they I say, trust which the, should be interesting. I, I trust the federal government personally. <laughs> I trust the federal government on this more than I do. Yes, I agree. I agree. So, OK, how do people let's plug. Uh, go ahead, Emil. You had some questions. I have. Oh, no, I, I just uh, admire what Andrew's doing. I really believe that it's important to have all these little bits of information. You're going to be in the right place. You're going to be, you, you know, like I said, look at what Darnella Fraser did, right? Uh, she happened to be in the right place. And at the she right took time, the picture, she took the picture of she took the video, the video of, of, of George Floyd getting uh, the 929, right? She, she got that. And, um, your dedication to this is going to make sure that people don't forget and that I think as it goes, uh, you know, who knows how long it'll take before a real case is filed. Um, you know, Crump's been at this a while, so he knows what he's doing. I think he's not going slow because he's, you know, going slow. I think there's some something strategic going on. But the fact that you're out there is an, is an important thing. So good luck to you. And I hope to hear about you what you're doing through through David's show. Yeah, thank you. For hey, sure. Yeah. Hey, um, what do you do? Can you come to the first hour of office hours tomorrow? And when we'll is that? It's at eight o'clock on Friday. P.M. Uh, A.M. P.M. Is that eight o'clock P, uh, P.S.T. E.S.T.? You're really annoying me. <laughs> I, I live on the eastern coast. I'm in I'm in New York. OK, perfect. OK, so we're so I think you and I are in this in the same time zone. All right. That makes things way easier. OK, would you I'd like you to meet uh, the people at office hours. Uh, it's a pretty powerful support group of sure. activists and uh, and it's a much more intimate setting. And I and I I think if you met the people in office hours, uh, you'd find a lot of people who will have your back. Okay. And so, that's eight o'clock? Eight PM. Is it is it okay if like I got home late and I show up at eight twelve? Forget it. <laughs> eight o'clock. No, because I the way office hours works is no, of course. Uh, but I uh, it's office hours and hours, by the way. It's twenty four hours of office hours. But Whoa. Yeah, but I only do the first hour. OK. And uh, so I w I'd like to talk to you at uh, and as a matter of fact, eight twelve, eight fifteen uh, would be perfect because I like to start well, eight fifteen. At that point, it's already a little too late. You know, no, like, the first I 15 minutes I like to just talk about 
the mice and how okay. I hate my life. And then we'll bring you in. <laughs> now so, I got to show up early then. Okay, so we'll see you, my, and I'll check in with Myla to make sure, sure you're there at eight. I'd like you to, you know, meet some people who will, uh, who have your back. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Andrea Ravensky is the host of what's the name of your podcast? Above It All on YouTube. Above folks. It All. You are a much braver person than I could ever be. And, and again, when I told Say that you one more time, for well, me. I, I again, if you were my grandchild, I would be telling you. And I think Emil, you too. I think she's she's really brave. I mean, yeah. look, it's 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 rare to find people with courage these days. And when you find them, you have to stop and you have to you have to honor them for doing things that many of us would love to do or would like to do, but don't. Right. I appreciate it. Have you have you met with Josh Stein, the attorney general, the Democratic? Yes, I was part of the meeting on Sunday. Is he? He's a Democrat. In 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 North Carolina. <laughs> I'm hoping for the best. That's all I can say. I'm I'd hoping for the best. The, thank you, Andrea. Thank you. All right. We're going to wrap up this show. I think I've covered everything. Emil, did you freeze? Yes. Hey, thanks, David. You froze in this uh, heat? No, you were I'm... able to freeze? How long do I get no, to stay no, on here? Here I am. Hey, look, David. Yes. There you are. Hi, David. Hi. Emil Guillermo <laughs> is, is so, the uh, host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Read them over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Well, and David, David, don't forget AMOK.com. They can see AM, my uh, AMOK. Okay. Yeah. What a what a great show. I want to thank everybody in the Zoom room for making my life. Uh, for, I can't do the show without the people in the Zoom room, the chat room. Uh, some great questions. Uh, it really informed a lot of the conversation. So I thank you all in the Zoom chat room for uh, making me laugh and making me think. This was a great show. If you would like to sit in our Zoom room, attend a live taping of The David Feldman Show, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit attend a live taping. I'll send you a link. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the office hours menu. You'll get a link takes you right in there. Please come to Office Hours. You will meet a, a brilliant, kind group of people and uh, your life will be better for it, I promise you. And uh, hopefully Andrea will be there uh, on time at 8.15. 8.12. At 8.12. At 8.12. Don't make me dox you. Uh, <laughs> it's too late. You missed it. You missed it. <laughs> and... While you're over at DavidFeldmanShow.com, uh, sign up for my newsletter and you can reach me. I'm a little behind on my correspondence. I have had some issues with mice and uh, a little burnout. We don't stop here. We keep going. 
no vacations here. So I do seven days a week. So, I mean, I feel it. You do seven days a week. Yeah. Yeah, but you have talent. <laughs> That's a fair point. Seven days a week. Are you on uh, Twitch? I do YouTube. You do YouTube. I might expand at some point, but for now, I just do YouTube. And again, plug the, the show. Above it all. Above on it all. YouTube. And what time do you do this? Uh, on the weekdays, uh, Monday to Friday, I do 10 a.m. Eastern to, uh, to about 11, sometimes 1130. On weekends, Saturday and Sunday, I do 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. So one hour earlier. Great. OK, I will I will tune in. I think I've covered everything. I you know, when I when I end the show, I always say I forgot to bring something up. Let me thank all our guests. Dan, are you there? You yes, are sir. here. Sure, I'm here. Are you ready to quiz me? I got the list. All right. Well, did I cover everything? Yeah, you got it all. I got it all. You know that that is there's a book of when, when there are plane crashes, uh, they, there's the black box and then they get the transcript of what the pilots say. And uh, my friend Larry Brown used to read to me the transcripts from the black box of, of right before the plane would go in <laughs> to the mountain. And uh, one of the common expressions of airline pilots as they're just about to hit the mountain is, you got it all. You it's, got it it's all. It's a common phrase that pilots will use as they. Why? I don't know. It just seems you got it all, baby. You got it all. That's their last words. I don't know what that means. Uh, Maybe it's because they're they're pulling the, the, the handles back as far as they can go. I don't know. Trying to lift up. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I All wish right. I could ask him. I would ask Chuck Yeager, who broke the sound barrier, but uh, he, he passed away this year. He, he created a lot of the language that pilots use. If you read the right stuff, when, uh, Chuck Yeager was the one who'd say... Uh, when he was breaking the sound barrier and the plane was falling apart. Yeah, we got a little problem here, but I think I can solve it. That calm twang. And then pilots picked up on that. According to Tom Wolf and the right stuff, that when you hear a pilot say, oh, this is uh, Captain Feldman from the uh, flight deck. Uh, we got a uh, six hour flight ahead of us. So sit back and relax. And you'll notice that some men with box cutters are attacking me right now, but there's no need to work. That's all Chuck Yeager. They're all imitating Chuck Yeager, who, by the way, turned out to be an inveterate racist who kept African-Americans out of NASA. So turned out to be, you had to have the white stuff. Uh, so oh. there, there were black astronauts, black men who wanted to be astronauts, and Chuck Yeager kept them out of the pipeline and of course black women and of course a woman who was part of the mercury program who will be flying into outer space with jeff bezos and his flatulent crapulous brother this month 
who would want to sit in a capsule with that homunculus Jeff Bezos? Do you know how bad he must smell? The rot. What, what was the What was the name you were trying to give him a couple months ago? Bezos. You said, yeah, you said every time we mention Jeff Bezos, it's going to be oh, dropping a Bezos. Yes. When you when you go to the bathroom, say I got to go drop a Bezos. So that's in line with your current uh, smellerific theory here. Yeah, I'm trying to get that going. I forgot. Thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> I got to go drop a Bezos. What was the other one? Oh, the it's no good. okay. So, <clears throat> uh, so the show started at five. Yep. Okay. And uh, Lyndon Johnson was president. If I remember, the show started at five. The first guest was Pete Dominic, who was absolutely brilliant, followed by Professor Ben Burgess, who was brilliant. I'll stop. He lost, but he was brilliant. He lost the argument. Yeah. Uh, And now I'm then you. Yep. You were and then uh, then the Hershenfelds. And then Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky. Yes. And then the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Yep. Okay. now it's getting hard. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. And then Mark Savasco, the chief of staff to Congressman Ted Lieu. And then we had the professors in Marianne, which started at 910. So we only got 50 minutes. That was an. That was great. That was uh, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ian Faluna, Professor Jonathan Bick. That brings us to 10 o'clock when Emil Guillermo came by. And then Andrea Ravensky. And yep. then you. You got it. And then you got it all. <laughs> you got it all. Whenever I say you got it, I think of Brody Stevens. You got it. Uh, Brody. <laughs> Oh, too bad. Thank you, Dan. I can't do this without you. You're the best. I'll see everybody tomorrow night for office hours and hours, 24 hours of office hours. Please join us for some of those hours. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, hit office hours, and we'll send you a, uh, a, uh, a link and you're in. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.